This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 22 of Through the Years, the podcast where two men and occasionally a guest that can be any gender they want review Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I, as always, am Trevor Dane. And as always in New York is the sweaty, hot Matt Feuerstein. And for Matt, how are you doing? First, I should ask now, I, after I said something that uh, no one that was not able to hear our pre-show banter will know what the heck I was talking about. I thought you were going to say that you said something that no one has ever said about me before. So, <laughs> and that's also definitely true. Um, but yes, it is a, it is a hot summery afternoon here in New York, but, uh, you know, we're sweating through the oldies, uh, in this case, old ROH DVDs. And I am very, 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 very excited for this episode. And I am very excited, too, for a few reasons. Obviously, Death Before Dishonored, the first one. It's a big show on Ring of Honor's history. We'll get into that. But the bigger reason I'm excited is we have a first-time guest on the show, and it's a very good guest. Finally, we don't have to settle for Joe Gagne, Matt. Finally. and um, Ugh, Enough of that guy. <laughs> And um, you might, just like Joe Gagne, he has a laundry list of credits. You might know him as the former host of Dr. Keith Presents, that one of the most wide-ranging in terms of subjects podcast you could ever hear. And that used to be on the Figure Four online website. You might know him as the English, one of the two English language commentators for WXW, the hot indie promotion out of Germany. You might know him for his writing for Fighting Spirit magazine or for Figure Four Weekly. Or you might know him most currently as the host of Pro Rest Paradise on the Pro Wrestling Torch. It is, of course, Alan Cunahan. It's great to have you on the show, Alan. Wow, I'm beaming. I'm I'm legitimately humbled by that introduction. I don't think anyone has ever uh, has ever spoke so highly of me, Trevor. I'm I, I've got a tear, single tear, rolling down my eye. Trevor Trevor Dame is the king of putting people over, both people who don't deserve it, like me, and people who definitely deserve it, like Alan. And I I would be remiss without mentioning that Alan was one of the guests that helped me launch List Them and Learn, uh, good, four years ago now? That's crazy. Um, So I am extremely excited to be back on a podcast with him for the first time in years. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. As am I with you, Matt, and it is my pleasure, and uh, I am also delighted for, as we established in the, the pre-show, this is the first time myself and Trevor have ever been on a show together, first time we've ever spoken to each other, and I had to convince myself that that was actually true, because I feel like I've had many a conversation with him, but it's actually just been conversations he's been having with Matt that I've been listening to. <laughs> It's it definitely weird where we both have this experience of I've listened to a lot of you talking and you've listened to a lot of me talking without ever having a conversation, which is basically just how the modern world seems to work now, where everyone has a podcast and that's how we communicate to each other. <laughs> As you say, it's it's just great, like how how podcasts just make you feel like you just you're friends with people from all over the world that you've never met before. It's it's a beautiful thing. Like, I haven't talked to my mother in four years because she hasn't started a podcast yet. And she's like, you want to communicate, Mom, you know, get off your ass, buy a Blue Yeti, and come on, let's get going. Wait, you haven't heard your mom's podcast? It's she has a podcast? It's everywhere. It's um, Cologne. Is it about CZW? <laughs> no, it's about Kelowna's best supermarkets. 
Oh God, that's Nature's Fair is pretty good if you don't <laughs> like gluten. But I don't know some of those some of those breads. I'll I'll have to talk to her about it. Most people do I'll, like I'll, most people do like gluten though. Yeah, I love gluten. Actually. <laughs> I want bread with extra gluten. <laughs> but I'll, I'll be honest, guys, I'm a little distressed uh, in the last few minutes having learned that. Uh, Trevor, your mother just doesn't want to talk to you, and Matt, your mother doesn't care if you melt in your hot, sweaty apartment. <laughs> and uh, but I, I'm glad to inform you guys that I have an Irish mother, so she cares so much for me. It will carry over to both of you, and uh, also worries so much about me that it will carry over to both of you. So it, she'll probably need an update in some point in the podcast on how we're all doing. I was going to ask if she's going to like text you, or if you're in the same place, come and talk to you at some point during the during the recording because that would be an exciting run and that's like that's like brian alvarez's grandmother only better because it's I, irish i can pretty much racist. guarantee i can pretty much guarantee she'll text me at some point during the course of this <laughs> yes. podcast. this is awesome <laughs> clap 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 also before we get into a long show i just want to make clear on the three percent chance my mom is listening to this my mom is a great mom we talk all the time. Please don't be angry at me. Please. Um, Mom, I love you. Happy Father's Day. Um, <laughs> but uh, one day you'll listen to my podcast because I'll put it on in the car and make you. <laughs> so actually, um, Alan, something we try and do for a first-time guest is basically just know briefly, like, what's what was your background with, with Ring of Honor? Why did you uh, – when did you discover it? And also – I um I put you in my notes because a long time ago a few people were suggesting shows they would like to guest on of through the years and you picked you said uh happy on for death before dishonor so I wrote a little note and remembered and I just would like I'd be interested in knowing that too why why this show Um well I got into ROH at, through seeing it covered in Paris Land magazine which uh I was getting every month in 2002 for, from like 1998 but uh in 2002, they were covering ROH when the first big shows happened. Um, I was also that summer of 2002 listening to the talk sport radio show hosted by Alex Shane on terrestrial radio in the UK. And they were talking a bit about Ring of Honor and a lot about AJ Styles because he would be coming over to be part of big shows in the UK around that time. And uh, so I just started to hear these names, see these coverage of these shows, and it, it piqued my interest. And I reckon it was probably late 02, early 03 that I finally made the leap and got my first few uh, ROH VHS cassettes and Road to the Title was the uh, the first show I saw. So if if uh, if you hadn't done Road to the Title at the point where I uh, suggested being on for a show or thought you'd be taking guests, I probably would have thrown my name into that for that one, but uh, I don't think you were taking guests at that point. It was still very early in this podcast series. So um, I would, didn't want to be rude and just uh, throw my name out there for like your third podcast. But um, uh, by the time I thought of doing something like that, it was like you're probably coming close to 2003. So I was like, you know, what's the next show that really resonates with me? And that is Death Before Dishonor because, well, I, all I could really say is just because I've really sort of strong memories of watching it because it's a very memorable show for a lot of reasons. And I remember when I watched it, it was, um, I would have been in fifth year, no, sixth year in school. So, uh, which would be your final year of normal school prior to college here in Ireland. And, um, I, 
I was um, I was off school. I believe it was Halloween. I th- I'm pretty sure it was Halloween day that I just had nothing to do in the afternoon. So I was like, you know what? Dead Before Dishonor just arrived. I don't know if I got it that morning or when it came, but that was when I decided to watch it. And it was like four and a half hours or whatever it was of crazy Ring of Honor wrestling taking me up up to the point of whatever I did for that Halloween night, which was clearly not as memorable as <laughs> what I did in the afternoon watching Ring of Honor because I don't remember anything. My well, this well, would you would you would you say that Death Before Dishonor? was not a trick, but rather a true treat for you on that <laughs> Halloween. It most certainly was, although there was it was a an up-and-down show, and there were a few things in there that could possibly be categorized as a trick on the audience. That's true, which something we'll get to. That will, something that will never trick you, though, are the great podcasts at the Place I really to be wish Nation. Trick Davis was on the show, by the way. That <laughs> would have been. <laughs> yeah. been perfect. Um, Plug. Uh, so yes, the great podcast at the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Every episode, we recommend a specific one. I was just checking today, and I saw survey says a WCW retrospective podcast just put out their fourteenth episode yesterday. A uh, top ten greatest American Bash matches. Matt, could you ever imagine such a thing where, like, a podcast about wrestling where they list ten of the best of something, like? That's you. I, in, you invented that, didn't you? I mean, I can't imagine one where they do it well. I've never <laughs> oh, experienced hey. anything like that before. So if this is if if you're if that's what you're saying, this show is, then count me in because I am looking forward to hearing it. <laughs> Jeez, man, <laughs> I'm I'm trying to open the door and you just slam it shut on your own face, man. Mm. You're you're too humble, even for me. Man. <laughs> um, so getting into the news from this show, there's only like three little bits of news that happened between this show and I mean the last show and this show and most of it's actually just stuff that's setting up what happens on the show but there is one bit actually because Death Before Dishonor is a four and a half hour long show and we have a guest I was looking at things to cut maybe pull back to another episode because I was thinking you know try and save a little bit of time where we can make this episode a little more manageable. And this part I thought was not time sensitive. And so I cut it. I was going to put it in the next episode. Imagine my surprise where a half hour before the show, Matt's like, you have this quote, don't you? And instantly <laughs> I was like, I have to put it in. Like, I can't resist now. This would be like, like the, the last temptation of Trevor Dame. I was like, okay, I have to put this back on this episode. Cause I do want to talk about it. And what that is, is around this time, uh, Dave Meltzer, you know, he was getting the tapes like everyone else. So he had a little catch up quote in the observer where I'll quote Dave here, a few notes from me watching ring of honor, the booking and character development has improved greatly of late. Everyone has a personality, but the problem is with no television. The only people who know it are those who attend or buy the tapes. CM Punk, for example, doing a straight laced gimmick who runs down people for doing drugs as a heel is a better talker than most of the people who get mic time in TNA and a few in WWE as well. It's funny to see Daniels and Punk so good on the mic and see all those interview the all those bad interviews on a TNA show with people who aren't. Unfortunately, his size will prevent him from being anything more than a manager role in WWE and they don't like managers unless they are born with the right last name. So just goes to show you how quickly, well, maybe not too how quickly, but 
I mean, it's only a few years. Uh, well, <laughs> the, the goes from Punk being in WWE to before that. You know, here in 2003, Dave saying Punk would can top out as a manager. Well, you had to hand it to Dave. He's he's a great prognosticator when it comes to wrestling. Um, so. I mean, we all know that great managerial career he had. He actually brought back the manager. Now there are so many managers. And, like, you know, every other word out of the announcer's mouth in WWE is manager this, manager that. And it's all thanks to CM Punk. And Dave predicted it, like, 10 years in the making. And it's also just adorable that he, at this point, did not know the, the concept of straight edge. So he said, oh, he's doing a straight-laced gimmick. You know, that's, straight why he had, that's why he has those L's on his tape for straight-laced <laughs> and and that was when he used to wear boots rather than kick pads that's right that's right he got got the kick pads like in 05 but I mean I think we've talked before that was when he abandoned his straight lace gimmick and went full straight edge that's right (laughs) no more laces but I think we've talked before Matt about how you know we, it's easy when you have to write about the future. You're going to get some things wrong. And wrestling did change dramatically, especially WWE's tastes of talent, you know, and what, what was acceptable, what was in vogue would change often. So it, it's easy to poke fun at stuff like this and have a little bit of a laugh. But, you know, I, I can't completely not have any sympathy for that, even though it just goes to show that as bad as you might feel about wrestling sometimes – it goes to show how much even WWE's, you know, like their outlook on things can change where a guy that's plugged in like Dave can go within a few, you know, he can be in 2003 and say, this guy will never be more than a manager there. And then he becomes at his peak, I would say the number two star in the company behind John Cena. So yeah. you're, you're right, obviously. Um, but I, I do think sometimes Dave can get a little bit like kind of over the top with his, um, prognostications in terms of how aggressively like bold they are and saying a guy wouldn't be more than a manager in 2003 when there really weren't even any managers anymore seems a little bit silly but yes you're right he uh, we have the benefit of hindsight in a way that it's very, it's very hard to put yourself back in that headspace now I, I want the last thing i want to know from that story i don't know if you caught this matt as someone who reads a bunch of these old observers or at least scans them to see what the ring of honor news of the time was um I know uh, this is something I've noticed. That I don't know if you've noticed as much, which is in the past you have gotten a very cute and cutely annoyed. That's not a word um, that when Dave Meltzer would like be like, oh, this Ring of Honor match is good, but it's not W. You know, it's he would compare it to WWE usually in a negative light. Right. And this is the point I've noticed in the last month or two of the Observer of this time period. Dave switches from oh, this Ring of Honor match was good, but it's not WWE 2. This TNA thing is is good, but it's not a Ring of Honor thing. Like, now now Ring of Honor is the thing that's used to beat TNA down rather than WWE being used to beat Ring of Honor down. So a key turning point in Ring of Honor's history. That's definitely true. Although I noticed in that, you know, that same quote you were reading about Punk and Daniels, he was like, oh, you know, they're better than all the guys who get mic time in TNA and even some of them who get mic time in WWE. And, I, you know, I'm listening to those Punk promos and I'm like, they're definitely better than any WWE promos in 2003. Yeah. So I still think he was being a little bit too easy on WWE and it's his comparisons to ROH. So moving on, we have uh, just on one- the uh, just on the manager thing, just a quick thing to, yeah, to no think problem. about to put it in, in perspective is in 2003 
we were nine years removed and thus a lot closer than we are now from Scott Levy being too small to be a wrestler and having to be a manager in WWE. Scott Levy, who was a lot bigger than CM Punk. And we're only five years removed for six years removed from Don Callis, who would have been bigger than CM Punk being too small to be a wrestler in WWE and having to be a manager. And I'm sure there's other examples, but those are just two that popped into my head. So again, like you guys said, it's, you can, it seems crazy to think about now, but you can kind of see where Dave could have maybe thought that. Yeah, that's a good point. The Raven thing is really important probably because that's obviously who he was feuding with. So you're right. That's probably what he was thinking of. And it's wild to think that like, Daniel Bryan is smaller than uh, CM Punk, and he would main event a WrestleMania. Like, Dave's yeah. down on CM Punk's <laughs> height, size. You, you, Punk wouldn't be in my top five of now of guys that were small that have gotten some kind of push in WWE. Well, if, if we, we could plug the, uh, the show uh, that Alan and I did years ago about the career of Daniel Bryan, you know, right, before he actually announced his retirement uh, officially, and uh, we talked about some of the things that Dave said uh, when Brian first signed with WWE, and they're not quite as uh, pessimistic as what he said about Punk, but it's it's pretty pessimistic. Yeah, I mean the first couple years of indie re- of the, I guess the modern age of indie wrestling, what I would call it, you know, two thousand two to two thousand four. I think a lot of things get changed in terms of perception, like both from WWE's side and from the people that are looking at the industry, like Dave Meltzer for a living. A lot of just Preconceived notions change, I think. Yep, definitely. Um, before we before we get into um, well, I guess before we get into Death Before Dishonor itself, I, I, since Alan talked about the uh, his DVD experience, I, I want to mention mine, which is that I um, so I started you know getting all the back catalog of ROH stuff when I got really into it in 05. and I actually ordered Death Before Dishonor. Um, as one of like the early DVDs I was getting in late 05 to you know just catch up. That was one of the big shows. And so I got the Death Before Dishonor DVD. It came in the Death Before Dishonor box, you know, the, the, the famous box. It had the two main matches on it. And Death Before Dishonor was a two-DVD show. Uh, there was disc one and disc two. So I guess the way they had it in their warehouse was they would have the boxes and they would print out the cover and put it in, and then they would grab the DVDs from their stock room. So whoever did that got confused, and they put in the DVDs of Death Before Dishonor 2, Night 1, and Death Before Dishonor 2, Night 2, So, which I also did not have. So when it arrived, I was looking forward to watching the original Death Before Dishonor, and I couldn't because I had Death Before Dishonor 2. And those are really good shows too, which we'll get to probably next year. But Jesus Christ, Hagedorn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I guess it, it ended up benefiting me because that means that I got those two separate shows for the price of one. So that's yeah. good. And then I think at like the next live show I went to, I bought the original Death Before Dishonor and it was the correct one. That's that's like one of those uh, deals where you get an extra chicken nugget in your meal and you just let it go. You're like. Fortune's smiling on me today. Yeah, you know? it wasn't what I wanted. I had I knew less about Death Before Dishonor too, but they were really good also, and so I appreciated it. So, and, it and it made getting the right version all the sweeter. <laughs> so, um, a couple more pieces of news, and these just are mostly things that are are about 
Death Before Dishonor and setting it up. The first one is another bit from The Observer. Paul London agreed to terms for a developmental contract and will be starting in Ohio Valley Wrestling very soon. This is a good pickup because London has as good a combination of raw athletic ability and wrestling skill as you'll find in just about anyone without a contract at this point. London has trained extensively under both Shawn Michaels and Dory Funk and really won his wings with a series of long matches with Osamu Nishimura on Funk's TV show before making more of a rep with his incredible Ring of Honor matches against the likes of Michael Shane and AJ Styles. Also signed this week was Shannon Ward, who was in WCW as Daphne and has worked indies as of late as Lucy's. She signed a developmental contract and will be starting in OVW as well. Both were told that they couldn't work any more indie dates, even once they had committed to. London was allowed to work one Ring of Honor date. Ward w- went to the show she was booked at this weekend, but wasn't allowed to work. So that's another big, when we're talking about time differences between how WWE treats the indies, that's another huge difference where, where back then they didn't have that respect for the talent and finishing the date sometimes where they would sign a guy and be like, yeah, if you sign this, you're coming out. Like, we don't care about your obligations. It's it's a it's a special treat if we let you fulfill one of them compared to nowadays where guys for months get to go on like basically farewell tours. Like look at Keith Lee, where for months now pretty much everyone knows where he's going. He's going to NXT or WWE and, you know, he's allowed to wrap up all his dates, you know. Everything that, that he's committed to. That was pretty much true even by the time Punk signed a couple of years later. Or he got to do that full Summer of Punk thing, you know, well after everyone knew he signed. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it was, it's, this was pretty much, I guess London would be the beginning of that. Like realizing that the person that you signed is actually a star in, in his own right. And like treating him with enough respect to let him, uh, you know, finish up the way he wants to. Yeah, if it's, anyone it, has any copies of Dory Funk Jr. TV with Osamu Nishimura versus Paul London, mm-hmm. please let me know as soon as possible. I need to see those matches. I did not know they existed. Yeah, like I, I never realized, like I knew before he came to, you know, I always thought, oh, Paul London made his bones in Ring of Honor, which he did to a large degree. But I did remember something about like Terry, Fun- like the Funks highly recommended Paul London. And I didn't realize till going back and looking at this issue that apparently a series of, as Dave says here, long matches with Osama Nishimura, who for people oh that don't God. know was an older, uh, probably from a decade or two ago, New Japan guy who had a very great technical wrestler. The had Muga his own style. kind of style. Yeah, the Muga style. So the idea that that's, those are matches that kind of, I guess, opened the funk size to, hey, this guy's really good. I, I'd be interested in seeing those too. I wonder if those are still, does WWE need to buy the funk TV video library and put it in hidden gems in 20 years? Isn't it, fu- is, isn't it funny how you could be completely obsessed with wrestling for like 20 years and, or more and there's still stuff that you just don't even know exists that's noteworthy? Yeah. Yeah, it always blows my mind. But then again, the uh, Dory Funk Jr. corner of the world is something I've generally, uh, that's a stone I haven't tried to unturn. <laughs> yeah. Like, that almost sounds like a wrestling Mad Libs. Like, Paul London made his name wrestling Osamu Nishimura on Dory <laughs> Funk's TV show. Like, you go, okay, that's like a, a bot made that through a random generator. That's like, that's that can't be real. But no, that, that's, that really did happen. And... Just going back to what um, I was looking at elsewhere in the Observer, and somewhere later on, 
Dave writes that Paul London was actually at first pulled from Death Before Dishonor by WWE. And then he um, then after some talking with Tom Pritchard, WWE agreed to let Paul London do the show as his final indie appearance period. So uh, Tom Pritchard, I don't know if Ring of Honor was talking to him personally or Paul London was, but Thank you, I guess. Thank you, Tom Pritchard, for letting Paul London have a goodbye because it sounds like he was the guy who said, "Okay, okay, you can do one more show." Well, you know, we're, we're you know we're in direct competition with Tom Pritchard's brother for top wrestling podcasts, so <laughs> I feel like we shouldn't praise any Pritchards. It's a very close back and forth uh, yeah. contest between us and them. Right. We'll be appearing soon on the uh, New Japan World with our <laughs> own video version of this podcast. That's right. Doesn't really make much sense. But what's Actually, what's and, that ROH streaming service that we will definitely never go on? <laughs> oh, the, well, did you guys hear? Actually, um, I never checked this myself, but apparently uh, they just put up or recently put up Era of Honor Begins on the Ring of Honor World streaming service. Yeah, actually, I learned, I learned that from Alan, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, I saw someone else tweeting it, so I haven't actually seen it myself. But we did get it confirmed that they edited off the uh, the opening segment on the first show. Thank, go- thank goodness. That's what I was going to mention, yeah. They're going to be uploading, apparently, the, the rest of the 2002 catalog very shortly, I believe was the term used. I don't even know if it may already be up, for all I know. But all I would think is, if they're editing off that... There's probably some other things they'll need to or want to edit off in the rest of 2002, or maybe they just won't realize it. It's just because that first segment is so well known that it was it caught their radar, but other stuff wouldn't. Yeah, there, there's a lot of horrible stuff like in the early hour. I mean, obviously, there's still the commentary. Like you guys have gone through in detail. And, <laughs> yeah, but I don't think they'll be going through it in, in that fine uh, fine combing it. To that degree, they'll be able to catch every like offensive thing that Donny B says. Yeah, nothing stands out as aberrant the way that that first segment did in terms of just like how out of line it is with all the ho- rest of the horrible stuff in wrestling history. You know, like the violence against women stuff. That's you know any ECW show on WWE Network has that. Um, you know, like the homophobia. You could find a lot of that on WWE Network. But that first segment, just the aggressiveness and the vitriol yeah. of it just stands out as something that I've never seen before. It's the thing that makes that segment different is there's homophobia and gay jokes and, you know, minority jokes and stuff, but it's not the anger that that first segment has. That's the only thing that really has like, like, like Eric Gargiulo and Steve Crino are angry that these gay men are existing in front of them. So yeah, yeah. I just thought that was an interesting tidbit just like another interesting tidbit, I'm looking at my notes trying to thread this back. Um, one of the shows that Paul London was pulled off of was an MLW show, and Jerry Lynn had to. Uh, Jerry Lynn was on the show, and apparently he got on the mic and knocked Paul London, saying that um, he sold his soul for sports entertainment. So Jerry Lynn scoring some, and Jerry Lynn getting even more revenge later, doing the thing Paul London never could, and winning the Ring of Honor World Title. So yeah, wow, that's true. Jerry Lynn, Who, Paul figure? London's secret arch enemy. Didn't wasn't Jerry Lynn like just in WWE a couple of years before that? <laughs> he was. <laughs> so that's another very uh, apparently on the show. Um, Homicide replaced Paul London, which is not a bad replacement at all. But Jerry Lynn felt the need to get on the mic and say that. Paul Lennon sold his soul. Well, so. I, I think I think I understand why he did that because Jerry Lynn also sold his soul a couple of years earlier, and only a soulless Jerry Lynn would say something like that about Paul Lennon. 
Uh, <laughs> I guess we're never going to have Jerry Lynn on that. No, I was just making a joke. <laughs> Jerry Lynn. I... All in referee Jerry Lynn. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's 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 wild, too. Jerry Lynn looking pretty solid for without with the shorter hair. Yeah, I, I'm still into Jerry Lynn. His looks yeah. and his talent. And, you know, his love of what was that? that what was that music he loved? That that's that oh. music website he plugged on. Was it Relapse like, Relapse Records? Yes, that's what's yeah. This is the real stuff. Relapse audio. <laughs> Jerry Lynn once informed me that uh I was close to making him cry. Oh. Like in a good like a cry of tears of joy or is tears of sadness? Tears of joy. He okay. had uh he had a couple of matches for Rev Pro uh, right after they became Rev Pro in the UK before they were doing the big shows they, they currently do now. This would have been, I guess, 2012, I want to say. And I went to these shows. They were in a small little leisure center in England, maybe, I don't know, max 200 people, 150 people, that kind of thing. And uh, um, I think he wrestled Noam Dar. It was Noam Dar or El one or the other. But, uh, uh, in the lobby after the show, various fans were just kind of going up to him and shaking his hand, that kind of thing. And I, I shook his hand and I was I was telling him about a match in Michinoku Pro. He had where he lost his mask, and I was recounting it, with, with, uh, fondly recounting it. And, uh, and he was looking at me, staring at me directly in the eyes. And I was like, <laughs> "Okay, he either thinks he's he's either engaged incredibly with what I'm saying right now, or he like just thinks I'm a psycho." And then he just stops and he paused and he was just was like oh my god i haven't thought about that to that degree in so long and you're bringing back all these memories and it's such good memories and i'm so glad that something i did in my career like that could have stuck out to someone and and then he was he stopped again he started thinking about it more and he had his head, hand on his chin and he was looking down and he was like and then he kind of looked back up and he smiled and he nodded and he was like man i'm almost i'm almost ready to cry right oh. now <laughs> it's like <laughs> wow, Jerry! I didn't know I was going to hit you right in the feels with that one. Alan, you're uh, Alan. Stop, Alan, stop! You're making me cry. <laughs> two two wrestlers I've done that with: Jerry Lynn, Kenta Kobashi. Not, <laughs> wow, not a bad ratio. Uh, Kobashi, Kobashi. Actually, I went one further with. I had a printed off VLC media screen grab of a match, <laughs> my favorite match he had in 1992. And uh, he, I handed it to him, and he went into. Everyone's heard me tell the story a million times, but he went into a uh, complete and utter trance, staring at the photo in his hands. And then he looked up and he goes, "Oh, Sendai, Doug Furness, so strong." <laughs> well, so, Alan, since you are so tight with Kenny Kobashi, can you confirm right now that when we review Joe versus Kobashi, you can get Kenny Kobashi on this show for an interview and review of the entire show? I really want to know what he thinks about the um, the Claudio Castagnoli versus Colt Cabana opener and homicide and Colt Cabana, or was it homicide in the uh, in the? Balcony, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, Colcaban in the balcony while Jack Evans is wrestling Homicide. Stop. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, so, so you, so, so we're good. So we're good, right? You're getting Kobashi on. He's going to review yeah, that show with us, for right? Sure. I'll, I'll talk to my refs at a, a Fortune Dream, and uh-huh. uh, he'll be sure to. Uh, the, Kobashi seems so happy and uh, jovial with life right now uh-huh. that uh, I reckon he, I reckon he'd say yes. But uh, this would be, uh, this would, be, you know, I think Trevor, that might be an even bigger get than Justin. <laughs> uh, 
I, I mean, Kobashi does have some pretty good jokes, but yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. You know, I might need to go through the Harley Race uh, <laughs> office to uh, to get a hold of him. Now that I think about it, I might need to go through uh, what's it called? Oh, the, oh his, his 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 wrestling promotion. Yeah. Oh, uh, how do I not know this? It's got an L. Chili Productions. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, oh, I mean, I, this is annoying me now. I mean, I could, ju- I could just Google it. We're on to another topic. Um, but uh, we can also get uh, Kobashi's thoughts on Wendy's. If you remember when he came over to the U.S., there was the photos that uh, yes. showed him enjoying a nice Wendy's, which is which is great, also because oh, it's World League Wrestling, by the way, that, w- uh, WLW. Uh, but um, yeah, that, that'll actually be a great callback to our show where we talked about how Brian Kendrick liked Wendy's. Yes, I never solved. That was the original Ring of Honor mystery that we never solved. He, I tweeted it to Brian Kendrick. He did not reply what was in his Wendy's order. I still don't know if he's a nug man. Bug Brian Kendrick. Is he a nug man? Hashtag nug man. Um, Maybe Kenna Kobashi knows. We could ask Kenna Kobashi about what Brian Kendrick eats at Wendy's. Kenna Kobashi Kobashi's knows all. definitely a double baconator guy. Uh-huh. Definitely. <laughs> anyway, um, we, we've we gone through so many places, and we haven't even started the show, <laughs> which we are going to cover right now. Alan, you li- so Alan, Alan, I've heard you like tangents. <laughs> oh, my I'm God, so man. sorry, you guys. I'm no, so no, it's great. No. Saturday and Sunday. We love no, it. I, I, you're the one staying up late for us, my friend. That's I right. It. So... It, Matt may die of a uh, loss of moisture, but we will we will survive. So. I'm pl- I'm plenty moist. Thank you. <laughs> um, Death before dishonor took place July nineteenth, two thousand three, in the Rexplex in Elizabeth, New Jersey. This was Ring of Honor's debut in the Rexplex and in New Jersey, in front of a reported crowd of twelve hundred people. This would be by far Ring of Honor's biggest crowd they had. Uh, up to this point, I mean, the previous record would be around 700 for the Elks Lodge for the one-year anniversary show. Dave even wrote in The Observer, like a week or two before the show, he wrote that uh, the attendance looked like it was the advance, just on the advance alone, it looked like it was going to be the company's all-time record breaker, and that they were hoping to do 1,000 fans, while they ended up doing 1,200. And I believe we'll get to it maybe later, but, oh, actually, we'll get to it right now, I just forgot where my note was. Dave wrote, before the show, several in the company remarked to me that tickets started moving strong once they announced Jeff Hardy. So that was one of those things where Dave found it weird, like, what a weird show, which we'll get to later, where the crowd shits on Jeff Hardy, yet, according to Ring of Honor themselves, apparently, like, one of the reasons this show did so well was they announced Jeff Hardy, and a bunch of screaming women came to the show to see Jeff Hardy. Oh, Gabe sure rewrote that history on college. Oh, yeah, yeah, we will get to that. <laughs> There's definitely some talking out of both sides of the mouth. What Dave says on commentary and what Gabe apparently told Dave about advanced ticket orders were uh, two different things. But Dave wrote, even in The Observer, overall it was clear that a large percentage of the crowd were first-timers that didn't know a lot of the wrestlers or storylines. So... Again, uh, uh, a lot of people, new market, Jeff Hardy being what he is, I guess a lot of new people. So CM, we start the show, CM Punk is backstage chewing gum saying tonight is the most important night of his life. Tonight he'll be connected by a chain to somebody he doesn't respect, somebody who has ruined lives, somebody who's no better than a dog. That's right, Dr. Chris Amon. No, uh, actually he's talking about Raven. Uh, Punk says tonight he's... Be, 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 be careful mentioning Amon, Trevor. 
Don't want to get sued. Uh, Matt, the, didn't you see the result of that case? It's over. No, uh, just Chris Amon's great. I'm sure he's a great doctor. He's great. great. I, I love you, Dr. Amon. <laughs> we love him. Everyone go doc to Dr. Amon for all of your medical needs. I, I actually I heard on WrestleNomics it's a man. A man. I'll, I'll say it however you want, sir. Just <laughs> please, please. You, you no, nobody is a better doctor than you. Um, moving on. Uh, CM Punk says he spot and beaten Raven time and time again, and he's giving him another chance tonight. But he's also ending it tonight because things have gotten way too personal. But that's not why it's the most important night of his life tonight. Punk says when he was choking Raven out at WrestleRave. He had what people who have been in rehab call a moment of clarity, a flashback. What was this flashback to? Punk says it was when he was young and his dad came home drunk one time. Um, normally this would be a normal occurrence for Punk, but one time Punk's dad came, puked and then passed out. And Punk says he watched his dad turn blue like Raven did. And a young CM Punk moved his dad so that his dad didn't choke on his own vomit. Uh, Punk says he's regretted that ever since. Because all he wanted was the pain and the misery to end. Punk says he's wondering why he spared Raven from the chain, just like he spared his dad. And then at this point, someone opens a door behind Punk and just walks through it, like in the background, as he's cutting this incredibly serious promo. And then right shortly after that, Colt Cabana walks in from the other side of the room, carrying, he's being all lighthearted and wacky Colt Cabana-y. He's carrying Punk's dog collar chain. He's complaining about how heavy it is. Punk grabs Colt by the throat, pushes him against the wall, screams, he's furious. He says he's sick of all of Colt's, quote, tomfoolery and shenanigans, unquote, which is just a great line. Um, Storm line. <laughs> exactly. He's pa pausing while, while Lance is doing a boring gimmick in WWE. Um, Punk's stealing the most charismatic thing he's ever said. Uh, Punk says... Colt knows damn well that if Ace Steel was here, he would slap him. Colt sheepishly apologizes. Punk walks away. Colt starts cutting a promo of his own with his wacky Colt energy, but he keeps looking over his shoulder for Punk because showing that he's still scared of CM Punk. Uh, Colt says people tell him how funny he is, how he reminds them of a modern-day Dave Coulier. Colt says he has a serious side, though, because he cried during My Girl. Maybe he... So we've got a lot of crying so far between the Kabashi story, the Lynn story, now Colt revealing his memory of my girl. Um, Colt plugs his number one contendership four-way tonight, and he says if people didn't take him seriously before, just wait until the night is over. He then proceeds to exit the wrong way for comedy. So this is a this. It's funny, Matt. We were talking on the last episode about you know that was the show of the big famous punk promo where he revealed his dad was an alcoholic this promo is actually not that well remembered but it's way heavier because he basically says he wishes he had let his dad die um yeah that's and, pretty heavy and also it's really a good promo like it's like it's not as loud and intense it's you know quieter like you said but it's very well delivered uh, the one the first thing i noticed when it came on was like man he looks so young there you know I, as i was watching um as I was watching some of his like promos before his UFC fight recently, you know, you just like, and you just go back to back with where the way he looked in this. It's just, man, it's 15 <laughs> I had years. The same thing hit me. <laughs> yeah. The road will, uh, what do they, what do they say? They'll own you. It'll own you. Um, that, that said, he still looks great. I don't want to be sued by anybody. Um, but, um, <laughs> on a roll now. He's eager for a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. It is crazy to think, like, with all the passion 
you know, how, how natural he was at all this stuff that he's, he just doesn't want to do wrestling at all. He's doing UFC. Like it's, it's crazy to think we've, we've been down that road before, but it's a great promo. I think it's, it's just really, really good. And like you said, it has this, like brings it to this intense level, but Punk's acting is good enough that it seems, you know, like it doesn't sound as ridiculous as it might sound describing it. It just, you actually are affected by what he's saying. And I think the Cabana thing where undercuts it with the humor, I think it works. And Cabana, like you said, he has this this energy. I also think Cabana is very self-aware by comparing himself to Dave Coulier because that's pretty much the closest comedy comparison I could think of to the shtick that Cabana does. I'm not, I don't even mean that in a mean way. I think he does it on purpose. So, like, I, um, but I think it's true. So I, I, I think this whole thing worked really well. Yeah, just really good. Um, moving on, we got um, this, Matt. This is a huge one for us. After months and months of it being thankfully missing, we get a classic Ring of Honor techno music video that shows all the best highlights of every match you're about to watch yeah i i don't i don't i th- i'm pretty sure like i i hope that i'm not wrong on this i'm pretty sure this is the last one of these they ever do where they put this like video before the actual show on the dvd but i don't understand i don't understand why anyone thinks this is a good idea a lot of people who watch this dvd don't know what happened and so they want to watch it and see what happened instead of learning what happened. Like they show the surprise returns, you know, they they, you know, they show the biggest spots. It's weird. Why do they do that? On unscripted, I believe they showed Paul London do the ladder run, like off the court, like the key spot of the whole show. And yeah, like it's weird. You you th- you kind of thought, oh, Ring of Honor just learned their lesson. But I guess watching this show, maybe it was just like we don't have time to put one of these on anymore. But we still wish we could, which is even crazier to me that like they still think after all these shows that it's a good idea to spoil every moment on on the DVD that you're actually watching. Alan, where do you stand on spoiler videos before the actual show? Oh, it's it's ridiculous, and like you guys said. It- the early shows and i remembered the early shows having it and then you guys talked about the early shows having it and i assumed like you did that it was completely gone but that was so this was the first show it was back for or was there was yeah there some other ones no this was the first yeah you know, uh, in quite a while yeah I, so I, it caught I, me off guard i think this might have been the first one since like 2002 i might be wrong about that but it's yeah, definitely the first I, one in a while i feel like from listening to the shows it was probably six or seven shows in that you guys noted that it had stopped that they had as you said learned their lesson but i know they brought it back for a a glory spot here on the big show and i I don't recall them doing it after so maybe this was just kind of a one and done it will be something for everyone to keep on keep in touch with uh through the years podcast in future episodes to find out yes it would be Uh, it would be fine if they had these videos at the end of the show it's the fact that they have them at the beginning that makes them so stupid or even, you know, like, I, I think we've said this before, but the way PWG does, where they show a ton of big spots from their shows, but that's not on the DVD you bought. That's the idea of we're trying to entice you to buy the DVD. Once you've bought it, you don't need to show me it because you've got my sale. I'm going to watch the show. Yeah. You don't have to You don't have to sell me anymore. I'm, I'm holding it in my hand. Yeah. So um, moving on, there's a lot of segments to start with. So the show we... We get into the Rexplex itself, and um, Special K comes to the ring partying. 
commentary tries to sell this as early and unexpected, like way before the show is supposed to start. Gabe acts like he's at the merch table, which doesn't make sense because why would he have a live mic at the merchandise table? <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm at the merch table. What, what's going on? Um, the house lights are still on. Gabe says it's only 7. The show doesn't start till 7.30. And then he tries to cover the for the fact that all the fans are already seated <laughs> by wondering why aren't they at his table buying merchandise? Like, oh, it's only 7. Uh, they should be at my table buying merchandise. Like, just classic Gabe, like, thinking on his feet, but always just a second too slow. So it, it, I honestly think it's endearing. Um, girls dance in the ring. Izzy appears to have a cast on his arm. Doug says the truck, the product, the ring of honor production truck <laughs> has told them they have some interviews, which they then cut to, which brings us to Gary, Michael Capetta backstage running into Samoa Joe stretching. And, uh, Gary tells him he might be in for the fight of his life tonight, facing Paul London in his final ring of honor match for the title. Gary mentions that it could be a special moment for Paul, and Joe takes great offense to this. Joe says, it was a special moment when Moff wrestled Joe right after Moff's dad died. It was a special moment when Homicide nearly killed himself trying to beat Joe. It was a special moment when Joe ended Xavier's six-month title reign. Joe says, that's the problem with Gary and everyone else in Ring of Honor. They think it's a special moment for Paul London tonight, when really it's a special moment for someone with Joe. Uh, Gary tries everything he can to be agreeable to Joe here, but Joe keeps interrupting, keeps being very intense, almost punk level intense, maybe more so. He finally puts his hand on Capetta's face, basically pie faces him, pushes him against the wall before leaving. Uh, Gary says he can't wait for the match tonight, still promoting like a pro, even after he gets roughed up by Samoa Joe in a kind of creepy way, which... Like, one of the themes of tonight is Gary getting abused by all of the Ring of Honor wrestlers he encounters and still being very enthusiastic about the product. Like, good trooper Gary Michael Cabetta tonight. Um, Gary is catching his breath when, when from behind the camera we hear Gabe Sapolsky's voice telling him that they found Homicide and Julia Smokes. Gary, who just got assaulted by Joe, immediately just goes, Cool! Let's find out what happened behind closed doors. And it's, it's also <laughs> worth noting this proves that cameraman who has Gabe's voice is different from Chris Levy who also has Gabe's voice. They're different people. <laughs> and um, I just wrote in my notes here, Gary Michael Capetta is a glutton for punishment. Like he is so gleeful, excited whenever he or someone yells at him, he'll get scared, he'll sell. But then if he has something else to do, he'll get excited right away again. Sweat a off a camel's back. A broadcast journalist to the end. Yeah, perfect man for the job. Um, we get another very brief cutback to Special K in the ring. Members are stealing pizza. Dixie's on the second floor of the Rexplex. And then we just cut right back to the promos again. And back to Gary Michael Capetta, who has found Homicide talking with Julia Smokes and Benny Blanco in a hallway. He wants to know what happened with the closed-door meeting that they had with Low Key at WrestleRave. Smokes just says, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, homicide, <laughs> homicide ain't giving it up. He's not telling Gary anything he wants to know. He, he, calls d- he, do- he does mention, in case no one ever knew, they come from Belly of the Beast, Concrete Jungle. Nobody knew. <laughs> and Gary just called, oh, this is what I, no, Homicide just calls Gary Michael. Repeatedly, like at least two times. He doesn't call him his last or his first name. He calls him his middle name. So he's like, Michael. Um, Gary asks if there's going to be a feud between Homicide and Low-Key. Homicide asks Michael, what kind of dumbass question is that? And says Low-Key and he are both just doing their own things. Gary says, I hear ya. 
and then transitions into maybe the most ill-advised statement ever, telling Smokes and Homicide, or well, tell, telling Homicide, um, quote, but you always seem to have these thugs around you, unquote, which they all understandably take offense to. Yeah. Um, Gary says, no offense. Gary then says that um, Steve Carinos has said in the past that the reason he isn't returning to Ring of Honor is because of said thugs. Smoke sings, ain't nothing worse than a bitch-ass word we cannot say. Homicide tells Gary... <laughs> and then that other guy said the other word later. <laughs> Homicide tells Gary to tell Carino that he wants a strong-style match between the two, not an old-school wrestling strong-style, and his thugs will stay at home. Gary then asks yet again about the low-key closed-door meeting at an earlier show. Smoke says they'll answer all questions later on, and Judgment Day is coming. Smoke says, the syndicate, randomly, and Gary says, the syndicate, question mark. And I guess um, later on commentary, Gabe brings up the syndicate. I don't know if anything came of that. Like well, the idea of some Doug, called Doug, the syndicate. Something hammers at home as well on commentary. Gabe says it, and then Doug like, says it like three or four times. And they're like, okay, they clearly had a plan at this point of taking this angle somewhere with the syndicate. And I would imagine low-key leaving just caused them to tear up a bunch of plans and that's where the syndicate went out the window yeah, yeah. I, I mean i assume it eventually turned into whatever the rottweilers you know started as um but yes the, the whatever the original syndicate idea was did not get syndicated <laughs> that is a justin shapiro level pun that uh well i appreciate that i don't i don't know if i don't know if i would go that far but thank you that is a true true compliment of the highest order um, the great thing about complimenting Justin is he'll probably never hear this compliment. That's right. um, now, do house- you think this? Uh, sorry to take us off course. No, go ahead. If the Rothweilers was what the syndicate was going to be, um, I would think 2003 would have been a year too soon for a very young at that time Rocky Romero and Ricky Reyes. So, would we think that taking their place in the syndicate would be Ring of Honor mainstays? Jose and Joel, the Maximos. Well, I wasn't the original sort of stable with Homicide. Didn't it involve like Slugga and somebody? Like I feel like late two thousand three, there was like a proto version of whatever this is. I wonder if it was also just Gabe's idea of maybe even just what can I do with like the riot? The Homicide riot angles are done, but. Homicide's New York crew is still showing up to shows. Like you would see on these shows, like we talked to the last show, they didn't even credit him by name, but Monster Max shows up. Um, on this show, I just said Benny Blanco. They'd have like low life Louis Ramos. I, I wonder if Gabe was just thinking maybe there's a way I could just keep having Homicide's crew show up under a different name and maybe more focused. Like I have no idea because, you know, that all of a sudden goes from Homicide. Homicide just keeps having this entourage, almost like a special K esque. Just random members show up every episode, every show. You don't really know which ones. A lot of times they aren't credited by name. Including so, mo- including freaking Monster Mac, who is a yeah. regular ma- – oh, that pisses me off so much. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know, Alan, you haven't heard the last episode yet. But that was the first time Monster Mac comes back on camera after they've written him off of TV. Just as like a random member of the entourage. And they just don't sell it at all. They just – Monster Mac could just be like Benny Blanco or something. Just a random – face and, but, they, and they do that every time monster max shows up for the rest of history in roh which really yeah, annoys me yeah a little, little definitely kind of weird um next the house lights are down but special case still is partying in the ring 
Stephen, the ring announcer Stephen DeAngelis and the doctor make their way to ringside. I guess to emphasize, like, look, these guys were here way before the show started. This is when they're supposed to come out. Well, I think the, uh, the reason that they cut back and forth like that is to make it seem like this is going on much longer than it actually was, right? Yeah. Classic editing trick. They take like a yeah. three minutes of footage and just keep cutting to and from it. So, yeah, it seems like, oh, this was happening for half an hour. And, um, so anyway, DeAngelis eventually makes his way to the ring. He tries to start do the ring introductions just to start the show off. But special K, he play the old one guy crouch behind a guy and the other guy shove him over the crouch guy trick on DeAngelis. Out comes the Christopher Street connection and Ariel to It's Raining Men instead of their usual YMCA. There's a big but I think dare say loving you suck dick chant. Buffy gets on yes, the mic. It was, a, it was a baby face chant for sure. Yeah, uh, it's weird to say that, but it was. Uh, Buffy gets on the mic and asks the crowd if they can tell them if they also spit or swallow. Buffy says they came out here because they don't like rave music. They like disco. They prepare to boogie down when Special K attacks them. The beatdown continues as the lights dim and the music stops. Then Low Key's music starts to play. Out he comes. Some of the Special K members bail to the outside, but no fewer than eight remain in the ring to stand off just against Low Key alone. Key gets on the mic, says he, excuse me for interrupting. I didn't come here for dancing. I came here for a fight. Most of Special K now bail the ring, leaving it down to just deranged hijinks and Cloudy. Cloudy puts up his dukes. Key slaps him to the lat. Hijinks thinks this is hilarious and laughs, and Key joins him with some rare Key smiles and chuckles. You don't see that too often. He puts his arm around Hijink or on Hijink's shoulder. He laughs at Cloudy with him. Then he takes hijinks to the mat, taps him out with the dragon clutch. The bell even rings, and they play Key's mu- music like it's an official match when it wasn't. Um, and that leaves Deranged, who low blows Lil Key, leading to finally our first match of the night. Low Key defeats Deranged in six minutes, 51 seconds via submission with the dragon clutch. Matt, I'll t- give it to you, and then afterwards we'll take it to Alan. But Matt, this match is kind of famous for maybe not great reasons you want to get into that sure um before i mention it i do want to mention it was it's kind of like oh how far we've come that you know the um the christopher street connection are suddenly held up as the characters that are saying like oh uh this doesn't belong in roh and they're talking about special case rave instead of people saying that the christopher street connection don't belong in roh so you know as you know, problematic as that gimmick might be, it's kind of ni- a nice turn of uh, the tables there, that they're the ones kind of defending what's supposed to happen in ROH. Um, but we also did get, during that moment, our instance of violence against women as they stomp down Ariel. So we already have that box checked off for tonight, um, so we don't even have to worry about it anymore. Um, as far as the match, um, yeah, so basically, it starts off with... Durain's getting a lot of offense on Loki. He's mocking him, um, uh, and he, he does this really cool like springboard uh, moonsault to the outside. Like he's, he's looking really good. He's working over the shoulder. And Gabe at one point says, "The odds makers in Vegas are having a heart attack." And I just <laughs> lo- in my notes. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I just love the idea that a they're betting on 2003 ROH in Vegas. And B, they made odds on this unscheduled match just in case it ever happened. Um, yes, they're taking they're well, they're taking live lines. They're just <laughs> the lines. They're yeah, they're like Christopher Daniels. We'll get to they're like Christopher Daniels uh, yeah. with uh, people ringing in uh, updates from from the show. 
Well, they have um, no, they have a special hookup. You know, the, the you know those movers and shakers in Vegas. They have a special hookup to ROH's satellite truck. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that later too. Yeah. this was the show where Ring of Honor, like Ring of Honor, has usually been pretty good about like. It, like being very self-aware about, hey, we're an indie, we're small. Like they're the they're the company that had the the match where two guys fought over a plane ticket. But here on this show, it's like they completely throw that out of the window. All of a sudden, now they have microphones at the merch table. They have a, a production truck. They have a satellite hookup to Japan. They have odds makers watching matches. <laughs> like everything goes crazy for this show. Yeah, they they finally made it here. Um, they um and so it wasn't because of Jeff Hardy. No, definitely not. <laughs> it's because of deranged. Um, so they they call Loki an ROH legend, which obviously now sounds completely normal. Of course, he's an ROH legend. It's weird to call anyone a, a legend of a promotion that's only been around for a year and a half, though. But I guess it's as true as it could be for anybody. Um, so finally, uh, deranged does like a um, does like a handspring thing, and Loki catches him. And from then on in, it is just brutality. Um, like, Loki is just, like, wailing away with kicks in the head to the point where actually Deranged puts his hands up to block it, which you don't usually see because apparently, you know, Loki does it in a way that is – at least people think is safe. So I think that goes to show you that Loki was actually kicking the crap out of this guy's head. Kicks him in the back, does a crazy capo kick. Um, uh, some people find this beating problematic. I think it's understandably so – uh, Drains looks kind of glassy-eyed, honestly. Um, you know, I don't know how much is real and how much is not. I don't want to go throw around, you know, accusations that this was an actual like assault. But it looked as much like one as any I've seen. So, and you know, Loki does have, you know, there have been moments where people have accused him of that sort of thing. So I'm not saying that's what happened here, but it seemed very brutal. So I guess if that didn't happen, good job on working it. <laughs> um, but uh, so, uh, but Loki hits a title crutch. Um, then Special K distracted Loki. Slugger grabs him from behind with a bear hug, um, and they say it's no DQ, I guess, because the match was impromptu. Which I okay. Um, Loki escapes the bear hug by grabbing Slugger's balls and just squeezing them. And then uh, he hits a crush rush two times on Deranged and spinning key crusher. And then the dragon clutch for the tap out, like a really deep dragon clutch so you know assuming that this was all worked in the way it was supposed to this was a very exciting and fun kind of opener it's basically a squash but with a few minutes of Durange doing some really cool offense I think Durange was a good choice for this he's really he's an over character he's charismatic he's good at selling and I also before I give it up um, I want to also mention that um, the atmosphere on this show because obviously we mentioned this is the biggest crowd so far in ROH history, and the show definitely feels like a, lo- a notch above when it comes to production. Just the building seems bigger, and it probably isn't even that much bigger. You know, I mean, it's still a small building compared to what a lot of us are used to, uh, even compared to a lot of the places ROH runs now. Definitely compared to Madison Square Garden, um, but um, but it just it feels just it just it has a much more epic atmosphere. It feels like a supercar. It has a different vibe than all the other shows. They do a good job of making it seem special. And the crowd is red hot, and it's it's just it's a really exciting way to open the show. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope Deranged didn't actually get beaten up. Uh, Alan, like, what did you think about the match as a whole? And also, I, I went back and, and looked, and there were people like in two thousand three talking about this as an example of look, he's an asshole, and he hurts people. Like, did you take it that way that he was being crossing the line here? 
Nah, guys, I, I just thought Loki had a really good training camp leading into this match. He was on fire. <laughs> he looked really sharp. Um, but seriously, uh, he, it, this was... Uh, oh, for, okay, Alan in 2003 watching this, and also Alan in 2007 re-watching this one night with Rob Naylor and posting about it on the CZW fans message board. Both those times, really cool. Loved it. Awesome match. Oh my god, that's the greatest thing ever. Um, Adelaide 2018 was... First of all, was why I don't remember Derange getting so much offense on Loki early in the match. And then, yeah, I was like, holy crap. He is, like, legitimately kicking him in the skull over and over. And there is a very scary look of desperation on Derange's face as he's trying to get a hand up to save his life um and also just as well the just the idea that it's deranged that loki is doing this too and it's not a good look in 2018 after mr key uh backed out of his match with matt riddle the 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 match with the aforementioned training camp um it just it really it doesn't add up to the guy being anything other than a bully um sadly and i really want to like loki i had like a uh, when he was over in, in wxw last year he was he he really rubbed everyone the right way like he was ever from management to young wrestlers to experienced wrestlers everyone was full of praise for him he was just so highly thought of throughout the whole weekend um and I had a conversation with him, maybe like a 40-minute conversation. Just the two of us. It was mainly him talking, him staring directly in my eyes the whole time. Um, the most intense 40 minutes of my life. Oh, God. Um, but he came off really well in it in a, in a lot of ways. There were a few things I flagged in my head as, okay, <laughs> I really like uh, we talked about... Uh, <laughs> Finn Balor doing the uh, the Warriors way as a finishing move and he looked to be dead in the eye and he goes I grew up in the New York hip-hop scene <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. He goes, sorry I live I live much too clo- oh wait listen hold on I live much too close to low key to be laughing about this <laughs> so I'm, I'm so so I'm so I am I I'm staying completely out of this. I have no opinion on anything you're saying, Alan. But go on. <laughs> I came up in the New York hip hop scene. <laughs> and, um, when you rip somebody off like that, that's a no no. <laughs> that's a no no. <laughs> but, but he did he did he did talk about how he had. Gr- I have great respect for Fergal. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, like, there were, a, I, I jest about that, but there was a lot of things where I was nodding in agreement talking to this guy, and I agree with a lot of the philosophies he was espousing, and we had a re- really in-depth discussion about um, the reasons why he has the rep he does in certain for certain things and certain things he kind of brings and certain things he believes and he tries to hold up to but uh, then when you go and see something like what happened with Riddle this year it's just completely indefensible and uh, yeah and 
it's just then seeing this in hindsight and hearing of knowing of other incidents, the Sammy Callahan incident, just like it just it just makes you think, okay, he says one thing, but there's a part of him that makes him do another. And whether it's he's just going too far in the, maybe it's like so deranged sort of slightly botches this move and it just I don't know, maybe set Loki off and just a way that he feels stuff should look a certain way and he feels like the sport was disrespected or whatever. But even still, you, you got to be able to restrain yourself. And he, he also he also slapped Cloudy extremely hard as well. I, I well, think Alan, oh, I think I don't know the the open hand slap uh, when you're probably going out there like under the. Needing it to make good, I I don't know. I've seen as well. Like I'm just used to watching a lot of Japanese wrestling. I've seen many a slap that hard in my time. I, I would trust that Loki is able to slap someone hard and do it in a way that won't knock them out. I I'm sure there's a way to uh, target a slap to a certain part of I don't know the side of the neck or the jaw where you're you're not going to just knock a guy out. Um, like we saw with like the Kenta. Samoa Joe, Brian Danielson slapping in that three way, but um, so yeah, I I don't know, I don't know if I like you said, if he was working it, if this was all safe, then bravo, like absolutely bravo. But if this was just him flipping out and having a fit in the match and taking it out on deranged, it's really bad. I think my, my my thought on this is I think Alan um, really put the nail on the head when he said, you know, it's deranged. Like, it's not for me. The problem for me isn't so much that Loki is stiff because to me, I feel like if a guy is really stiff but they're consistent, at least you can kind of prepare for that. I feel like he wouldn't have done this to Brian Danielson. You know, he wouldn't have done this to Christopher Daniels. Yeah, and that's that's the shitty thing. Like you're taking advantage of somebody because you know they are not as powerful as you. Like, okay, maybe Derange is more likely to botch something than Brian Danielson, but I still feel like you wouldn't do this to Brian Danielson. You would show him more respect, and doing that seems like a bully behavior. Like you're doing this because you can get away with it. No one's you're well, not. You can get away with it physically with the other guy, and you can also get away with it based on your standing versus theirs. Exactly, both both settings, and so that's the thing that kind of bugged me, which is like, don't you know if you're gonna be stiff, be stiff, but don't be a fucking bully to this guy, especially when deranged. I think something me and Matt have found rewatching Ring of Honor, all these shows from the beginning, is deranged is one of the more underrated and more selfless guys in that. He is always like selling huge 10 out of 10 and stooging for basically anybody he wrestles. He's one of the most selfless wrestlers and how he makes other people look good. So the idea that even if he, yeah, I, like Alan said, Derange did kind of botch one spot a little bit. And shortly after that's when the beating happened. But it's like, you should know this guy. This guy is not like a training school flunky. He's a very giving guy with some talent and, to just take advantage of him like that, yeah, it leaves it leaves a sour taste in your mouth. And it sucks because I feel like some people now, like people that weren't watching a lot of low-key back then, you know, we're all getting a bit older. Um, some people just know low-key now as the guy who's an asshole. And I, I hear people like go, ooh, like low-key, yeah, what a joke. It's like he's a great wrestler. It's just he's a prick too. Like 
I feel like when some people when when he did do that thing where low key um he pulled out of the Matt Riddle match, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, like Mineral Suzuki is a huge upgrade on Low Key, and they were acting like Low Key is like a bad wrestler. I was really looking forward to Low Key versus Matt Riddle, and it, it's sad that like to some people now, I feel like used to be Low Key people would saw Low Key is like a difficult prickly personality, but a great worker. And I feel like there's a generation of people now that are only going to know him as the weird odd duck that can be a prick. Yeah, and also, and, sad. and also, just to go back to what you're saying, even if this was completely like planned in the sense of like Loki said to Derange, like I'm gonna kick the shit out of you. Like, do you think that Derange would have ever said no to that? You know what I mean? Yeah, so, like, so that, so I'm that, sure the match was gonna go in that direction anyway. Yeah. I'm sure there were, was gonna be some crazy stuff that Loki was gonna do to him that Derange was gonna sell really well, but. It just the way it happens. Just to elaborate a little bit on the, the sequence, deranged goes for a cartwheel into basically to go up into electric chair position, which is is a spot you you'd commonly see. But when he when he I don't know if he just didn't jump high enough off the cartwheel, but he goes up onto Loki's shoulders and Loki starts to fall forward and there he's losing him a little. So instead of holding him up there for whatever the planned counter was going to be Loki literally just pancakes him face first into the ground grabs him by the head and starts punting him over and over in the face and as Deranged starts to put his hands up Loki does a capo kick which you've never seen him do a capo kick onto a guy on all fours and it just was basically this guillotine capo kick where he came down with his leg across the back of deranged head and then he proceeds to go into a sequence of a bunch of moves that I'm sure he was going to do anyway and they were probably going to have a lot of juice on them anyway but it was the vociferousness of, of how it came about and when it came in the match it just didn't seem like it was it was what deranged was prepared for yeah it definitely yeah. definitely did not seem that way no <laughs> and but as a match just to sum up i i was kind of like a proud papa for the first few minutes because we we liked deranged here at through the years and you don't expect deranged to get like three minutes of uninterrupted offense on low key but that's how the match started, and he Derange was, like Matt was saying, he was doing exciting things. He was working over the shoulder, which makes sense because this was Loki's return match, at very least at his return to Ring of Honor, maybe in general, after his shoulder injury that he had at the FWA Ring of Honor co-promoted show. And a surprise return because the, the idea was that he wasn't going to be back until August. Yeah, and Gabe even says on commentary, you know, key shoulders only at 75%. Who knows if that's true or just to add juice to the match. But it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it, it's still, it's a spectacle to watch. It's just weird that's like three minutes of deranged dominating and then like three minutes of low key beating the living shit out of deranged and hitting basically every low key big move or, or a lot of them, spinning key crusher, all the rest. It's definitely something worth watching just as a spectacle. Um, it got the cra- my- it got the crowd going. That that's for sure. <laughs> look at my no- oh, and also for some reason, Loki will only do comedy with Special K because like um, Slugger, he grabs Slugger's balls to break a bear hug. Like like 
th- those are the kind of things you only see Loki doing when he's with Special K, like that angle where he pretended to take the drug and get high. Was, like, wasn't there wasn't there controversy about that last Special K match that he had with Loki that they had with Loki back from February about him being a little bit too rough with them? Also, I don't even remember. All I know is again, I I when I did research for this, I I this isn't even something that like was, you know, 10 years after the fact, people revisited it. was like, I found message board posts from 2003 where people were like, ooh, I just saw that deranged match. Loki's an asshole. So definitely even even in 2003, he was getting that rep that on the wrong night, he could take liberties with guys and maybe not be a great guy to work with. Yeah. But I guess the only other thing to say about this match is Elax made a return as Special K's entourage. Doug says, I thought he was in rehab. Um, Brian XL also back. Yes. Also, do you, do you think it was weird that um, this is the first show, this is the biggest show in Ring of Honor history, and almost like the uh, the video thing where they do the video highlight mistake again, they open the show in a way exactly like the open era of Honor begins. They have a comic like group come out un- unplanned and hijack the show. And, you know, the announcer like, Oh, this is a part of the show. This isn't what ring of honor is out is about. And then they have a dour New Yorker beat the shit out of them that, you know, basically he just, that's Gabe's idea for new markets is have a comedy character th- and say, he's not really part of the show when they're part of the show. Every, every event that ring of honor runs and then have a very self serious ass kicker, kill the guys there there is something to that but of course this is a little this is a lot i mean you know forget you know trying to put aside the fact that there might actually have been something really bad happening here um it's this is a much better version of that in the sense that yeah. it's not as aggressively angry and also it's a major return of you know arguably the biggest star that they've had so it, it's it's not quite just that formula but i see what you're saying it's a very special unannounced return to get low-key when you're not expecting low-key. Even if it's only a six-minute match, you're still – that's a nice bonus you know, if you come to the show. Yeah. Um, next, we're treated to Christopher Daniels on – from we're told from Japan. He's backstage in Japan apparently. He's wearing a new Japan T-shirt. So what do you, you mean know apparently? <laughs> well, you never know. I think he's in Japan, but – you never know. He's, I mean, he's wearing the new Japan T-shirt, so it seems pretty legit. Uh, one more proof? Do you need? Well, there's even more proof because he's talking. <laughs> he said he had to Koji Kanemoto's phone. Exactly. I was about to say he's talking to Allison Danger on the phone, and he we can hear him say, "Don't worry about it. It's Koji Kanemoto's phone." So I like the implication that Christopher Daniels, a true heel, is using Koji Kanemoto's long distance minutes here, maybe without his knowledge. <laughs> uh, Daniels tells Alice in Danger to make a mysterious someone, quote, the offer, unquote, and to keep calling him back, tell him the status of what else is happening on the show. Daniels then counts himself down. This is the classic Ring of Honor trope where (laughs) you pretend that, you know, that the promo hasn't started yet and that all the stuff will be cut out. We'll get more of it later. So he's like, three, two, one. Daniels then starts his promo. He says, Ring of Honor is running their biggest show ever right now. He gives himself the credit for Ring of Honor's success. He says he's in Japan, but he's heard the biggest story of the night so far is the return of Loki. Daniel says he got rid of Steve Carino by aligning himself with those closest to Carino, and he's going to do the same to Loki using his paid assassin, Dan Moff. Da- Daniel says if Moff doesn't win the number one contendership tonight, he'll go after it himself. The promo ends with Daniels telling us that he's um, going to get more phone updates from Allison Danger. He'll talk to us later. 
So that's another thing. Daniels is going to be kind of like a through line throughout the show. Keeps giving us updates. It's interesting that he cuts a full heel promo here after he was basically a complete baby face on the last show. It's interesting how they keep going back and forth on that. Yeah, like they they, and again, we heard months ago in the Observer at this time that the plan was for Daniels to turn babyface in. Uh, I forget if it was in the Carino feud or with the future Punk feud, but. It seems like for some reason they keep hedging their bets on that. But um, we get another promo, a very brief video promo for the Field of Honor tournament, except it doesn't even say it's a tournament. It, we just get rap music playing and it telling us it's coming soon. And there is a clip of the clip that's during this graphic is Matt Stryker versus BJ Whitmer, which ends up being the finals of the Field of Honor tournament. So I don't know if that's some purposeful foreshadowing or just a complete coincidence. But I found that interesting. That's probably the one of the few things about the Field of Honor tournament that is interesting. Yes, literally the only thing that's interesting about the Field of Honor is that foreshadowing. Next, before the next match, we get a Steven DeAngelis in the ring again. And he does a WrestleMania-style in-ring announcement where he tells the fans, this is the largest crowd in Ring of Honor history. So he's doing like the old Howard Finkel thing, like, congratulations, you are part of the 1,200 people. <laughs> and... Uh, he tells them to get on their feet and, and give get, themselves a big ovation. Can we get confirm that number? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure can, 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 we, can we get – do they have an overhead shot where we can actually count the seats? What is the Rex Plus's football capacity? That's what I Zane want to know. Zane Resloff For, says it was 733 people, <laughs> and I, I, I saw the papers. I saw them. Yeah. As Chris Daniels called it, the WrestlePlex. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys catch that? That's, oh, what they should, that's what they should call suplexes from now on. <laughs> That corner of the Rexplex is the Wrestleplex. Like, for people who have never seen a show inside the Rexplex, it's a very weird building to watch shows being held in because it's this big multi-purpose recreation center. So, like, in certain camera angles, you can see other lit-up parts of this giant building that a wrestling show is not taking place in. Like, it's all open. And wasn't the Rexplex, or it might have been another building where, like, some shows you could hear noise from other sporting events. No, like that cons- was, yeah, that was that Chicago one. That they oh, yeah. No, but a they couple ha- of times. They yeah. had it at the Rexplex, too, because I think they had like maybe like a roller rink. They definitely had like a, a skateboard ramp because they've had fights on the ramp on other shows. And there probably, probably was like arcades and stuff there. So It's like, amazing it- that the atmosphere was always as good as it was in the Rexplex, considering it is such a, I would assume, big open venue. Yeah, I agree yeah, with like, that. Also, uh, it's it's I, I'm frustrated that I never got to see an ROH show at the Rexplex because first of all, I got into ROH when I got back to the city from um, um, college upstate, um, and I graduated in May of 2005, which was right after they had their last show at the Rexplex that February. So I never got to see an ROH show at the Rexplex. So it's one of my regrets from the early ROH era. I've, the, the Rexplex actually was in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, I grew up in Staten Island, so the Rexplex was probably like a 20-minute drive from like my parents' wow. house. So uh, maybe 25 minutes. So I could have gone if I had been living there at the time, but just a little too late. How do your parents not go? They could have seen great matches like Matt Stryker taking on Jimmy Ray, which is the next match on this show. Um, <laughs> Matt Stryker defeats Jimmy Ray via pinfall for in eight minutes, 46 seconds after a Death Valley driver. Uh, Matt, I mean, Alan, one of, uh, one of the things on the show is I'm like average on Matt Stryker. I feel like Matt's has seen his performances as a little bit above average. 
Where do you stand on this match and on 2003 Matt Stryker? Uh, very much better than memory. Um, Matt Stryker, I haven't seen much of his stuff from this time in recent years. This is the only match I can think of off the top of my head that I've, I've rewatched recently. And he's way more in line with my 2018 tastes than my 2003 tastes. That's for sure. So I enjoyed this match a lot. One interesting thing that I, I did some research on with regard to this match is, uh, gentlemen, you, if you look at Matt Stryker here, um, you can see him being a man who might have a couple of kids that he, like, I don't know, drops off to soccer practice and goes and uh, uh, after work drinks a few beers with his buds and um, uh, does, you know, like, keeps maintains his garden and uh, uh, does different... Uh, I, I'm coming up with terrible examples of things <laughs> that really grown-up adults do like in their in their mid to late thirties and early forties, they, they meet with I'm their, fi- they meet, they meet with their financial planners and diversify their portfolios. You could say that <laughs> things like that. Yes, of course. Um, Matt Stryker looks like a guy who would be partaking in all these activities. Correct. Yes. Yes. I'm about to sicken you. Do you know what age Matt Stryker was at this point in time? No. I'm not he even going to guess. 24 years old. <laughs> <laughs> the unibrow adds like 18 years to his age. Uh, I'm sure it does. <laughs> he was. I was shocked. I was because I was like I was watching this and I was like, God, I wonder what age Matt Stryker was here because it would shock me if he was like a lot younger than I am now because he just I feel uh, right now that I am. A hell of a lot younger an individual than Matt Stryker looks on this vi- video I'm watching. Well, no, he is seven. No, sorry, nine years younger than me. Well, we're we're gonna have some fun with ages a little bit later because I have some other stuff saved up for that. I Ooh, me too. <laughs> yeah, oh, maybe it's the same stuff. Fun. We'll see. Fun with ages. That yes. sounds bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Old ages. Next year's Ring of Honor podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, Jesus. <laughs> All right. I get, now that's a Justin Shapiro-level joke. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I actually like this match better than I thought I would. Um, it's nothing – I mean, it's an eight-minute match. It's nothing incredible, but – I was complaining recently about the Matt Stryker, uh, Chad Chance Beckett match, where I felt like it was Matt Stryker doing a lot of very, like, low-level stuff, and then, like, just in terms of excitement, and then Chance Beckett never really doing anything, like, showcasing anything that he can do. And I feel like this match, you get a couple minutes of Matt Stryker tentacle wrestling, and then he's very generous about, like, Jimmy Rave gets a lot of offense here. It feels like Jimmy Rave gets to do kind of the things he would like to showcase. And this feels like a lot of matches between a guy who knows he has his spot in a company versus a guy where, you know, Jimmy Rave, this isn't his first Ring of Honor match, but it's still him being a regular is not set in stone. So it feels like, you know, Strikers basically saying, like, do what you want to do. Like, show this is your chance to shine. I'm going to win the match, but... You know, you see a lot of Rave getting into moves in unique ways. Rave, like, doing a lot of rope running more than you might see in a lot of Matt Stryker matches. It's a lot more of of Stryker, I mean, of Rave stuff. The only thing that was, there was a, a few points that looked a little scrambly and ugly, like 
sequences that didn't always fit quite together. Nothing like it was an outright botch. I do think one thing that's I feel bad for Jimmy Rave is one of Jimmy Rave's signature moves is he just does he has the guy almost like Shibata's penalty kick where the opponent is sitting up on the mat running start but instead of Shibata kicking the guy in the chest um Rave does a running knee to the chest basically that, that the like annou- that the announcers always mistakenly call the shining wizard <laughs> exactly that's that's what I'm getting to yeah. is Unfortunately, especially during this period where so many wrestlers were doing the Shining Wizard, it was the hot, like, uber move of this period. Like, Gabe keeps calling it the Shining Wizard, which is horrible because if you call it the Shining Wizard and fans expect it's a Shining Wizard, it looks like a really shitty Shining Wizard. If you know what it's meant to be, a running knee to the chest, it just looks like what it is. So I feel bad because I bet you that's not even the only announcer that ever was like, oh, Jimmy Rave just did a really shitty Shining Wizard. And it's like... No, he's actually trying to do something different. I think they always did it until um, Dave Prasak came along, basically. <laughs> uh, so, Matt, what did you think about the? What did you think about the match? Um, I don't have too much to add. Um, I, I noted it's definitely shorter and faster paced than most match striker matches, and it definitely felt like it was worked like a like an opening match, and it did a good job of that. So, I thought it was solid. It didn't really have the time to be anything more than that. Um, I did note that. Uh, they had dueling chants at the beginning, and I uh, so I note it. They they started just a couple months earlier at the epic encounter in April, and already by July they're completely devalued. So good job, ROH fans, with that. Um, they also did. They also noted the top five, which was um, number five was BJ Whitmer, number four is Dan Moff, number uh, number three is Christopher Daniels, number two is CM Punk, and number one is Paul London. So I guess because Daniels is not there and Punk is feuding with Raven, Cole Cabana gets to be in that four-way and Homicide 2 with Whitmer and Moff. So that's uh, so lucky them. But uh, but yeah, that's pretty much it. This just It was a solid, fun, opening-style match, but not all that much to it. The only other thing I'll say, something that occurs during the match, is the announcers, they're commenting on that Field of Honor preview video, and they have no idea what the Field of Honor is, which is another one of those annoying little tropes where the announcers are the last people to know anything. We'll see later, someone that shouldn't know more than them apparently knows way more than they do about what the Field of Honor is. And I do like, after Gabe and Doug talk about how they don't know what the Field of Honor is, Doug does say then say... I think it sounds good, though. All you know what this is so far is a name, Field of Honor. You don't know what it is. Like, it doesn't even – they haven't told you anything, but Doug's like, I think it sounds good. It's like, Doug, well, you are very optimistic. Maybe he just meant that the name has a ring to it. <laughs> it does. Literally a ring, a wrestling ring, hmm? And speaking of ringing, some wrestlers were probably having ringing in their ears after the next match because we had an eight-man tag team weapons match. The Texas Wrestling Academy of Don Juan, Fast Eddie, Hot Stuff Hernandez, and Rudy Boy Gonzalez defeated the Carnage Crew. The first time ever all four members were together, DeVito, Just Incredible, Loke, and Masada, in 12 minutes, 5 seconds, when Hernandez pinned Masada after a border toss onto a bunch of open chairs. This match was freaking insane. Um, I still feel a little bit weird. I've said this about a prior 
Texas Wrestling Academy versus Carnage Crew match where it still feels like a little abusive to see these young trainees that probably did not dream of being hardcore wrestlers, like doing these very wild, hardcore, crazy matches. But in terms of just, again, another spectacle, this is this is one of those matches Gabe, I think, called a car crash on commentary. And he's com- he, sometimes he overuses that. He's completely right here. It's a car crash in all the best ways and in a couple of the bad ways. Just um, Fast Eddie takes a German suplex onto an open chair. Uh, Hot Stuff Hernandez throws Fast Eddie. Like he, he does the thing where, oh, Hot Stuff Hernandez is going to chuck his partner onto a guy on the outside, except Fast Eddie mostly misses the guy and splats on the hardwood floor. Um, Masada in this match is basically Cactus Jack, Necro Butcher levels of reckless with his own body. He takes so many insane chair bumps onto open chairs, including the end with the border toss onto open chairs. I think he gets hip tossed off the apron onto open chairs. Just like he's, he's just insane. He's trying to make up for lost time. He's hoping he can get another booking maybe. Um, yeah, this match was just a crazy brawl full of very crazy weapon spots. And I would say it, it was probably too dangerous in a bad way. In the Observer, Dave wrote that Hot Stuff Hernandez was out on his feet after he went for a tope and hit his head on the floor. And then Just Incredible in the match just disappears. And it's because, according to Dave, he walked off during the match because he suffered a stinger after his arm went numb after taking a bump into a ladder. So two guys get injured in this match, at least. And surprisingly, Masada isn't one of them. Um, Alan, what did you like? I don't even know how how high your taste is for the for these kinds of matches, but what do you think about just a very violent, crazy match? Um, my it's not my cup of tea, but I love this. I suppose is the best way to describe it. It's this is a I did, this was just a really fun, especially at the time, innovative hardcore match where these guys just went all out and nothing. There was there wasn't too much stuff where it was oh they're setting up spots and oh this is you're just waiting around it looks phony like these guys were just it felt like these guys were at war at each, with each other and all these various things were coming into play in the midst of this war as like they're battling it out and they're just there happens to be a load of chairs in front of them now so they're going to fall through these chairs and they're just diving from every side of the screen onto each other and there's all kinds of craziness happening and it seems natural i suppose is the best way to describe it unlike a lot of prop filled hardcore matches and um it wasn't I, i'm not a deathmatch guy because I'm, I'm not really into the uh, the gore aspect with the needles and the fluorescent light tubes and the cuts and all that kind of stuff so I, I generally stay away from death matches because I'm just too squeamish um, so it didn't have any of that kind of stuff in it so yeah uh, best Masada match ever <laughs> <laughs> Alan was I mean Matt I can't make see why did I make, you two are different human beings well like I said I have an Irish accent so that's why yeah, I know that's another pre-show bit um, Matt is this the best Masada match ever? <laughs> so I actually, so I think I like this match less than the two of you. I, I still found it, you know, exciting and innovative. They have some like cool spots. One spot that you didn't mention was, so Don Juan uh, holds two chairs on 
either side of Masada, who's crouched on the top rope. And Eddie and Hernandez both come off the opposite turnbuckles to kick the chairs into it. But um, Eddie jumps after Hernandez, so the move doesn't fully hit. Luckily for Masada, but like yeah, they they have all sorts of innovative stuff. You know that the you know the throwing power bomb onto the chairs that ended the match is insane. Um, there's lots of insane stuff, but. I did not quite like it as much as the one from Pittsburgh. I think because, I mean, I think that match just felt like it had more connective tissue. Like it just felt like it flowed a little better. Even like this really felt like, I guess it was natural and that there wasn't a lot of setup, but it still felt like a lot of spots. I didn't quite feel the level of hatred that I felt in that other match. Probably the blood played a part also. I mean, these guys, you know, went all out. They went insane. It was extremely memorable. I've not taken anything away from them. I just didn't quite – it just didn't quite hit me as much as that other one did. Um, And I still kind of disagree with you about the, you know, the guys who didn't think they would ever be in matches like this. Because if you're getting into wrestling at the time that Don Juan and Fast Eddie and Hot Stuff Hernandez did, you know, the hardcore wrestling was a big, big part of the puzzle. So – I assume that they were looking forward to being in matches like this. And, uh, you know, th- these were pretty memorable, I have to say. I, I-, I remembered this match for a long time. And I- it's-, it's cool that they kind of put it early in the show because it, you know, it didn't quite have the intensity of maybe some of the, the later, uh, you know, the-, the brawls later in the show. But it's still, you know, it- it's still- it, was a- it was good timing for the crowd to take it really seriously. So, um, so it was cool. I probably just... It just didn't quite hit me as much as as maybe it would have if it was uh, you know excuse me as it the uh, the one from Pittsburgh did. No, and I, I can understand. Like I, I think you're right. It's not as good of of a wrestling match as the Pittsburgh one. I think for me, I'm not really expecting these to be wrestling matches. I'm just so it it upping the anti anti on craziness made me happy. Although. You were right, like there's that big botch spot with the double drop kick where one guy completely angel dusts it and misses his cue, and that even gets a you fucked up chant. I'll, I also I want to correct myself. I think I said Don Juan hip tossed Masada through chairs. It was no, it was a swinging neck breaker. Um, yeah, I, it it was it was crazy, and you know it's it was just crazy spots. It wasn't like necessarily a cohesive match or a hate feud hate filled blood feud brawl but your mileage will mer- will vary on what you think of that one thing i, I want to mention though i thought was uh it kind of worked out bad even though i guess it couldn't be helped is that in the middle of the match like rudy boy and just incredible brawl to the back and the announcers are like we've gotten word they're in the back blah 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 and then because credible gets legit hurt he never comes back but rudy boy does so it comes off that root like rudy boy gonzalez kicked just incredible's ass which seems like i would say it feels a little weird like if i was i know that's just what happened but if i was booking this i wouldn't have wanted just incredible coming in with so much heat and then it comes off in this match like Oh, you got the worst of a brawl with an old, a middle-aged Rudy Boy Gonzalez. Justin I, got a Justin I got another Justin got another huge pop here. Respect of Rudy Boy Gonzalez, my yeah. good friend Rudy Boy Gonzalez. Did you make him cry? <laughs> no, he seemed really. He seemed just really like he could not have cared less about me caring about him. <laughs> Ju- Justin got another really huge pop here. By the way, not quite as big as at the other two shows, but people are really digging Justin Credible. I have yeah, to say, yeah, like that's another. That's a great point. Like again, for people that 
like this might be the high point of Justin Credible's career in some ways. Like people are just really happy to see him on the indies again, like to a surprising degree. Um, and of course, this wouldn't be a, a fast Eddie match if Gabe didn't mention that fast Eddie is legally blind. But here he gets a really classic shoe in where he goes. Um, fast Eddie gets hit at one point with like a cane or a crutch, and Gabe says, "Good thing he didn't see that one coming." Because he's legally blind. And it's just like, my God, Gabe. Like, I don't know if I should applaud you or jeer you here. Because at least there you tried. Like, I don't know. Um, that brings us to a completely different kind of wrestling match. And that would be the Purists. The, the debuting tag team of the Purists. John Walters and Tony Mamaluke defeat the outcast killers of Diablo Santiago and Oman Tortuga in nine minutes, 31 seconds when Walters and Mama Luke made Tortuga submit to some kind of weird combination submission where one had them in a leg lock and the other had them in like a full Nelson arm lock. Uh, Matt, th this was kind of sold. Like the announcers even talked about this was going to be like, Oh, this is just a, a showcase match for the purists. It didn't really turn out to be that, did it? Like, way more competitive than you would think. Yeah, and I think they were trying to play off the fact that they were building up the Ring Crew Express versus uh, Prince Nana and, uh, what, Jimmy Jack Cash from the previous, uh, or one of the previous shows as being a squash and then the Ring Crew Express won, surprisingly. So they were trying to play off that a little bit. Um, but, you know, they didn't quite go all the way with it. But, yeah, the match was surprisingly long and the Outcast Killers got a surprising amount of offense and it was surprisingly not bad at all. So far, the Outcast Killers haven't really gotten any offense in any way in ROH, and suddenly they're being treated like a real tag team. Unfortunately for uh, the purists, John Walters is no Matt Thompson as far as being uh, Tony Mamaluke's tag team partner. <laughs> but, you know, he has his own charms. Um, he, Gabe actually calls Walters a can't-miss star here. Um, yeah. I mean, he was, he did get a lot of mainstream publicity about seven or eight years later, right? <laughs> so I guess he was a star for a time, but... Yeah, uh, I wrote that as a note too, because Gabe uses that like more and more, and sometimes he's right, like he'll use that for the Briscoes, but then sometimes he'll use that for a John Walters, like where he doesn't just say he's a future star, he's, as Matt just said, a can't-miss future star. Yeah, which usually you save to guys who show like promo skills and stuff at an early age, right? Like stuff like that. Um, some sort of personality. And Walters has not quite uh, gotten to that point yet. He, but he is good in the ring. He, he definitely does like the Matt stuff that Gabe clearly likes well. I mean, and I like it too, as I've shown a few times so far on here. So it's um, – so I, I didn't actually – this match was better than I remember. Let's put it that way. I remember it just being kind of a dull showcase for kind of a dull tag team. But it was actually <laughs> a pretty solid match with kind of a dull tag team. And, um, um, like Omar does like a stretch into a drop kick, uh, by Diablo on Mama Luke, which I thought was cool. Um, you know, just, just, they did a, um, poetry in motion, which maybe was a, uh, to honor Jeff Hardy coming in, um, <laughs> did it better than Jeff Hardy did it later, by the way. Oh my God. Um, no, he definitely did. Come on. Um, no, but, I think crazy K did, crazy K did a very... Very not good poetry in motion in that match where we will we will talk about. All right, yeah. So so wait. So what? One of the, one of whoever did that one in the Jeff Hardy match <laughs> did it worse than the Outcast Killers. Let's say that. 
Um, but it was more entertaining and competitive than I'd guessed, but still not much. You know, still nothing that you have to go ever watch. Um, the purists would not be long for this world. As a tag team, as human beings, they're still both alive as far as I know. Thank God. Yeah. Uh, Alan, what did you think of the first of the sto- the first match in the storied three match career of the purists? Um, well, first I want to say on the Outcast Killers, this made me want to get in a time machine and right the wrong of their ROH career because they clearly got jibbed. They were a lot more talented than I was led to believe as an ROH fan at the time. The Outcast Killers should have got a shot at some point. They showed me something here. I was very impressed. And I want to ask you guys a question. Did you spot how uh, the purists career as a tag team in Ring of Honor got off to a very, very bad start on this show. Like, like, uh, like during their entrance? Very early upon when you see them on this tape. Hmm. Uh, I, I would love to hear where you're going with this. Literally, as they come through the curtain, Tony Mameluke puts his fist out to fist bump John Walters but John Walters turns his head at the exact moment that the fist went out, not seeing it, and proceeds to walk on. And Tony Mameluke slowly raises his fist up into like a black power pose. <laughs> oh my trying to cover for the fact that he got <laughs> completely left hanging on the fist. Oh it's man. A thing of beauty. I was like, oh, their tag team coordination clearly needs some work. Maybe that's why they acted so surly after the match. They, like, during the handshake, they were, like, hesitant about it. They just smacked the outcast, kill his hands. I was like, are these guys supposed to be heels? And I guess, I guess they were. And it, it, I, thought the, I, I thought the match, like, it was a fine average match, but I agree that the outcast killers looked better than I thought. And I thought they actually kind of outshined the purists. Not that the purists did anything really that wrong. It's just... I thought they were getting the better reactions and doing the flashier offense, and that was, I think, what the crowd wanted to see. And it's, it's. I think Gabe kind of did the purists a disservice here because he 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 basically says this is going to be a squash match for the purists. He, he says, you know, this is just a showcase. And then through the match, he starts getting more surprised, and Doug has to point out like the Outcast Killers are doing good here, and. It, instead of it really helping the outcast kill us, to me it more made the purists look bad. Like Gabe basically said, "Oh, this is a squash," and then it turned out not to be a squash. And to me, it kind of was like, "Oh, the purists had a tougher time with the lowest pushed like wrestlers in the entire promotion." When when you th- when I feel like we should make a name for this. When we think something is going to be a squash and it's not a squash, we could call it a zucchini. Exactly. This was a real zucchini of a match. You, know? <laughs> you think you're getting some nice butternut, and it's just stringy old spaghetti. But, you know, not bad tasting zucchini. No, not at all. After the match, uh, Daniel <laughs> Marcos come out to us. That's a, that's a rare food analogy on this show that's not from me. Um, <laughs> after the match, Dunn and Marcos come out to a solid reaction. Maybe not a carnage crew, just incredible reaction, but a good reaction. Uh, they're laughing at the outcast killers. Marcos gets on the mic and mocks the outcast killers a little. Gabe on commentary is pushing that maybe the Ring Crew Express is getting cocky now that they're on a winning streak. And I love the idea of like a one match winning streak is going to the <laughs> Ring Crew Express's head. That like the idea they've won one match, so now they've gone Hollywood. I, 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 I think that's a, that's a really great classic wrestling gimmick right there, actually. Yeah, I, I actually <laughs> that I don't been know. amazing. 
Yeah, uh, I'll, I, correct I, that, I'll correct that wrong as well when I go back on my time machine. Well, well wait. I remember. It might have been in USWA. They sort of did this with Barry Horowitz. Like, he won a match and he became the winner, Barry Horowitz. Yeah, like, I think t- enough time has passed that anyone in – I know we have people in wrestling who uh, listen to the show. Like, use this gimmick, the idea of a guy who wins one match and then, like, it completely goes to his head. Like, make him the nicest, most humble wrestler in the world, but he loses a lot. <laughs> and then he wins one match and he's, like – he thinks he's the greatest thing of all time and just, like – for years, dines out. Like, remember that time I won that match? It's like, yes, Steve, that was three years ago. Like, I won that match. Like, hey, Trevor, New Japan have like eleven great young lions at the moment who lose every match. They should just take one of them and do this gimmick with them. Yeah, like one guy who he wins one match and he becomes like Hiromu or something like instantly. Yeah. And then all the other lions are like, "You won one match." He's like, "One more than you." He's, a, he's out there with two knee pads, two elbow pads, two <laughs> wrist tapes. Yeah, they're like he's just he's like Ahmed Johnson. He's got stuff all over him. Yeah, like lots of like rings and like necklaces, <laughs> and, and they start doing the Razor Ramon thing where he's like, "If you lose these necklaces." Uh, like, you know, he he uh he does the Bret Hart thing and he puts um a knee pad on a kid's knee, but he does it for like every of his like superfluous like all his way too many knee pads. So he's like going to like twelve kids in the front row. Yeah, and and like and you know like putting on a knee pad is kind of awkward. So it's like it takes a long time. This is perfect. <laughs> this is a great gimmick. <laughs> we just keep making it better and better. Yeah. Um, then Xavier comes out anyway, back to the show. <laughs> and for the this is the first time in four months Xavier comes out. So another surprise on the show. Ring of Honor trying to give a couple surprises between Loki and Xavier. He gets some welcome back chants, actually, which was a little surprising. The outcast killers leave the ring, and that leaves Xavier alone with the Ring Crew Express. The Express can furiously do the rock poses in Xavier's face, like just very intense. And he double clotheslines them for their troubles. Um, Xavier Cobra clutch suplex is done. Then he lifts Marcos for the kicks your ex goodbye slam, but he keeps him in that position. And before he slams him, he knees him like way up in the head, which looked pretty so cool. cool. Yeah, well, definitely. He should do that all the time. That was a really cool variation. So after he lays them out, Gary Michael Capetta comes to the ring. He asks Xavier what he's doing. Xavier, I think, I didn't quite hear, but I think he said, how can you have the greatest promotion in the company without Xavier? Yeah, it um, doesn't make any sense, but Xavier actually, Xavier was like, his promo was like really bad, like ridiculously bad. Yeah, he goes on to say, Xavier goes to say, how can you have the Field of Honor tournament with eight of the best wrestlers without Xavier? And this is goes back to, this is one of those weird moments where Earlier, the commentators have no idea one single detail about the Field of Honor tournament. Xavier hasn't been in the company for four months, and he knows it's a tournament with eight guys that's not doesn't involve him. Um, he got it direct from Feinstein. I guess. Yeah, well, that's something um, Gabe even actually says. Maybe he's close to the office, because Doug's wondering how Xavier knows this. Um, Xavier then has quickly burned through his goodwill because now he's getting AC Slater chance like a minute after he got welcome back chance. <laughs> uh he says he's here to get some damn respect and that he's back and better than ever. So interesting point in Xavier's career where basically Gabe's tries to do a reset on him. Like they wrote him out saying he had a concussion. But as I said in an earlier episode, I checked cage match. He was wrestling all during this absence from Ring of Honor. And, he, and Gabe brings him back and basically kind of starts him back in the mid card, even though he was a former champ. You know, because the Field of Honor tournament, if you, if, when we see who's in it, 
is a pretty much exclusively mid-carder tournament with the idea that would elevate one mid-carder maybe to an upper thing, and Xavier gets put in it. So, you know, for all the talk Gabe made where he kind of played up like, oh, the smart marks don't like Xavier and all this stuff, he kind of gave into that or or bought into it because he never pushes Xavier to the top ever again, nowhere close to that. And like I said, promo was really bad. Yeah, yeah, if there was a chance for Xavier to maybe get some momentum back, like I said, I, I, they probably would have chanted this regardless, but it's probably telling that it starts with Welcome Back and ends with AC Slater. Like, he, he didn't hold that, that, like, we're glad to see you enthusiasm very long. No. Um, next, we have Tom Carter in his final Ring of Honor match. It is the Circle of Life, and Xavier returns. A Tom Carter must leave. Um... Tom Cutter defeats Doug Williams via pinfall in 14 minutes, 22 seconds with a roll-up. Before I throw it to Alan, Ashley for thoughts on this match, to go into why is this Tom Cutter's last match, because I was wondering this, because there's a thing between the fact that he wins this match over a pretty big-name opponent, and it looks like we'll get to in a little bit, that they're building an angle for him. I was wondering, why did Tom Cutter leave? And the best I could find was a quote from, let me see if I can make sure, I always like to make sure I source the stuff and give proper credit. Oh, jeez. Actually, Alan, how about you start talking about your opinions on the match, because I uh, I need to find this quote. I was surprised at how over Doug was, and this again speaks to what a great reacting crowd this was, but Doug got a huge pop for his entrance. Crowd were delighted to see him. Um match was really good really really good they they clicked so well together which you expect two guys like doug williams and 2003 tom carter to to do um i'd like to have seen them wrestle again uh, i don't know if they ever did after this but i doubt it um because tom carter wrestled so frequently or infrequently after this but um yeah just really good technical stuff um if you like a lot of kind of stuff that's in vogue now with Zack Sabre Jr. I think you'll you'll like this match. Um, I enjoyed a, a moment towards the end of the match where Gabe is on this spiel of all spiels. He is going frantic a million miles an hour Gabe style making a point where he's just kind of just going in run-on sentences. And as he's in the midst of it where he starts talking about Tom Carter taking his career in another direction and achieve great success. And at that moment in time, Tom Carter is on the top rope and Gabe just kind of runs out of breath and he just screams. And it all depends on what he does here on the top rope. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. That's really putting a lot of pressure on this top rope maneuver. Um, But uh, it was, it was hilarious. Yep, this was a good match for Ranty Gabe because he also, I think this is the second straight show where Gabe um, alludes to the ongoing in WWE at this time, um, Lance Storm gimmick, where they like made him being boring an actual gimmick. Uh, Gabe uses this technical match to highlight the differences between Ring of Honor and WWE, saying like, Ring of Honor is for people who like to see holds and counter holds, not a place where people try and get fans to chant boring. Like he goes, like, Gabe literally goes like, how stupid is that? Which is about as snarky as he gets to WWE. He's usually not that inflammatory, but for some reason, the Lance Storm thing really seems to have rubbed him the wrong way. The idea that like 
they gave him that gimmick. Um, Matt, I found the quote, but I might as well Matt next. What do you think? What did you think about the match? I agreed with most of what Alan said. There were a couple of awkward moments, like when, um, um, like they do a series of reversals, and then Carter goes for like a moonsault press, and Doug kind of goes down too early. Um, so there's a little bit of that, but I thought that the I thought that the middle of the match wasn't so hot, but the beginning of the match was great. I always love Doug's like wrestling stuff. I just I always love it. He's great. The crowd loves his little crafty escapes from the wrist lock and all that stuff. It's I, I still find it refreshing when I when I see that mat wrestling because you really just you just don't see it in wrestling right now that sort of stuff um, in a, in the U.S. Um, so it's and Doug is so good at it. And Carter's good, too. I mean, obviously, he was a big deal there. Um, I like that um, they make a joke about the satellite, Daniel's promo, and <laughs> Gabe's like, we're getting big in the wrestling world. We've got our own satellite, which, I, you know, that's cute. Um, you mentioned this on Twitter a while ago, that Gabe sort of apologized for there being a match with no, um, with no issue. Um, he spends the first minute of this match basically saying w- people might be wondering why these two are wrestling for no real reason. Which is weird because there were a few matches on this show where they were wrestling for no real reason. Like two of the other matches so far on the show were that. Um, so I don't know why this match is particularly noteworthy in that regard. I mean, they did sort of build up that there was going to be a match between Carter and Stryker, right, on this show. Yeah. Uh, and they just they didn't really explain why it didn't happen. Um, I but hope you're not talking about the purest match because Matt, we established the reason was to establish the purest was a showcase <laughs> for them. That was the reason. That's you know what you got me. Um, <laughs> but they go, they have the dueling chance at the end. Um, you know, so it shows they really, really got the crowd back. Uh, Doug, you know, his selling is really good. He uh, he his because uh, Carter was working on his arm at different points. Did an arm breaker. Uh, he, he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't uh, hold the chaos theory bridge because of the injured arm. So that's all good stuff. Doug is always really good at the body part selling. Um, oh yeah, he's doing like he's in current modern 2018 wrestling. He's doing um, an angle in progress where he's kind of like thinks his career is over and he's battling a load of injuries and he thinks he's past it and he struggles after matches because of just various injuries and his selling of the different body parts as a part of this is just unbelievable like he grabs his neck during a match and oh no poor old man dog is just <laughs> his neck is done he's got shooting pains down his arm you can tell oh, it's so bad and it's just amazing selling yeah, he's always been great at that. Um, and even, you know, the ending of the match was when, when Carter did, like, a roll-up with the injured arm and got the three. Um, so I thought, like, the match sort of started out really strong. I wasn't really crazy about the middle. I thought it lost some steam. And then it got really great again at the end. So I think overall it was, it was a good match. And I, I, I love Doug Williams. He's, like, like Alan just mentioned, he's just so, so good. I really think that he could have been a star, actually, in WWE if they decided to go with him in any capacity. Obviously, I mean, it's probably too late now. Although, it, they wouldn't do, they could do a lot worse than hiring him uh, as a trainer, I'll say that, or an agent. And the way things are going, it wouldn't surprise me if he, if he got a gig like that. Yeah. I mean, even beyond WWE, just the idea of, you know, back in this era, the indies were not structured where a British guy could come over, get flown over frequently and get regular work. Like if Doug Williams came along today, 
he would be getting regular work in a bunch of U.S. Indies probably all the time. You know, there'd be no you know, no shortage of offers of, Hey, we'll fly you out. You can work for us on Saturday on these guys on Sunday where here, you know, Doug is the way just the Indies are structured in 2003. Doug, it has to be like a special attraction once in a while. You know, he can't really get momentum because he can only show up once every few months when ring of honor is able to fly him out. So yeah, it's, it's just the wrong time for Doug Williams to come up, unfortunately. But I actually did not like this match quite as much as you guys. And I don't, it's not the technical wrestling aspect because I, I feel like I'm getting a bad rap for not liking technical wrestling because I really like it. I just, um, I actually did not think Tuck Williams selling was as good as you guys did. I, I thought it was an example of selling where he only cared about it when it was really important, which was one moment, which was the finish. Like I felt like there were times where he was letting his arm kind of hang limply, but for the most part, he wasn't really like act showing me pain. It was more just, there wasn't a lot of instances of him not being able to do things he couldn't do normally or, or being like, ow, this is hurting me. It was more just, he wrestled his match and then the finish was the one moment where it was like, okay, the whole reason for the fit for the work is I can't hold the bridge on the chaos theory suplex and I drop it. And that's the one time you really like, I really felt like it played into the match. And I just feel like I, I felt like it's not that he knows old stuff. It's just, he didn't for my liking, he didn't commit to it as much. It's because he's such a tough guy. He was able to withstand it and suck it up for so long until it finally got to the point where it broke him and he lost the match. Simple it, Trevor. Exactly. <laughs> But I mean, he's uh, he's. He, I mean, it was still a saw a match. I thought was was solid, and I was actually just a little let down because I had really high expectations because I really like Doug Williams a lot. I like Tom Carter, and even going back to Gabe's explanation, like his whole purpose for the match was he said, you know, we don't have a reason other than we really wanted to see these two wrestle, and it does kind of feel like a dream match where Tom Carter is this big technical wrestling name from the era before. Ring of Honor in indie wrestling. The era, the, Williams the, is basically the, like the king of the UK. The era before Honor began. <laughs> exactly. The the uh, BH before yeah, Honor. Before Honor, uh, exactly. But, but yeah, but it, I mean, in a way, it is a dream match because Doug Williams, you know, is kind of like the king of his location and Carter's the king of his era. And this is this is Doug Carter. I mean, Tom not Doug Carter. They did not amalgamate in this <laughs> match. Um, Tom Carter's final Ring of Honor match. And I did find the quote. This is the best I could find. But I want to give credit where credit is due. All of a sudden, my scrolling isn't working. Every the the world does not want me to reveal Tom <laughs> Carter's thoughts on his leaving Ring of Honor. But actually, no. It is from the Two Man Power Trip podcast. Tom Carter did an episode of it. A couple of years ago, and this is Tom Carter on his short-lived Ring of Honor run. Tom says, for me personally, there was a lot of things going on right before the Doug Williams match. My child was born, and right after the Doug Williams match, my back injury, would flare, which would flare up every once in a while, did. And I can remember by the time I got home from the Doug Williams match, I couldn't get out of my car. 
my back was messed up so bad. I think I was laid up for a couple of days. And so me being with Ring of Honor, that pulled me out for a little while. And that was one of my last matches that I did while I considered while I was consistently wrestling. I just recognized that I had a family to provide for and that it was difficult, especially with my injury, that I had to look at opportunities differently. My time in Ring of Honor, I really enjoyed, and I liked the direction they were going with that pure wrestling division, and they were lining me up against some great guys. So, yeah, it's, it's just a Tom Carter was definitely looking like he was at least going to get a little bit of a mid-card push here, and it was just a bad luck of he got a back injury, and then it sounded like he just ended up thinking, well, I, I don't really need to be a full-time wrestler anymore, that I'm just going to do it, you know, for shits and giggles whenever I have a free moment. But this, this is kind of the end of Tom Carter as a regular, active, full-time wrestler. Not the worst way to go out. I mean, it was still a pretty solid match. Um, I do want to mention, when, since you said Doug Carter, uh, I like the idea of, like, tag teams that, um, that just, like, combine the names of the members of it. Like, imagine how much more successful the Road Warriors would have been if their tag team name was Mike Laurinaitis. <laughs> Or Animal Hawk. Yeah, Animal Hawk. Axe Smash. <laughs> um, that's, that's actually a good name. <laughs> it is. You, you, you were trying to be funny, but you actually did something good, Matt. Um, yeah. Like, uh, how you like that? You accidentally had a good idea when you were just trying for laughs. How do you feel about that? Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it <laughs> feels, feels, feels great, actually. I mean, I'm weirdly aggressive, but <laughs> after the, the match, we... But okay. I just think the... Uh, the um, the Hart Foundation could have been called Brett Neidhart. <laughs> Dynamite Bre- Smith would be the first <laughs> bulldog. The pause there made it like you had one more. Just like pause. Dynamite Smith. That was great. Um, uh, Jim Hart. Yeah, exactly. Jim Hart. By the end of the show, I will think of the funniest Jim, possible example. Jim, Jim Eugene Hart, a.k.a. Jim E. Hart. Yes. <laughs> mm, um. After the match, we get a poorly mic'd and lit segment of Alice in Danger behind the curtain, waiting to ask Tom Carter a second time to join the prophecy. So she's the he's the mysterious guy that was supposed to have an offer made to. For the second time, Tom Carter blows her off and just walks away, and that's the end of Tom Carter. So I presume there was supposed to be some kind of Tom Carter prophecy angle, and that's the end of it right there. But next, we're going to something much different. A number one contender's trophy four-corner survival match. BJ Whitmer defeats Colt Cabana, Dan Moff, and Homicide in 1345 when he pins Cabana after hitting a top rope Exploder 98. Alan, I think you should go first. That was me was clapping match. my hands and rubbing them together. Yeah, <laughs> this is the match. I think we're all going to have similar thoughts on this, but uh, Alan was so into this match, he DM'd me well, like he had just seen it, how crazy it was. Alan, what did you think of this four-corner match? And I proceeded to do a tweet where I kept the match secret and said I just watched a match from 15 years ago, which I loved at the time but wasn't expecting to hold up. And, oh, my God, it just blew past my memories of it. And, yeah, it was fantastic. The best four-way dance I've ever seen. And I put it ahead clearly of the generico Nick Jackson Abushi jigsaw match which clearly wow wow i I shouldn't say clearly as in it's a lot better but in my mind it's 
definitely better, if that makes sense. Well, Meltzer, so, did, you, Meltzer did just say we saw the best match ever by far, so I guess it makes sense <laughs> that that sort of thing can happen. Dave. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, the four-way was amazing. Like, I... Uh, I'm, I'm struggling to put it into words. This... Because at the time, it was, it kind of was the baseline for what all future ROH four ways were judged off. It was it was one that people always hearken back to. But at the same time, for me, I kind of thought it was something that would fall into a lot of the kind of ROH four way tropes that we saw over the years in in a big way because of the fact that I did think of it as this kind of baseline match. I know there was the the Pittsburgh match a few months earlier that is also very highly thought of. I think that is was the Pittsburgh match the first one or that was um, definitely that was in, the, in terms of inspiring. I mean, there was obviously four ways like crowning a champion stuff but in oh, terms yeah, of yeah. in terms of reg- of it being like a show a thing on every mid-card mat i mean every show in the mid-card yeah that pittsburgh one was the one that i think made gabe decide that like there needs to be one of these on every show but this took it up a level because these guys go all out for this 13 minutes the escalation of the giant bombs that were dropped in this match, some of the moves that they did, and you guys will run through them, I'm sure, but some of the things they did were just insane. Um, the snap on every move, the pa- follow-through and the power on every strike, these guys were just laying it in. You had Moff, who was this guy who come out of the the new york scene with his buddies all into their like 80s and 90s new japan strong style like laying it into each other being bringing that kind of thing you bj whitmer who was a guy who was in iwa mid-south doing the like um what do they call the super sweet science 16 tournament with with, oh yeah and chris hero where they were just knocking seven shades of shit seven shades of shit out of each other um cabana not known really for being like a stiff worker but he was he didn't hold anything back here and um homicide obviously uh the man who earlier on the show challenged someone to a strong style match so you know where his heart lies and it just felt like all these guys it just was the perfect time for them all to meet and have this match that they all clearly were at least three of them i don't know about cabana he might have just got dragged into it but the other three (laughs) were all just extremely keen on having such a physical all-action match and everything went right things that like could have were ambitious and could have kind of gone wrong from a timing point of view or might not have looked as good on another day just looked as good as they could have ever looked everything worked from a timing point of view it just was perfect even something the one thing that did go wrong in the match was actually a positive because when dan moff went for this crazy tope he ends up just kind of overshooting and going about six rows into the crowd which causes everyone to just get up on their feet and go even crazier for the match because it was such a crazy sight to see so um yeah that is uh and, 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 oh yeah, it, as well, it just finished with the perfect finish. BJ Whitmer hitting a top rope wrist clutch exploder, which I don't think I've ever seen before. I don't think Akiyama ever did that. And uh, I loved how 
they had a really believable scene of as the pinfalls happening, both Cabana and Moff are trying to make it to break up, but they're they're close, but they're f- too far away to actually do it. And it's not, it doesn't look like, oh, they could break it up if they want. And they're just acting like they can't. It, they were both in the perfect spot. And it was, it was great. Just really, really great. And the pop when Whitmer won was like, BJ Whitmer was set up to do great things coming off this that I don't know if they ever fully capitalized on because this was a star making performance for him. I thought the, um, this is a, Everyone, anyone that's listens regularly knows that I kind of am not a fan of the uh, of the four of the of the mandatory every show mid card four way in Ring of Honor. I think it's one of the down parts of what has been a pretty good run for Ring of Honor in two thousand three. It's not that they're terrible; it's just I feel like they usually don't have a story, and they're always just kind of this mid level action that never gets as crazy as a scramble. And usually it, they all have the same thing where there's a little bit slow to st- sometimes slow or just slower to start. And then there's a big dive train and then there's minutes of crazy near falls and then it's over and it's just generic. And for a classic Trevor Dame food analogy, one that I may have even used on another show, this is like um, the best pie I've ever eaten is a place called serious pot. Well, it, it's the Dahlia Bakery in Seattle, Washington, and they're fa- the guy there that makes that pie is famous for coconut cream pie. I don't like coconut cream pie, and that pie is so good, it is the best pie I've ever eaten. It overcomes my dislike of coconut cream because the guy is so good at it. And to me, this match, it's still a four-way. It just is it's random. It doesn't have a story really. It's um it has the dive train. It has the big minutes and near falls at the end. It's just, it's a very formula four way yet. It's great because it just like that coconut cream pie. They put so much heart. They work so hard at, at it. It overcome it. Like it, it's the best example of what these matches could be rather than it being something different that I might like more. It's like, no, you're going to like it the way it is. Cause we're going to work so hard. Like I think all these guys, everyone like, Colt Cabana maybe stylistically is a little bit left behind and maybe not a little less intense than the other three. Although I agree with Alan that like he works hard too, but like homicide and BJ Whitmer and Dan Moth are wrestling this like it's WrestleMania, like just the effort they're putting into everything. If anything, they're putting too much effort. Cause like Alan said, Dan Moth overshoots a tope so bad. He flies into the first row and doesn't touch his opponents. And earlier, um, Homicide does the tope con heel and he overshoots it and completely goes over the top of BJ Whitmer's head to the point where like Gabe doesn't even try and sell it. But like, oh, he just caught a bit. It's like, no, he homicide was so excited. He flew over the top of BJ Whitmer and didn't touch him. And they just did. They hit each other so hard. They did so many big moves. They did like a combo German fisherman suplex, like a three man thing. There was. The top rope explode, wrist clutch exploder, just like the best version of these four ways I think you could ever have. Um, Matt, what did you think? Um, well, okay, so this is one of the ROH matches 
that I have watched more than any other ROH match because like over the years, through the years, um, as I've wanted to, you know, to get a nostalgia for like old ROH, this is just like a no-brainer match to pop on because it's short, it's all action, the crowd is nuts for it. So I've seen this match a lot, so I know it pretty well. I also want to mention, since you mentioned that coconut cream pie thing, um, I've heard from Agent Dale Cooper that the state of Washington is a great place to go if you like pie. But um, <laughs> um, but uh, getting getting back to the match, um, since <laughs> since Alan mentioned the uh, the play by play thing, um, I'll try to do a little bit of that for this match. Um, so first of all. Um, Compared to all the undercard matches, when these got in the ring, like these guys got in the ring, you were like, okay, this is like star power. Like these guys feel like they have a presence that a lot of the guys in the previous matches didn't have, obviously not counting low key. Um, so it's like we have like the stars are out here. And it's kind of cool that ROH already has the stars. Or maybe not Whitmer, but, uh, but the other guys. Uh, <laughs> just at this point, you know, he just, yeah. you know what I mean. He's, he was no, good. He was good though. Um, Early in the match, Gabe mentions on commentary, because this is the uh, number one contenders trophy match, uh, Gabe is like, we have no idea what will happen if London wins the title, because it's his last night in. And I'm like, oh, it's probably something that you should know what will happen. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so they, so they start out with the chops and, um, you know, with Moth. So by the way, Moth is doing, like, one, like, storyline this match does have is Moth being a heel, not wanting to get into it with Homicide, you know, kind of, uh, you know, um, I guess what's the uh, what's the wrestling terminology like? He takes a powder. He tries to like get away. Yeah. And he and oh, whenever yeah, you are right, I forgot that where he yeah he he does the thing where he you know he teases the tags. He avoids them as long as he can. And when he tags guys in, he does it by slapping them in the face, which is another neat touch to the match. Um, so they do a lot of fast paced counter wrestling with Whitmer and Homicide, and crowds enjoying the arm drags. Then you cut. Then Cole Cabana gets in, and you cut to. Julius smokes on the outside, and he's looking up just like, I don't know, he's just sort of like daydreaming like, and he goes, Colt Cabana, oh, Rosanna. And then he sees the, <laughs> then he sees the camera like looking at him. He looks at, he looks at the camera like kind of angry and embarrassed. And it was just, so that, that's a good moment. I didn't do a good, I didn't do a good in Julius smokes impression, but that is what, those are, those are the words that he said. Um, <laughs> so, those are the words. Yes. Moff's already dropping Cabana on his head early, and Cabana comes back with a big lariat. Then uh, Moff tags Whitmer in with a slap to the face, like I said. Um, and Homicide helos Whitmer, but mostly flies over him, but not quite as thoroughly as when Moff hit his uh, dive. Um, Whitmer hits a Northern Lights on Homicide. Colt breaks it up. Um, and I, th- I wrote at this point, this is almost like a scramble in terms of the pace that they're going at. Um, Whitmer and Homicide, they just uh, do the, you know, the snap mare into the back kick thing, and they, they're brutal. And Moff is on the outside watching it, and he just looks at the camera and he goes, hell no. Like, as in, like, I don't want any part of this kicks. Yeah. He goes, fuck that shit. Like, yeah. Like, like I don't, I, I, just, that was a great moment. Yeah. Uh, Moff cheap shots Homicide by pulling him out of the ring and throwing him into the rail. Then Cabana tries to cut off Moff's uh, dive, but Moff ducks, and that's when Moff hits the tope clean over Homicide and BJ Whitmer into the crowd. So that added an extra layer to it. Is that like Cabana was going to block it, and Moff ducked, and then did that crazy dive. And the crowd just, like you said, went insane. Gabe said, I think Moff's dead. Then Cabana Asai moonsaulted all three of them. Uh, Moff and Whitmer went back, right back to the brutal chops. Um, Homicide pokes Moff's eyes so Whitmer could German suplex him, which was good. Uh, uh, Moff uh, gets uh, half Nelson suplexed by Whitmer, which got Dave to 
Gabe to do Dangerous. So for there are a lot of moves in this match that could have gotten it, but the half Nelson suplex is what got it. Um, so that's when Cabana goes for the Fisherman's Buster on Homicide, but Moff German suplex Cabana, which send both over, and the crowd just went even. Like the crowd just Sounds escalated. So cool. and, yeah, the crowd just escalated and escalated just as the um, as the match did. It was almost it, like it reminded me of the. Uh, the ten man tag with the radicals against the rock and uh, Cactus Jack and Too Cool and Rikishi, um, in the sense of just the crowd was just nuts the whole time and it just kept escalating and escalating. Um, I don't think, unlike that match, I don't think they really cared who won in the same way, but they were going nuts for the action. Um, Whitmer knees Moff and then and then all four were down and the crowd obviously gave a big uh, ovation. Um, Whitmer escaped the Colt 45, hit this crazy, like, I don't know how to explain it. It's like, it was like this neckbreaker DDT, like over his back. It was like an inverted DDT, but he fell forward. It's, uh, uh, it's really hard to explain, but I've never seen a move like that. Is there anybody who does that move like regularly that you've seen? Uh, I, I have no idea. Like, Which move was this again? So, okay. So he has Cabana, like... It's like Cabana. Who who, who who did it? BJ has a, has a Cabana almost in like a neckbreaker position, but instead of like neckbreaker, oh, he like oh, falls yeah, yeah. So forward onto it, his head. Yeah, they called it. Um, what did they call they, he, it? Gabe called it an inverted an inverted DDT, but it's not the yeah. same. It's not like a sting so inverted DDT. It was. It was okay. If you think of like a, a what a reverse DDT is as opposed to a regular DDT yeah. is that the guy is just turned around yeah the guy you're doing it to he's, he's turned around so he's facing up rather than facing down right but it ha- it's an ultimate reverse ddt because they're turned around but also you're turned around and then instead of just dropping down like you do with a scorpion death lock a scorpion death drop style reverse ddt you like roll through like you would with a regular ddt so it just i don't know it looked cool like you said and no i've never seen anyone else do that yeah it was awesome um so oh so uh, homicide broke up that pin then whitmer escaped the cop killer but then he got hit with a lariat and moff breaks that pin up uh moff hits the burning hammer on colt but whitmer breaks that up then uh whitmer hits an exploder on mop homicide breaks that up uh homicide goes for a top rope superplex whitmer germans homicide off the top and uh and Cabana is still up there. And so uh, Whitmer runs right back up, hits the top rope, Rich Clutch Exploder, and gets the pin. And Gabe actually says on commentary, what a match, match of the night so far, which is a weird thing for a commentator to say, but how many people are going to disagree with that? So, uh, yeah, it was it was a really cool deal. Like, you know, there was not so much to it as far as, like, psychology and depth. It was just guys doing everything perfectly, basically, um, to get the crowd as peaked as possible and having the most exciting possible like 14-minute four-way that you could possibly have. Yeah, I, I just, again, I think they worked They worked to the specialness of the show. They worked it like it was the biggest show that they ever had. And, you know, Whitmer's nose is bleeding after the match. Like, they... The, the only... If, if I give any, like, mild quibble at all, and I think great match and spoiler this is in my opinion i i don't think it'll be controversial saying this is the best match on the show um if there's one thing that's a little not even a quibble it's just interesting to see it's 
I feel like Colt Cabana is kind of in this awkward teenage stage of his career at this point where he's not just regular cutting edge indie wrestler Colt Cabana anymore, but he hasn't quite completely like integrated the comedy and really found that European influence yet. So like you see stuff in this match where it's like Colt mostly keeps up, but there's a moment in this match where he's trying to be like innovative just for the sake of innovative. Like there was this weird middle point in Cabana's career where I think he was trying to find out who he was in the ring. There's a moment where he, um, he does a crab walk on the second rope. He turns into an almost like tornado DDT flip only to suplex out of that and then float over into a double underhook. And it looks just like he's trying to just do stuff just like it just looks very like forced in a weird way. You're totally right, but I still kind of like that move. (laughs) (laughs) It's like it's just a sequence of how many things can I hook together? Yeah. And I feel like like it's funny because at this point in his career, he's really – getting good like discovering who he wants to be with the comedy on promos and backstage stuff but i feel like that cabana that's like this really solid technical wrestler with a bit of the uk influence of you know the old world of sports stuff it's not until he goes over there and discovers the world of sport that's airing on the wrestling channel every day while he's living over there and he gets to meet a lot of those guys and yeah that's when he kind of comes back and he's because he was over there for the better part of six months, I want to say. So, yeah, I think that was the turning point. Yeah, the, yeah. so it's, it's really interesting to see a guy where it's like he's getting a lot of the pieces and he's missing that one piece where you, where you just know that, like, because, you know, that's one of the kind of cool things about rewatching old wrestling is you have that context to know, I know you're going to discover this one more thing and that's going to click. Everything's going to click together. And to see a guy where he's just missing that one thing, like he's getting other things and you know, like you got, right, you got the persona now, you kind of know what you want to do, but like you're almost seeing like a back to the future thing where you're like, Hey, this is your cousin, Marvin Cabana. Like I got this thing that's going to blow your mind. It's called world of sport. You know, it's called the, you know, a cravat and you know, it's going to blow, you know, it's going to change him, but he doesn't know that because you're watching him on a video. Anyway, um, after the match, Moff teases handshakes, but he spits in homicides hand bails out of the ring and he gets into it with Julius smokes on the outside and tells Julius smokes, go back to the projects. You stupid son of a bitch. Um, and smokes Smoke- and smokes calls him a Judas, which is very dramatic language. Yeah, and a good historical pull by Julius Smokes. And Smokes' response to being told to go back to the projects is to bend over and show Moff his ass, which is a interesting rebuttal. No, no, I guess pun intended. Um, in the ring, the other three competitors just get to soak up a big standing ovation. So that's the the negative of being the heel here is Moff doesn't get to like soak in the accolades because it's not his role. But the other three get to get all the cheers and the big ovation. Back in Japan, uh, Christopher Daniels gets a call from Allison Danger telling him that Xavier returned tonight. Neither of them knew he was coming back today, and Daniels is not pleased. So Daniels hangs up, he broods, he speaks a line of Japanese, and then he launches into a smiling promo. So again, the Ring of Honor trope of, uh, for the second time the show, of, oh, I don't think the camera's recording me, which is like that weird WWE thing where you would think that after you got caught once, or anyone in the promotion got caught once, you would know not to, like, 
you would know they're going to air whatever you do in front of the camera because the whole point of it is Daniels doesn't think didn't know Xavier was coming back. He's pissed. And as soon as he thinks he's doing the promo, he's like, oh, just like we planned, Xavier returns tonight. <laughs> it's amazing. No, I, I need to do this exactly as it was. He's downtrodden. He's confused. He's like, it's as if he got a an acting gig where it's like, okay, play confused. And he's like, but Allison, this does not make any sense. Oh, and he's got his fingers up to his forehead and he's trying to process it. And then they're like, okay, Chris, ready to go. And he looks up, big smile, just like we planned all along. <laughs> big smile. It was fantastic. Yeah. I loved it. I loved Still Chris one of Dan. the best actors of this era. And, um, not much else to the prom other than he just he uh, he praises Dan Moff for stealing the show because again the whole conceit of these promos is Danger just keeps updating him on the show and then he comments on the show you're watching. So uh, Daniel says it's fine that Tom Carter didn't answer Allison Danger's um, offer, but he needs his answer soon, and it's better to be with the prophecy than against it. Daniel says he'll be waiting for more updates. Blah blah blah. Um, back in New Jersey, we're there with Gary Michael Capetta. I am stalling because for some reason my my computer is wigging out. Um, he's with low. He's with, with low key. Yes, he's with low key. Uh, Capetta mentions Key's murder. Capetta mentions <laughs> Key's murder of Special K, and Key still says that Special K still hasn't learned honor. And as long as that's the case, Key will be there to teach them lessons. He also says Special K has been in ROH since day one, which is not quite true unless he counts <laughs> Brian XL's stuff with, like, the SAT and Quiet Storm and that gang. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, Key says it's good to be back with his family in Ring of Honor, and family means a lot to him, unlike Dan Moth. He says he'll face Moff one day very soon, which he will, and he'll make an example out of him, which, which he I does. Guess he'll make some, <laughs> some kind of example. Yeah. Um, he says he will achieve his goal of being Ring of Honor champion once again. He won't. Uh, Gary asks Key what's going on between him and Homicide. Gary can't get enough of this story. Uh, Key raises an open hand to Gary, like almost like a rock esque open hand, and tells him not to worry about it. And Gary lets out like a little. Mm-hmm sound that makes me laugh and uh <laughs> key tells gary to do his job and listen to what key has to say key That's says what he said to me during our conversation too <laughs> he's just like alan before you try and make me cry just look at my hand and think about what you're about to do be careful <laughs> young man uh, so that's that. Just you know, more housekeeping, promo setting up things. It's sad how much like energy they're putting into the key homicide thing, considering that it goes nowhere. Yeah, like the, we don't even get one match out of it. That's that's the really disappointing part. Because to give you a brief preview, of what's going to happen? He's going to have his first of multiple Ring of Honor falling outs in the not too distant future, and it's going to be over. And uh, when that falling out happens. Um, Gabe wanted Key to have one last like big match with, and lo- and that match would be to lose to Homicide. Actually, he wanted him to wrestle a few more matches, but he only wanted him to lose one of those matches. He just wanted him to put over Homicide, and Key agrees to that, and then changes his mind on that. At least according to Gabe. So it's said that it seems like even now everything's building to this big Key Homicide match. And we're never going to get it in Ring Honor, at least. Similarly to how they tease forever the second Samoa Joe low-key one-on-one match that they never deliver. Yeah, just a few. There's a few of those matches that just get 
lost to history. And Less, listen, if you can get a match at a low key, do it on the next show he's booked on. <laughs> exactly. You know, get things in writing. Um, well, if it involves some jobbing, it'll probably just mean he'll leave the company again sooner. So maybe you do want to push it out and get as much of him as he can before he inevitably <laughs> takes his ball. Yeah, I, I believe the homicide match was originally he said, yeah, I'll lose to homicide. And then later he was like, uh, can it be a 15-minute draw? And I think Ray of Honor was like, we do- 15 minutes? <laughs> what? Can it be a 15-minute draw where my good pal MVP comes out at the end? And, uh... <laughs> yeah, for those who don't know, um, I mean, I'm sure everyone that listens to this keeps up with this stuff, or a lot of them do, but... Loki was going to main event a show against Matt Riddle. He pulls out the last second, and then it's like, well, you could use MVP. And it was like a semi-shoot style show, like Matt Riddle's Bloodsport. And it's just like MVPs. And then, and then Loki had the temerity to say that like Suzuki was a bait and switch, but he wanted MVP to take his place. Like, wow. He had a whole, he had a whole rigmarole that he. Uh said he approached him with where he would he would do a promo at the start of the show and then da, 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 then MVP would come out and it was like oh so instead of getting you now they have you who can't wrestle and your buddy and we'll pay both of you <laughs> yeah and you get to keep your hotel and everything and yeah. still go to New Orleans yeah so yeah. you could do a whole separate spinoff podcast on Loki um but next is, after intermission, a scramble match. Special K of Angel Dust, Dixie, Hydro, and Mikey Whipwreck defeat the Backseat Boys and the SAT, teaming together, eight-man tag. It ends in eight minutes, 20 seconds, when Whipwreck pins Trent Acid after he hits the Whippersnapper. I think we all know what the biggest news of this match is, and that's Scott Chong from Tough Enough is a member of the Special K Entourage, wearing a shiny silver shirt like he's a debuting on Monday Night Raw, Chris Jericho. That was a, a pretty big highlight for me of this match. I think as a match itself, it was... I mean, there were parts of it that seemed like a good standard scramble, and then there were parts of it that reminded me more of the shaky early days of the Whipwreck student matches in Ring of Honor, like stuff that's too that's more convoluted than actually cool looking stuff that it's just not like it, it, a little too much of the Whipwreck students a little less of my of my boys special K although I'll say this Hydro Jay Lethal in his early gimmick takes one I posted this on Twitter weeks ago he took one of the craziest craziest bumps you will ever see off a clothesline where he does like a a rotation bump where he like flips in the air and then on the way down, he knocks into the guy that gave him the clothesline and like he flips like another 180 degrees and lands perfectly on his ass selling that. Like he looks stunned. It's an amazing bump. One of the best bumps I've ever seen off a clothesline. And I would say in general, Jay lethal looked like he was being a little more confident in the ring. Like a lot of this match is just him taking moves like that. But I just—it was the first time I really noticed Jay Lethal. Like, hey, you know, this could be a guy to watch. And of course, you know the future. But um, Matt, how do you think this compares against uh, recent scrambles? Am I am I being too harsh? Or? No, no. This is one of the worst ones. Um, I was—I noted that at Trent Acid was back to normal in terms of his character, like happy-go-lucky, smiling, all that stuff. Not making like the weird, uh, like 
you know, the weird, uh, I'm sinister faces. Um, so that was something. And the crowd chants for Mikey, but I feel like these matches would be better without him. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it was weird. Like, I was confused by the Special K team. Like, is Mikey on it? Is Brian XL on it? Are they, is it five on four? I guess it was five on four. Um, but, um, but yeah, I just didn't think there was much to it. They do, you know, they do their spots, but they just, the pacing just didn't feel as, as good as it normally does. Um, uh, the, the, the whole uh, Angel Dust offering Johnny pills, so uh, so Johnny uh, you know shoves him down Angel Dust's throat. You know, I guess that was that was a fairly memorable spot. Um, but I feel like that's something Special K has done before with Loki. Yeah, with spe- yeah, and that was more to be more memorable. Than this. Yeah, because Loki did the whole fake out thing. Uh, yeah. They're like, what are what are pills doing in an ROH ring? Like, <laughs> it's like um, I don't know. It's it's an ROH show. So what do you think? Um, but um, yeah, but Mikey did the whole like blowing mist in uh, in Acid's eyes, and and I was I was just confused by who's legal and who's not. I I don't mean like legal as far as tagging because obviously it's scramble. But legal as in who is a part of the match. Um, so the the one thing where everyone tried to suplex each other. Um, and, and then Brian XL just stands on the apron and shakes his head. I did enjoy that spot. He was just like, I'm, I'm not having any part of this bullshit. Um, but the crowd enjoyed that. It ended up just being a bunch of article suplexes. So it wasn't quite as crazy as it might have seemed like it was going to be in the setup. But, um, but you know... The, Angel Dust is late yet again, which I don't know if they're doing intentionally or not now. But did you notice on that big multi-suplex that like Angel D- Dust and Trent were like significantly later than everyone else on that spot. Yes. I mean, that's pretty, a pretty frequent thing that happens in these matches. Um, at one point, Gabe asked which special K member is legal and Doug goes, are these girls on the outside legal? That's what I want to know. And I was like, oh, not you, not you too, Doug. (laughs) But, um, I'm just glad they actually, I'm just thankful they actually just called them girls and not a different word as they often they they did yeah. they did call them that a few times though the other one. yeah I know That's for why. no for no reason um, Brian XL went for like a top rope dragon Rana but uh, Joel caught him and hit a maximum explosion that was a pretty cool spot I thought that that went off pretty well um, and then Acid ran wild uh, the SAT hit the Spanish fly on Hydro Joel accidentally kicked Acid and Mikey hit the whippersnapper on him to win. Um, and the announcers sell like it's a big deal that Acid was pinned because he had just beaten Homicide in a main event. And then Gabe called the girl sluts again, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> which is what we were getting at uh, for no reason, really, no like, and no, just completely no reason. Um, and uh, I was surprised that there was no dive fest in the match, and it wasn't the best scramble. Like, I mean, it wasn't completely unentertaining, but it was one of the lesser matches of the, of the night. I thought. Alan, are you going to make this a clean sweep, or did you like this more than me in that? Oh, I, I think I think the fact that I haven't been going back and rewatching all the scrambles like you guys have made this kind of a little more enjoyable for me because this is probably my first time rewatching a first two years ROH scramble in a, a long, long time. So the tropes of them haven't sort of worn thin on me like they, they might have with you guys and the uh, the kind of surprising not the surprising things that are fun about them that you'd kind of forgotten about they were kind of more what kind of caught my eye in this one and I, I, I ended up enjoying it a decent amount but I could 
I, I I know it wasn't even in watching it. I, I, there was enough kind of wonky things in there that I was like, this is, this is not a good match or a great match or anything. But because I haven't seen many scrambles recently from this era, I enjoyed watching it. It was my first time seeing like SAT offense in, in quite a while and stuff <laughs> like that. So that was uh, there, there was a novelty to it. Yeah, I, I think that's something me and Matt have to remember once in a while is like, you know, we, we have a very, not not a unique position, but we're someone that have watched a lot, of, like every single Ring of Honor early show up to this point in the last year. So things that might be more fun to people that just see it occasionally, we're definitely coming through it through the eyes of people that are like regular viewers who are just staying up to date with every show. So but it's yeah, the beauty of the podcast. That's what yeah, you guys yeah. offer here. But it's yeah. worth noting that um, some of these scrambles are really like cool and fun and good. Um, so like that's what that's the standard we're holding it to. It's not like they're all just equally disposable. Some of them are really well done, and this one, not quite so much. Yeah, and I think we definitely went through a thing where at first we weren't that into these kind of matches, and then there there reached a point maybe around the Special K era where we were like these are actually starting to get consistently pretty fun, and this was just like a step below. I mean, just some ugliness. Like there's there, there was a funny spot where um. Near the end of the match, Johnny Cashmere runs in to, like, do a spot. And I think, like, Angel Dust is busy doing something else. And so rather than, like, save his own partner in this crazy free-for-all scramble match, like, Johnny Cashmere takes a couple steps back and lets Angel Dust do his spot. And then just, like, calmly walks and does his spot. Like, just that weird kind of, like, it's not your point in the dance right now, like just watch like, that real weirdness that can happen in these matches when things don't click 100%. Um, but otherwise, yeah, that you guys covered everything. And except Trent Asset gets a lot of screams from girls. Like he could have been the transition for a new group of ring of honor fans. Cause I think some of those Jeff Hardy fans could have settled for Trent Asset and they didn't play it up the way they should have maybe, but after the match, Jose Maximo goes to comfort the backseat boys. He gets T gimmick for his troubles. So all of a sudden, after Trent Acid getting the biggest win of his Ring of Honor career against Homicide, now all of a sudden it's like, and the backseat's being unbeaten. Now all of a sudden Trent Acid's pinned. They're turning heel. Very abrupt change. They hit Joel Maximo with the dream sequence combo. And that's that. And that leads us to... Maybe the most talked about match on this this whole show. Certainly, certainly at certainly at the time it was. I think maybe the importance of it feels like it's faded over the years. But at at the time this show happened, this is what the talk of the wrestling world was. So this is all right. We can say I would. I think maybe the better way to put it is it's the most notorious match of the show, mm-hmm. and that would be Jeff Hardy defeating Joey Matthews and Crazy K in a three way dance. In six minutes, 35 seconds, when Jeff pinned Crazy K with a leg drop into a leg trap pin. So there is a lot of background for this match. And some things that, some things that like, we could talk about that happened around it. But I think give a little bit of background, then talk about the match, and then we'll follow up with one of my favorite Observer, bits of Observer reporting ever. So first, the background is just, this is a time period where Jeff Hardy, I think, had been he had been fired from WWE <coughs> to not to um 
not too long before for, I guess, drug use, I think is what it was. The, um, a Jeff Hardy and Matt Hardy biography had recently had come out around this time where um, Jeff revealed that he had lost his passion for pro wrestling. And following this match, I think I think Jeff had one indie match with Crazy K before this, and then he'll have one more indie match after this. And basically, apart from these mat these three matches, the Ring of Honor match and the other two, Jeff Hardy doesn't wrestle for a year. He uh, focuses on his dirt bike passion. I don't know if you could call that a career, but it, it, he focuses on dirt bikes. He gets injured riding a dirt bike. Um, and Jeff Hardy, the story around this match is that. He had, during the book tour, Matt had showed him a Ring of Honor show, or at least part of it, and Jeff Hardy thought it was really cool. He doesn't say which show, he just says it was one with Eddie Guerrero on it, which narrows it to two shows. Um, probably It was probably Era of Honor Begins, and he says he thought the handshake thing was cool, and that he'd like to work there. And he told Ring of Honor he would work here as long as he could wrestle his friends. He basically booked his own match. He wanted to wrestle Joey Matthews and Crazy K, who was his student at this time, his protege. And uh, again, going back to the start of the show, you heard the reporting by Ring of Honor's own admission, ticket sales took a bump up when they announced Jeff Hardy. And this was the, by 500 people, the most widely attended Ring of Honor show in history up to this point. And when Jeff Hardy comes out, they shit on him from second one. In fact, they shit on him from before second one because um, it's funny. Like, the fans are horrible, but it's funny. There's a moment where, you know, Joey Matthews and Crazy K come out first. And there's a moment where the lights go are down and it's completely quiet because it's between theme songs. And you hear one fan clear clear his day as if it was like scripted go in the most like stereotypical sarcastic asshole voice he goes um he basically goes "Ooh, it's jeff hardy big fucking deal or something like that and then his music hits and he comes out and from that moment on they hate his fucking guts they don't give him a chance and we can get into it the match is not good either um Matt, I don't know, like, should we just get into the thoughts on the match first? Like, what are your thoughts on the match before we get kind of into the thoughts on the crowd's legendary, like, shitting on what he did? I mean, I think, I don't think that they're separate. You know what I mean? Like, I think they go hand in hand because, you know, the, the boos, like you said, just start aggressively before music starts. Yeah, like you said, Jeff, Jeff Hardy, ooh, who gives a shit, right? And then fuck you, Hardy, Hardy sucks chance. Like before the match, then he comes out and he's Will of the Wisp and he's doing the goofy dancing and that doesn't help at all. And it's like everything Jeff does is not good. <laughs> um, but that does not explain the reaction because they reacted before he even showed up. So, like, Jeff didn't help his case with his performance at all. I mean, it was like, he was really bad. Like, I don't want to defend the reaction. It's under, indefensible. Like, the guy is, he's wrestling a match. It doesn't, like, but he was bad. Like, he was, he was slipping during his corner pose, and the crowd pounced on that. He botched moves. Um, so he, he, he came out, again, going to your thing, for those who haven't seen it, the Will of the Whiskey is like a full mask and, like, trench coat or long, some kind of long coat, and... Jeff did this weird thing where he basically took it off piece by piece, including the mask throughout the match. Like one point where, Sorry. um, the, the, no problem. There's one point where, uh, 
like Joey Matthews is on his back. They're in the middle of a spot, and Jeff Hardy just decides in the middle of the spot to just oh now's a good time to take off the will of the wisp mask before I do my next spot. Like Jeff seemed out of it. I don't even I, I don't even necessarily mean in a drug way, although it could be. Like the start of the match, um Crazy K and Joey Matthews are wrestling, and Jeff is just leaning on the ropes, not even paying attention to the match. And then after their sequence ends, Jeff is just starting to get up off the ropes when like Matthews goes over and attacks him. And it's as if you watch this, it's as if Jeff Hardy is late to his own wrestling match. Like he couldn't be bothered. It's just, it is a really surreal. Uh, so even though, as Matt said, like, it's a really like the crowd did not give him a chance, literally not one second of a chance. It is also a really, I don't want to undersell that. It's a really bizarre, poor performance from Jeff Hardy. Yeah. And I, and I wonder how much of it was him just being super psyched out by the crowd. Like would his performance have been markedly different if it wasn't for the fact that the crowd was destroying him so badly. I don't know. It's impossible to say, I think, um, but, you know, I, I do think other things that didn't help his cause, that he insisted on bringing in Crazy K, who clearly was not ready for prime time, or was completely thrown off by the crowd as well. Um, you know, just like booking his own match. You know, actually, one of the, the highlights of the match, like legit, was Joey Matthews, because he just reveled in being the biggest baby face. Like, he obviously looked okay. He's a, he's a pro. Um but I mean, he was trying so hard to make this match work. I felt so bad for him. Like he was, he was trying to be the glue here. It didn't work. Um, yeah. But um, he tried very hard. Um, you know, uh, Jeff was bad. Crazy K was bad. Um, you know, the crowd said it might be because the teenage girls were cheering for Jeff. And I was like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Misogyny is as much of a motivating factor for this type of wrestling fan. Uh, as anything else is, so that could be true also. Um, I'm fascinated by it. Like, I wrote at one point, like, this is dark, because the crowd was just so mean, and I really don't know why. Like, I don't know what it was about Jeff Hardy that made people hate him so much, because they've accepted, you know, like, they accepted Eddie Guerrero back, and he got fired because of drugs. You know, they accepted, uh, or George Drunk Driving, or DWI, whatever it was that he got fired from WWE for. Um, you know, they accepted all the old ECW guys back as, like, as nostalgia acts. Um, you know, they accepted, they even, like, Meltzer put, pointed out, they even gave Conan a chance in his match until, like, there was a botched spot. Um, what is it about Jeff Hardy at that time that made people hate him so much? And I can't think of anything other than the fact that it's, like, that he's a really big, really popular among, like, teenage girls. And also, Gabe starts talking about how he said in an interview that he lost his passion for wrestling. But, like, come on. Like, first of all, A, how many people heard that? I don't remember hearing it. Uh, I remember seeing it. Again, it came out in in the Hardy's book, which I looked up. I think the book came out a few months earlier. But also, he says, you know, it was in the shoot interview Jeff Hardy just conducted. Well, that shoot interview was recorded after the show. Like, no one would have heard that. Yeah, I mean, that's clearly bullshit. So what is it? Why did, why does this crowd, um, who's so respectful in many other parts of the show, why do they hate Jeff Hardy so much? Alan, you have all the answers. You tell us and also give us other thoughts. Um, I, I was wondering the same myself, and it's thinking back to my mindset at the time, I was, like everyone, a big Hardys fan in, in 2000, 2001, and then the split happened with the the original draft, 
And Matt went to do the Matitude stuff, which got him insanely over, and he was a real smart mark favorite. Meanwhile, Jeff, with the exception of one Undertaker match, which is this uh, ladder match in July 2002, it's like a miracle match on Raw, the wheels just fell off noticeably. He was awful on TV in, in WF at that point. He his look started to just get worse and worse. He, he, he was coming out looking pale and his wearing trashy gear and he was painting himself up and just looked ridiculous. And his performances were just not good. And I think for me, um, I just really started to sour on him around that point. And he was one of my least favorite guys in the F and I would have been, let me think I would have been, 17 at this point and in 2002-2003 and yeah I just I was a huge Matt Hardy fan he was one of my favorite wrestlers and I would say that was the case for a lot of this crowd in terms of who their favorite WF guys were a lot of them would have had Matt Hardy as, as right up there and Jeff went the complete opposite direction and when you kind of compare the two and if you're going to make it as simplistic deal as one good one bad which is an easy route to go when you split up a tag team like this um uh, these fans went hard on the jeff is the crap one now and yeah it's it really there is obviously more to it than just that in this reaction because it was way harsher than you would have thought but i mean let's think who else was an unpopular WWF guy at that time and, and think to how if they would have gotten a similar reaction. So who in sort of 2002, 2003 WWF was not popular? I don't know, maybe Kane. If Kane came out on this Ring of Honor show, I'd say he would have been booed pretty bad. Um, who else? Uh, the Dudleys, maybe Bubba was starting of a Bubba has DCW tie-in, so he would have been cheered regardless. Um, I'm sure to I'm sure to some other guys, but just insert the guy in WF who's just not a smart mark favorite in 2002, 2003. If they appeared on a Ring of Honor show, I think uh, they would have got destroyed by the crowd. And people forget that Jeff went through this period where he wasn't a smart fan favorite because he obviously was in the early years of his career and he was for the majority of the later years in his career after he got clean and everything. But there was this period at the end of his first WF run where people really soured on him. And there's so many like things I, I could go into on this. I'm trying to find like, the best use of my time. But I think one, another really interesting thing about this, first off, I think that was really good insight because I have a horrible memory. So it's, it's good to be reminded of like what WWE fans even thought of Jeff Hardy I, I in that time period. I remember, I distinctly remember this one match where he was out there looking pale in his crap gear with paint all over him. And he went to do the run around the um, barricade spot and he just botched it horribly. And I was like, oh, I am so done with Jeff Hardy. I, I just distinctly remember that moment. 
And, and I mean, by his own admission, he did not have the passion for it. And if you just look at the history, he basically took a year off of wrestling around this time. So obviously he was not feeling it. He, he, you know, it's not, it's not a controversial opinion. I for, I just forgot the extent of how bad it was, but it's interesting even listening to the commentary of this because Gabe tries to play it both ways. And I don't know if I can blame him. Like there are times during this match where Gabe is like, you know, I think at one point Gabe says he's embarrassed by, by the fans for doing, for like shitting on Jeff like that. Yeah, he but does. He does. He does. He does say that. I have that written down. But then there are other times where he defends the fans where he basically says, you know, don't go to ring, come to ring of honor and say that you lost your passion for the business. And it's like, well, first off, why'd you book him then? You know, you want to say to them, but it's just, it's, it's kind of a scatterbrained thing where Gabe's trying to sell that he's pissed off at the fans, but also like, you know, there's even one point where he says something like, oh, we'd like to maybe see Jeff Hardy come back in a different city or, or something like that. Like he's trying to leave the door open. He's also kind of burying him. He's getting on the fans, but also being sympathetic to the fans. It's just all over the place. And like, uh, yeah, yeah, I looked in my notes. He said he'd like to see Jeff back in Ring of Honor in front of a crowd that would give him a chance. But at the same time, like, I see, I've seen a lot of Ring of Honor matches, Ring of Honor matches where Gabe bot, where a re, not Gabe, but where a wrestler botches a move and Gabe will cover it up. On um, there's a horribly botched DDT in this match where Crazy K and uh, Jeff are not on the same page and they just it completely falls apart and the crowd chants "You fucked up." And Doug tries to do the thing they would normally do, which is try and cover it up. And Gabe actually stops him. Is like, let's just call it what it is. That's a botch, Doug. Like. He's not doing anything to defend this match. Like, he's letting it die. And, you know, when Crazy K does that horrible poetry in motion where he gets no height on it, you know, Gabe shits on it. Like, he's shitting on the match in a way he wouldn't shit on other matches. But again, still trying to leave the door open for Jeff. It's it's just... Even the commentary commentary for this is just such a weird spectacle. Well, you're in a you're in a no win situation unless you cut the match from the DVD. And since it was so talked about, they really had no choice to do that. So they had to put it in there. And in that case, when you announce the match, what are you going to do? You really have no choice. There's no good option there. And then the other weird bit of the commentary, which I think we alluded to earlier, is that. According to the Observer, ROH told Dave Meltzer, "Hey, the ticket, advanced ticket sales were picked up when we announced Jeff Hardy." Yet in this commentary of this match, Gabe makes a point to say, "Oh, look at, listen to how the girls are being like shouted down by all the guys." It obviously wasn't the Jeff Hardy that drew the crowd or something. Like very defensively, basically saying that specifically says there's 100 Jeff Hardy fans and 1,100 ROH fans. Yeah, so I, I thought that was really weird doing the research and then because, you know, again, I don't know if Gabe changed his mind or something or regretted telling Dave Meltzer that their sales had picked up because you read The Observer and you get the impression that Jeff Hardy had a big impact on the show. And then you listen to the commentary and Gabe's trying really hard to downplay wh- wh- how much of an effect Jeff had on this show. And I'll note, I think when they come back for their second ever Rexplex show, they headline with... There'll be main event spectacles. They headline with AJ Styles versus Brian Danielson in Danielson's return match after months away. They do, I think, 400 people less. So, and that obviously has no Jeff Hardy. So, if Gabe wants to say that's 100 fans, well, what happened to the other 300? You know, it's just—it's a fair point. 
And well, I guess we'll talk about that once we get there. But um, a couple other things. I just want to go through now to Dave Melzer's reporting of the time and what Dave's opinion on some of this stuff was. He, let me just get back here. Dave had some insight on it. Blah, blah, blah. Da, da, da. Um, the reaction to Hardy was said to by was said by many to be the worst example of the Ring of Honor audience to date, even worse than the reaction to Conan. At least with Conan, the crowd was sitting waiting for a missed spot, and actually the original missed spots after watching the tape were caused by his opponents. But the match did end up falling apart as he was rattled by the crowd. By the way, that's a classic Dave Meltzer sentence where you get to the end and you don't know where he started. Um, this Dave goes on this was worse in that they were they turned on him him being jeff hardy the second he came out wearing a will of the wisp mask with we want matt don't come back and you got fired chance people were chanting for him to go home and not come back it was about 80 20 negative but the 20 percent positive mostly girls were trying to make up for what they lacked in numbers hardy eventually played heel to react to the crowd but it was futile Reports were that he didn't look good, which made things worse, but the crowd never gave him a chance to begin with. Um, Hardy also looked like he let the crowd get to him by the end. I guess we should bring up that, too. Like, Hardy, when the crowd's trying, like, you fucked up and stuff, he's encouraging it. Like, he's not he's not playing it well. He's he, he's acknowledging all the shit they're saying to him. Um, and then then we get into the real big stuff, which is... Ring of Honor said that even with the reaction, he's welcome back to Ring of Honor anytime he wants to return. They went out of their way to say that because he sold so many tickets. Hardy's appearance was a one-time deal, and he wanted to work there because he and his brother enjoyed a Ring of Honor sh- video they had seen on their book tour. Uh, goes on. From what we're t- blah, blah, blah. I'll just go through this, edit some of this stuff out. Um so, okay, now this is what we get to, which is, this is something I probably like more than anybody else. I probably shouldn't even make time for this, but remember the saga, long time through the years, listeners will know the saga of Ring of Honor constantly wondering if they should keep their TV show. And so every month in The Observer, Dave was going back and forth. And I just thought that was funny because it was basically Ring of Honor having an existential crisis in The Observer month by month. Well, here's clearly an argument between Gabe Sapolsky and someone else that works for Ring of Honor, maybe Rob Feinstein himself, and it happens week by week for three weeks. So let's just, I'm just going to read the Observer quotes. So the week after this show, Dave writes in the Observer, more on Jeff Hardy's Ring of Honor appearance last week. Hardy was scheduled for an interview the night before the show and arrived seven and a half hours late, which meant 3.30 a.m., He was asked to arrive for the show the next day, which would be Death Before Dishonor, at 4 p.m., but showed up at 7.15 and was hanging with Just Incredible, who he hung out with in WWE. Now, the fans didn't know this and were brutal to him with no provocation, but he did himself no favors with his performance. It was considered a one-shot deal, and we all probably, ROH probably would use him again because he can draw. There are no plans for another shot. So you read that and go, okay, whatever, makes sense. Here's the very next week in The Observer after that. Um, Dave goes, I had a chance to see a tape of Jeff Hardy's Ring of Honor appearance from July 17th in Elizabeth, which was actually more notable for the crowd reactions than anything he did. 
This is wrestling and fans have the right to do whatever they want and are encouraged not to be respectful if they don't want to be. And they weren't at all. There were there were there was no go get help chant, at least to any other than chants from people booing him out of the place. And not in a heel manner. He slipped a bit while climbing the ropes before the match as fans chanted, We want Matt at him. But that was no biggie. He didn't look good and did no daredevil spots. The match was sloppy overall, but that was more because of Crazy K. I saw three missed spots, two were clearly K's doing, and the third was a DDT spot where Hardy went down faster than K, so that was probably Hardy's fault. Other noticeable chants were, you suck, Hardy sucks, and we want Conan. Um, all the while, girls were screaming every time Hardy wanted them to. By the end, he tried to heal a bit and work the crowd. All right, so here's where we get to the big point. Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky said that Jeff's arriving at 7.15 p.m. painted him in a negative light he didn't deserve because he never got the word that he was supposed to be there at 4 p.m. Sapolsky said Hardy was totally professional the night of the show and even after the negative response, stayed until 2 a.m. after the show to do interviews and sign autographs. Sapolsky said, as far as the crowd reaction, we knew it was coming. In fact, the first thing I said to Jeff was, you're going to get booed out of the building tonight. He accepted it and took it as a pro. Having And so, okay, so you go that and go, okay, Gabe's clearly refuting someone in Ring of Honor. Here's the week after that in The Observer. More on Jeff Hardy in the Ring of Honor show last month. According to someone who was there and heard it, Rob Feinstein told Hardy to arrive at 4 p.m. before the show on July 17th, so there was no misunderstanding. Hardy was with a group of people, including AJ Styles, Crazy K, and a few others, and they were about to leave the hotel room at 3.30 p.m. At that point, Just Incredible came, and Hardy said he'd ride with them as they went to the building. Credible and Hardy on the way disappeared and arrived at 7.40, actually arrived at 7.45 p.m. that night. So I just thought that reading that week after week, just clearly someone else in Ring of All, Gabe, it's to me, it looks like Gabe was trying to be good to Jeff Hardy and maybe soft play some things. And I am inclined to believe this other person, especially when they're talking about Jeff was supposed to re- record a shoot interview the night before. He completely missed it. And you can confirm that by the fact that I watched bits of the Jeff Hardy shoot interview. They end up having to record it backstage and in his, in his hotel the night after, like that night of Death Before Dishonor and still the night before. So that's obviously true. And just the fact that they have witnesses saying that like Jeff was told, like, let's all get on in this car and go to the show. And Jeff never shows up. I mean, I think Gabe was just trying to be nice to him, but I don't buy it. What do you think Jeff and just incredible got up to for those three hours? (laughs) (laughs) I, I I mean, that's, that's probably, it's probably the things that would be first on your mind. The, uh, the only other notes I want to say before I get to one big question we should talk about with this is I saw the Jeff clips of the Jeff Hardy shoot interview and part of it's in the hotel after the show and part of it is right after the match backstage. And it's sad to me because Jeff Hardy's trying to act like it didn't bother him at all. Like, hey, man, whatever. You know, it was a crazy night and all this stuff. And he's laughing. But then he starts talking about like, I've done these TLC matches and if those crowds don't respect, if that crowd doesn't respect like what I put my body through and you can tell watching it, like he's, he's hurt, you know, that he thinks he's done a lot in wrestling and he didn't have to do the show. 
and they completely shit over him. And he's still trying to act like it, you know, it's almost is sadder because he's not acknowledging that it hurt him. And then the one tidbit that comes from this ring of honor shoot is ring of honor as they would with any high priced talent, um, offered to give Jeff Hardy a plane ticket. Gabe asks him outright, like on in the shoot interview, he's like, we offered you a plane ticket, and instead you drove from North Carolina to New Jersey to do the show. Why did you do that? We would have bought you a plane ticket. And Jeff basically just says, I'm unusual. Like, he doesn't give them an answer. Just like, yeah, I felt like driving from North Carolina to the Ring of Honor in New Jersey. So, like, Jeff Hardy, definitely a unique person at a very weird and troubled time in his life. So, the one question I want to ask both of you guys, I know we've talked about this match a lot but the one thing i think that's important to talk about a little bit is i've seen some people who have said it is good that fans do this kind of stuff that like you know i um you know for reasons like it it's good to have like these kind of divisions between wrestling companies it makes things special it's good to protect your wrestling company of choice if you feel like someone that's not worthy is going there um do you guys like how did you guys feel about the fans? Like the fans, I mean, Dave Meltzer mentioned this in a different part of the, one of his reports, like fans do have a right to cheer and boo who they want when they buy a ticket. But like, what were your feelings on the fans? Like booing from moment one? Um, I guess I'll go first. Um, I think obviously fans do have a right to do it. Like you have a right to do a lot of shit. Um, but it doesn't mean that you don't come off as like dark, creepy assholes when you do it and that's how the fans came off here I think they came off like like mean spirited like bloodthirsty people for no good reason um, yeah you don't have to support every wrestler that comes through like you could be protective of your promotion but if you don't think a wrestler is good or worthy of like being there you could not react that much and with excitement you could maybe like even boo but what happened here was beyond that, right? It was just like vitriol and hatred and they got in his face and they were angry and it's like, dude, it's like, it's fucking wrestling. Like, calm the hell down. It's a guy, you know, like it's, it just seemed like, it, they seemed like an angry mob that was ready to like burn somebody. And that's weird to me, especially when it's just like, I don't know, nothing happened. Um, so no, I don't think it's good. I think that, they can do what they want, and I, I, we can all judge them for, I think, getting caught up in like a low-level version of what seemed to me like kind of mob hysteria. That's what it felt like to me. Like obviously, like nobody got physically hurt by it, but uh, it, that's I don't know. That's what it felt like to me. Like the yeah. only thing, oh, go on now. I think we need to put ourselves back in the mindset of the. Uh, still in the aftermath of ECW um, East Coast Smart Mark wrestling fan. Like, that was... They they were a hostile bunch. I, I think, actually, that's a really good point. And I think, Matt, and your points both kind of combined because you think about how much wrestling... In the aspect that wrestling has changed. I think one of the best things wrestling fans do compared to other entertainment is in 2018 
when a wrestler like leaves an indie to go to the WWE, the fans are incredibly gracious. There's no more you sold out. It's always it's like a graduation now. Like the fans are grateful and they're sad to see him go, but they're they know they're they're happy for him, even if it's not going to be the best for their personal fandom. They're like, we know you want this. It's a big opportunity. We're happy for you, and we're actually going to see that in just a couple of matches with Paul London. But like Alan said, we're not far away from the ECW era where the fans were basically taught that like a guy leaving was a betrayal of the company and you should chant, you sold out and fuck you. And, and you know, there was heels like Shane Douglas who played it up, you know, to get a reaction. And so you have a generation of fans that were trained like that. And then I think going to what Matt said earlier, like about Eddie Guerrero pointing that out, though. There's got to be a difference between Jeff Hardy and Eddie Guerrero, and maybe it is just they're literally angry that there's a girl audience there, that you see 100 or 200 women there, and you go, well, they're not, they're posers. They're not usually at the shows I go to. Like, they're basically the wrestling equivalent of the guy who sees that you're wearing a band t-shirt and goes, do you actually listen to that band? I have literally, I have literally heard. ROH fans in line for an ROH show, maybe like ten years ago, talking about like, oh, these these girls at the show they ruin everything. Like, just I've literally heard guys say that. So like, that is a sentiment that ROH fans, some of them, actually feel. Um, and probably there's a whole host of other ones that won't actually won't actually articulate it, but do feel that way also. And to me, I guess to wrap it up, like the funny thing is. I think fans, I've talked about this on an earlier episode, indie wrestling before this generation, a lot of times when a wrestler went to an indie, they were completely slumming it, and they did not put their best foot forward, and it was like, they didn't want to be there, they had no other options, they were going to do like as little as they could, and so I can see why that also breeds a fan... Um, atmosphere where like you you start to learn that when a guy gets fired, a big name gets fired and shows up at your indie to resent it. Like you're just here because you don't have an option. Like, fuck you. But here's, here's the problem. They did not give Matt Hardy a chance to see if he'd be like that or not. And they give other people a chance. And the ironic thing is Matt Hardy, like, I mean, Jeff Hardy, Jeff Hardy did everything. Like if they just wait a while, they would have been completely justified in booing him because he did everything wrong. Like he showed up, he, he wanted to wrestle a match, with his friends instead of like, even though that's the match fans didn't want to see, he brought his probably not ready for prime time student as like a vanity thing. He didn't give them Jeff Hardy at first. He did his like fucking will the wisp shit. Like so self-indulgent. He d- did not wrestle well. And if you read the backstage stuff, you know, he did not show up in time for his commitments. Like he did every cliche thing wrong. But the fans didn't know any of that, and they still shit on him. Like they gave up the right to be angry to me. Like, and, and also, let me let me just like ask you guys: Does it sound like fun to be in a wrestling crowd, like where the atmosphere is like that, where everyone is just like hostile and angry, and not at some sort of like heel angle, but just because like, boo, this guy is not like we don't think he's a good wrestler before we even see him. Like, like does that sound like a fun place to be, where just people are just furious and? And like, like, just like this filled with just like angry, pissed off testosterone. Cause to me, it feels like that would be an uncomfortable place to be hanging out for my entertainment dollar that evening. I don't know, but I guess my, I might be like, it sounds like an ideal place to be hanging out. If I myself was an angry, frustrated individual. 
what better way to let those anger frustrations out? But uh, but 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 I would I would hope that most wrestling fans are not that angry and frustrated. Like I go to wrestling shows again, EC yeah. post ECW East Coast Smart Mark fans. I would think a large percentage of them are angry, frustrated, bitter people. Sure, I mean that's. I feel like I fit like you know like a description of somebody that you might think would act like that, but like at those shows, but I never did. I wanted to go and I wanted to have a good time uh, and clap and yay you're, and chant. You're, you're a later era, Matt. I think you're, I, I'm thinking people like maybe five to 10 years to 15 years older than you. The guys who were in the ECW arena in 96, 97, who were just throwing it in the face of anyone they didn't like and uh, you know the the guys who lived and died with those Shane Douglas promos as as, as you guys said and, and I, I I think those fans kind of fizzled out by the mid 2000s and were replaced by the fans who kind of were more ROH fans yeah, that I, makes sense. I could have a different read on it. I'm all the way over here. I, I wasn't going to those shows or are part of those crowds, but that's just the impression I got that there was, that this 2003 ROH crowd was more the ECW Arena crowd than it was the 2006 ROH um, Manhattan Center crowd. Yeah, and uh, I think there's just something that goes beyond wrestling fans. I think... Ring of Honor at this time had been around just long enough where I feel like it had an identity and a, and a hardcore dedicated fan base where people felt ownership of it. And just like any small thing like a band or a or like a cult favorite TV show or whatever, people feel like it's part of their identity that I like this. That I like this thing that most people don't know about. And I it's part of me and I have ownership of it. And when you see a bunch of girls that are never there, I think a lot of fans go to this ugly place where they're like, you're gonna steal this from me. Like you don't deserve it. I, I liked it when it was really unpopular. You're, and instead you should think, well, you know, if there's a few hundred women there to see Jeff Hardy, maybe if you weren't such pieces of shit, maybe fifty of them would stay and become long-term Ring of Honor fans. You know, maybe they'd say, hey, I also like this match. I like that four-way. I like this Trent Acid guy. He's also a handsome fellow. Like, but instead you drive them off because you're just the most fucking petulant baby fucking assholes in the world and again go, 400 less fans the next time they come back to the rexplex so yeah like to me like that like, to me like that's a sort of reaction that should be reserved for like if somebody gets on the mic and like starts saying like racist stuff you know like not not just a guy who's like oh he's from wwe and he's not passionate about wrestling anymore you know like Ring of Honor was not in a position to say goodbye to a bunch of Jeff Hardy fans. They, in the benefit of hindsight, we know they lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in the follow in this year. You know, Kerry Silken and Rob Feinstein did. They could have used an extra few hundred like New Jersey wrestling fans who would buy tickets. And I'm sure a lot of them said, "Well, I saw Jeff Hardy, and those guys creep me the fuck out, and I want to go home and never come back here." And they didn't. So. Moving all right, so that's a more than I thought I'd say. Um, well, it was it was a memorable segment. We'll say this. Yes. So we're gonna now go to the home stretch. Final three matches. CM Punk comes out for the first time in Ring of Honor. He uses AFI's Miseria Canter or 
Cantare. Cantare, I think. Cantare. It was definitely the first time in ROH for sure. Yes, for in Ring of Honor, we can confirm for a fact. This is the first time. Another one of those things, moments that, of like something falling into place. And like, by the way, by the way, that song was new in 2003. That's that album came out in 03. So it's like he he jumped on that song as soon as he heard it. As like that's my that's my theme song. He was wearing their T-shirt later. Yep. And, and it and it brought you know it makes me think of it's one of those things where you're like, oh yeah, this is this part that I feel like not necessarily essential, but like when I remember like my favorite punk and the indie stuff that song's a part of it and it's like yes. you've watched him for months and months and months and it wasn't there and it's just one of those pieces that's you know clicks together it's like oh now he has that on so, uh, december this past december's ott show at the the national stadium one of their big shows last year uh jordan devlin went for the title in the main event and uh he had a big Big match, big main event entrance, and he'd been doing the import killer and come out with the T-shirt with the like the death sickle and all that, and uh, he changed his music for one night only to Miseria Cantare by AFI, and he told me it was because he was a massive CM Punk mark when he was Aww. a teenager. <laughs> yeah, and this 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 entrance, it's you know, it's an iconic part of the Punk package. It's an iconic part of this era of Ring of Honor, so it was nice to see it. Yeah, and just so unique, and compared to most wrestlers, how it's just like this slow-building, moody thing. And they play the whole song. Yeah, and you know, he makes you wait a long time here before he comes, well, by wrestling standards, before he comes out. One of the lame things ROH does during his entrance, like, yeah, he comes out, he doesn't, they don't, like, come out, they don't have him come out until, like, they kicks into, like... Like kind of like the verse, and there's a, like a long the big like, drum beat and stuff. Yeah, yeah, there's a long preamble, but like that whole time while you're waiting, they just have the camera fixed on the curtain, and they pretty much always do that. And like, they, I feel like they could do something better. Like they could put it they, if they know that he's not coming out until that moment, which subsequently they will. They could do. They could show the crowd. They could do something. But you just you're just watching the curtain, and I guess it builds anticipation. But I feel like they could do it better. So we hear the song because, of course, Punk's coming out for his match, but first. He gets on the mic, and he asks the crowd, how does it feel to be in a building that doesn't sell alcohol? Uh, Punk goes through his usual, I'm straight edge, I'm better than you routine. But then even he says, it's getting to be old hat. He, he gets a big shut the fuck up chant. He tells the crowd that they'll get way more tire, tired way before he d- will. Uh, Punk says, Raven misled the fans, took them by the collar, and wink, wink, and led them down the road to ruin. He says Raven is just like his lousy drunk father. The crowd chants alcohol, just the word alcohol at <laughs> CM Punk, which I thought was cute. And a fan in the front row we see is holding a sign that says CM Punk, drug-free, talent-free. Punk says that's real cute. Uh, I thought, you know, the crowd just hates him, but like you can tell they love hating him in here. Like Punk must have loved this. This is the best heel reaction he's gotten so far. Um Punk mentions that he had seen Danny Doring earlier in the night and that Doring is a great example of where following Raven gets you nowhere. He asks for Doring and Doring is way in the back of the crowd. There's a spotlight on him. He holds up a, uh, I think a Budweiser and chugs it to mock Punk. Big ECW chant. Punk warns Doring that he might need another six pack of courage before he steps in the ring with CM Punk. The Ring of Honor staff or security keeps Doring from making his way to the ring crowd is chanting fuck him up raven fuck him up and punk screams for them to shut up and pay attention to him but then raven's music hits out he comes he's already got the dog collar on and matt i know you had some thoughts about how 
Punk's doing the, a promo here kind of, in your mind, made the match seem lesser? Well, it's more like that entrance sets such a tone. And if you're watching on the DVD, they have a whole highlight video reel of all the things that happened in the, in the angle. And we get that promo from WrestleRave, which was so intense. And the entrance is so intense. And, like, you're just re- – you know, like, you've seen all, like, big heat, heated matches where, like, you're finally ready for it, for it. And the guys come out, and they have these intense entrances, and they just go at it, right? But so Punk comes out. He's all intense. And then he's just, like, kind of a schmucky – like I'm gonna I'm gonna mess with the crowd for a little while, sort of thing, and I feel like that that did undercut a little bit of the intensity of what was going on right there. I mean, it didn't ruin the match or anything, and obviously they were doing something to set up that you know what happened with Danny Doring later and that swerve for what comes later in the match. Um, so I guess they felt it was just a necessary thing, and they always had Punk do promos before his matches, pretty much ever since he turned heel. So I, I get why they did it, but I felt like for this match, it was supposed to be this big like blow-off encounter. Maybe Punk wouldn't be in the mood to just be like, ha-ha, they, serve, they don't serve alcohol here. Ha-ha, Danny Doring's a loser. Ha-ha. You know, like just being like, I want to fight Raven right now. That's sort of how I felt it should be, and I do think it sort of took me out of it briefly. I think they got me back, and I think they definitely kept the crowd. So it wasn't... You know, I don't want to overstate what how what a problem it was, but I I do think that maybe they could have found a different way to get the Danny Doring thing going without Punk having to try to get the cheap heat on the mic. So before the match, um, Punk tries to chicken out of putting on the dog collar, but he he says, "How about we just do one of your street fights, Raven?" But the crowd chants, "You're a pussy," and CM pussy at Punk. But Raven won't give in. Punk puts on the dog collar, and we get a dog collar match. CM Punk defeats Raven in 18 minutes, 43 seconds, when he pins Raven after Colt Cabana did a run-in, DDT Raven on a chair. Um, Alan, like, this is a very different match than we were seeing in Ring of Honor at the time. Obviously, you haven't been watching, like, the old Ring of Honors recently, like you said earlier, but... What did you think about this match, which was very different than pretty much everything else on the show? At the time, I loved it. And it was probably at the end of the show when I watched the show the first time was the thing that resonated with me the most. And it took my fandom of punk to a new level. It was what I kind of considered the staple match of, of the Raven feud. I don't think I saw their their later matches um, I don't think I saw them like soon after this or in order. I think I would eventually see them when they'd be shown on the wrestling channel at some point a couple of years later. But um, yeah, it's it, to me, this was like the defining match and just segment of the early punk character in, in ROH. Um, thought the whole thing really defined him really well. There was many things as I rewatched it. They just, I remembered so vividly, and uh, I enjoyed the match on rewatch. It was really good, intense brawl. The finish was like a total ECW finish with Cabana doing just a DDT and Raven just being like laid out for ages and Punk just putting an arm over him and getting the pin. I thought that was very, uh, very Raven versus Sandman or Raven versus Tommy Dreamer in 1996 style finish. So, but still very. Very fun match, um, good intensity. I don't think it was as good as the other Punk dog collar match that we saw in ROH um, a couple of years later against Jimmy Rave, but it was 
it was very good. And uh, Matt, what do you think as someone who's been watching recently, like every step in the feud, rewatching it? Like, where do you think this ranks? Uh, this felt similar to the other matches in that I was surprised by how much I liked it. I remember not being so crazy about this match when I first saw it. And maybe it's because these matches are less common, these types of matches, than they were at the time. But I really enjoyed this. I thought it had some clever stuff. It wasn't perfect. There were moments where it dragged. At certain points when they went into the crowd, the uh, the spotlight was slow to find them. And so it was kind of like dark. But I thought it was... I thought it, it, it told a good story. You went on a good ride. Punk is always good at bleeding. <laughs> like, every time he blades, he blades well. Um, I, and I actually, I wonder this. Does, if you're straight edge, can you take aspirin? Because I know that's something that wrestlers do, right? They thin their blood a little bit before they blade. They take aspirin. I, I think Punk even said he's taken, like, a painkiller after one surgery. Like, he didn't like doing it, but I think he did. So Yeah, pa- painkiller, though, but, like, but aspirin, I, I don't know. Like, hmm. I mean, it's not a mind-altering drug. No, Although, I mean, I guess it's altering your perception of pain, but... It's not that strong, though. But yeah, I could see him not wanting to do it, so he must just have, like, really, just, like... He must just have really uh, runny blood, I guess. Because um, <laughs> Raven, you know, Raven bladed, and it was just, like, you know, like, he like, they were trying hard to get it to run down his face, and it was barely anything. And Raven's done some good blade jobs in the past, too, obviously. But, you know, I like the stuff where they would, like, use... And he the- was probably on all kinds of blood-thinning medications. <laughs> Speaking of no That's comment, Justin level joke. yeah, yes, that is that definitely was, and the timing was very Justin-esque. Nice job. We are real. I think we feel like we're putting Justin over more than any of the wrestlers on this show. Um, but um, the MVP of Death Before Dishonor, Justin should, <laughs> who will never and has never seen the show or listen to this one. Um, but I liked all the stuff where they were using the dog collar to like yank each other down. Like there's a spot where uh, Raven was beating on Punk. And then he, like, got up to, like, he was, like, arrogantly posed on top of the bleachers. And suddenly you just see him get, like, yanked all the way off the bleachers. I thought that, that was... the was... best spot in the match to me. Like, he goes yeah. down, like, three or four steps of bleachers. It's like, ouch! Like, yes, geez. I agree. Only, only complaint about that spot. They spoiled it on the opening video. But, um, uh-huh. yeah, I liked, you know, I liked how... Um, Punk would grab the mic again, and everyone's like, oh, God, not with the mic. And he called, he called Raven old-timer, and he... Uh, he uh, he, he like, called him flamingo. He called him flamingo, right? He crotched them with the chain, um, and then like Raven came back with like really good fire, like lots of clotheslines. The chair dropped toe hold. Um, and you know, well, and- you see, Matt, there is two things that's important for a babyface to have: selling <laughs> and fire. <laughs> <laughs> I get. I actually get that reference, so I'm happy. Um, but um, yeah, so um, they do the ref bump, which in this kind of match you don't really mind because uh, Punk ducks and Raven hits Turner with the chair, and of course Raven hits the Raven effect, and the ref is bumped. Cabana comes out, DDTs Raven on the chair, and then Danny Doring, in uh, one of the big angles in ROH history, Danny Doring gets involved, comes in and attacks Cabana. Crowd is, of course, they chant ECW. I feel like the ECW chants, even in 2003, it's getting a little bit sad. I mean, I just like anytime anyone like Mikey Whipwreck's there all the time. Just incredible now is there all the time. Like, can we, like just the fact that Danny Doring was in ECW like shouldn't make people that excited. But I guess it's better than the alternative, like with the Jeff Hardy, where everyone just gets mad. Um, but um, but Danny Doring and Cabana they fight away, and that's when Punk just sneaks in and gets the pin. The only, one of the complaints that I would have is that the 
the um, the camera almost missed the pin. Like it sort of like got the ending of the pin, so it was good enough. And I, and I thought it was just it just it took the crowd on a good ride, and the crowd stayed with it. So I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was very good, and I thought it was in line with a lot of the better matches of the Punk uh, Raven feud so far. And the and the, and the after, and the post match I think adds to it a lot, which we'll get to in a sec. For for the match itself. I like the match. I, I think I preferred some of the earlier ones better, but I think what's interesting about this, you can see a lot of Raven's fingerprints in that it's a it's a gimmick match where I think nowadays when you have a gimmick match, like like you think, of, I'm going to have a great wrestling match, like a hot, big spotty match, and it's going to have some gimmick spots in it, where this match was more just like a brawl and then an occasional gimmick spot like it wasn't in fact they don't really do wrestling moves till late in the match to the point where like when there's an actually wrestle move that wrestling move that happens late in the match gabe points out like that's the first wrestling move of the match i think yeah it's it's just an old school brawl you know in the crowd punk gets thrown into the the board the guardrails a lot like it it's a it's a lot of just walk and brawl but the the feud is. I think if you if you've been following the feud, it makes it a little bit better. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting on commentary is Gabe. Gabe talked about how Punk versus Raven is feud of the year, and other promotions are imitating it and talking about it, and that's like a very thinly veiled shot at MLW, which was starting to book this feud at the same time as Ring of Honor, and they didn't they the get ML- didn't they get the hair versus hair match. Isn't that uh, like TNA gets the hair match? Oh, they do. Okay, TNA gets it. Even when at first it looks like Ring of Honor gets it. That is something we will get into in two episodes. But, but TNA TNA's hair match isn't Punk versus Raven. No, Raven it, it's Punk is with Raven in TNA. Yeah, it. Yeah, for those we'll get into it more on that episode. But the next step in this feud was supposed to be a hair versus hair match. Apparently, Ring of Honor outbid TNA for it. TNA hears about this, they get pissed off and say, you're not doing that. And so Raven ends up losing his hair in a TNA match against Shane Douglas instead. And that is a match where, um, if you go back and watch it, uh, the sinister minister, James Mitchell, basically scalps Raven accidentally cutting his hair. Oy. Yeah. Yeah, it, that was gross. It, so I will not crazy. watch it then. <laughs> yeah. So anyway... But yeah, we'll see more of an MLW Ring of Honor feud in the future. This is basically kind of the start of you know maybe some resentment. I think it's uh, a yeah, bit they, they hated each other. <laughs> it's it's a bit hypocritical for. I, on one hand, I can see why Gabe would be mad. On one hand, it's a bit hypocritical when he took the Trent Acid Homicide feud from other promotions and then main evented his last show with it. But to him to get snooty about oh some other shows are imitating our feud. Well. You just took a feud that was built completely elsewhere and main evented with it, but um, I could have stand, stood to see the gimmick used a bit more in the match, like the chain. I thought like the original chain spot where Punk's trying to get out of the way, get out of the ring and walk, run away, and Raven drags him in with the chain. I thought that was cool. I thought the bleacher spot was cool. You know, I, I could have stood to see a few more chain spots, but overall, yeah, it was a good match and. I even like the ending where we talked on a recent show about how they built so much to the first Raven DDT and then kind of didn't do anything when it actually hit. I did like, though, how they're progressing this now where Raven hits the DDT for a second straight match. And because of a ref bump, you know, the ref is out. They can't count it. 
And I like this idea of this progression of first Raven couldn't hit the DDT ever. Now he can hit it, but he still can't win because every time he hits the DDT, the ref isn't there to make a count. So, you know, he's like Charlie Brown with the football. He's getting closer, but he still can't hit it. And yeah, so after the match, we get the big angle, which is honestly talked about way, probably way more than the match. After the match, um, Gabe says he can't believe a great feud is going to end like this. And Gabe's really been pushing on commentary that this match is the end of the feud. Uh, Punk tapes Raven's hands to the ropes. Punk says the only thing he has left to do is to send Raven on a downward spiral off the wagon straight to hell. But first, another trip to rehab. He pours a Budweiser over Raven, which he grabs from under, under the ring. When Tommy Dreamer comes out, of all people, he jumps the barricade, big pop from the crowd, stands behind an unsuspecting punk, waits for him to turn around, waffles him with a chair. Big ECW chant, big reaction for Dreamer as he waits for Punk to get up before he DDTs him. Dreamer, Dreamer then tapes Punk's arms to the ropes and unties Raven. Raven sticks out his hand, and he and Dreamer shake hands and hug. Raven gets on the mic and says he wasn't good at staying off the wagon anyway. He pours a beer on Punk, and Punk reacts like it's acid, or as Punk would say in a shoot interview, like the black drink of death from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Um, Dreamer chugs a beer, and then he and Raven celebrate to Dreamer's theme music, Man in the Box, while Punk freaks out, still tied to the ropes. Raven then pours another beer on Punk. Dreamer spits beer on Punk and then struts. And then I think in a really Dreamer cool... Dreamer does the 1996 Shawn Michaels strut out of the ring. <laughs> and there's a great moment after that where the camera just stays on, like, Punk, just beer-drenched, tied to the ropes, just no real comments, just alone in the ring for a, for a few extra seconds. And I thought that was a cool moment. Then the refs untie Punk. He freaks out, attacks the refs, shoves a cameraman, storms to the back. And, of course, this was a playoff, the famous ECW angle that they call the chair shot heard round the world, where Dreamer finally got his first measure of revenge on Raven. He tied him to, I believe, a cage or something and waffled him with chairs. So this is like the CM Punk beer version of that. So uh, did you guys, what do you guys think about the angle that, that uh, followed the match? It was fun if you were into that ECW nostalgia, which at the time I certainly was because I was getting into Ring of Honor maybe two years after I got into ECW. So ECW nostalgia was hell. I was I was super into the WWF version of the Tommy Dreamer versus Raven feud, which mainly took place on Sunday Night Heat. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I was all about that at that point in time. I think uh, uh, nowadays, I, I, that nostalgia doesn't really uh, wash with me. I, I don't really care at all about it, but at the same time, I, I was able to appreciate that this was a fun, well-done angle that got very much the desired response. And and I I actually you know I've I've always you know had a soft spot for the Tommy Dreamer Raven uh, Tommy Dreamer Raven stuff, and this really hit home with me not just because of that though I think it was just a really well done progression of this angle it was a really good idea to do with the Punk Raven characters where 
you know, Punk disrespects Raven by not respecting that he's trying to stay sober after, you know, having problems with alcohol. And then Raven, you know, doubling, you know, going even further, whereas, whereas Punk, you know, not touching alcohol is his, like, way of life and his identity. And he goes after that. So I thought that was just great. And I thought Tommy Dreamer was great just because he added, he added a spark to it. The crowd loves seeing him. Um, so he added heat. So I thought this was excellent sports entertainment, an extremely memorable angle, and a great way to cap this off. It was a great moment for a big show. Like, this is not something that you see on every ROH show, and, like, they saved it for their big show, and it was a big moment. So I, I, I thought it was a home run angle. And a little background on the angle. Apparently, uh, Tommy Dreamer, um, since he wasn't wor- booked on a, the current WWE tour that was running at this time, he volunteered to do this without being paid. Even he just wanted to do this. He, Punk said in a shoot interview that like Dreamer was apologizing for for like the fact that Punk couldn't hit him with any bumps because that's not part of Dreamer's WWE <laughs> contract. And Punk was like, "Well, that wouldn't even make sense for the angle." But Dreamer was apparently very apologetic that like, "I'm sorry, you can't bump me or anything like that." Um, Dreamer, Dreamer, I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that Dreamer is like sincere in terms of how much he just wants to give to the wrestling industry. Like, it's like, I I just like, you could just tell he really means that. And, um, Punk has some other comments on the shoot interview. And one of them actually plays into that where he says like, Dreamer is so selfless. Like he, Dreamer basically said like, Hey, I'm already over. So now all I care about is getting other people over. Um, Punk says he hated this match. He says afterwards, he's, after he had it, he thought it sucked, but on tape, he thought he now thinks it's tremendous, which if you listen to this 2003 or watch this 2003 CM Punk shoot interview, that's like kind of a common trope of his where Punk will talk about really hating things he does. And then when he watches on tape, he thinks they're not as bad as he thought after he wrestled them. Kind of sounds like he was debating Raven on stuff because... Raven was te- he talks about Raven was teaching him that more that psychology of less is more, but he puts over Raven for doing that. But the way Raven Punk talks in his shoot about this feud, it sounds like he would, and the way Raven talks about in his shoot interviews, it sounds like there was a bit of chafing where Punk wanted to do like more moves and Raven wanted something that was a little bit more simple and throwback. Um, Punk loved the angle afterwards, he thought it was electric. He says he wished he could have looked up, but he had to keep his head down to sell being tied to the ropes. But he said he so badly wanted to see Raven and Dreamer hug and he couldn't look up. <laughs> so I thought that was a cute moment that he's still a fan himself. Um, and Punk and Raven have both said in shoots they knew that Danny Doring would get shit on by the fans. That was by design. He didn't, though. See, that's the thing. Punk Punk says acts like Danny, Dreamer, Danny Doring got sh- shit on. He says, we knew the fans would shit on Danny Doring, and that was the plan, was like to lure the fans in and to treat this whole angle like near false, where every revelation would be bigger than the one before. So you get Danny Doring, and then you'd get Tommy Dreamer, and then you'd get the beer for the big one at the end, and it would be like each thing gets bigger. It's a cool idea, but the crowd was happy to see Danny Doring and chanted (laughs) ECW at him and seemed to be satisfied with what they got before Dreamer came out. And then the last thing is Rob Feinstein, who was conducting this interview, asked Punk, like, did the straight edge community turn on you for drinking beer? And Punk basically says, like, you know, he's not part of a group. He's straight edge for himself. And if anyone has a problem with him doing a beer based angle, he'll punch them in the face. And after looking at the UFC fights, uh, maybe you should maybe you should change your strategy about that. Uh, 
Punk's uh, get another another thing I will not comment on. <laughs> Punk's after the angle. A lot of the guys backstage thought it was asking Punk if the whole beer thing was real. Um, and apparently, at first, Punk says the whole thing was his idea, and then Gabe gets on the shoot to actually disagree and say involving beer in the angle was Gabe's idea, and then Punk's wrinkle to it was, how about you have me tied to the ropes and, like, forced down my throat? And so, you know, they... That that sounds like it was his idea, then. Yeah, I mean, Gabe's idea was basically use beer, (laughs) and Punk's idea was then everything else. (laughs) How else was... How else were they going to do it? Raven was going to be like, here, Punk, have this beer. No, have it. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing is Punk apparently like it sounds like they want him to bring out the beer and Punk just refused. Like, why would I go to a beer store as the straight edge guy and then like bring beer to the ring and also saying that would completely telegraph like the angle that would happen later? And then he was like, Yeah, the beer can be under the ring. Like people pull out fire extinguishers from under the ring and they don't question that. So why would they question like a six pack of Budweiser? So and Steve, and, and Steve Austin has the beer at ringside all the time. Yes, Steve Austin's beer man should have just, like, thrown beers to everybody yeah. that called for them. Like, just act like he's always there at yeah. every wrestling show. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a very memorable angle. Back, we're, we're getting through this, folks. Uh, two matches left. Backstage, Paul London says he's supposed to sum up his Ring of Honor career in this promo, but he thinks it's impossible. He says Ring of Honor put him on the map and he'll always remember it. And he goes over his highlights like the street fight with Michael Shane, the matches with Brian Danielson. He says the match with AJ Styles was one of his favorites. He brings up the three-way they had with Low Key. Uh, Lennon apologizes for letting people down when he fought Xavier and says tonight he won't let people down. He says he has a special feeling like he's had before, but he's going to win tonight because he has to. I thought that was kind of weird that he's doing this promo where he's basically like... I let you down before, but I'm not going to tonight. And it's like, well, you know you're going to let them down. Uh, I, I don't know. I kind of got a weird feeling about that and some commentary that will happen later. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, think we, I think we're thinking of the same line. Yeah, we're going to go to uh, the semi-main event. Ring of Honor tag team title match. The final match between AJ Styles and the Amazing Red successfully defending for the third time against the Briscoes in 14 minutes, 29 seconds. AJ pins Jay after a Styles clash. Um, the the funny fact about this: this was the third match AJ and Red had with the Briscoes. This is also the third and final title defense AJ and Red had of the tag titles. Which means, yes, every single title defense they made was against the Briscoes, and they won every time. Obviously, part of that's because booking plans change with injuries and things, but it's still very weird. And Dave remotes that this was supposed to be the Briscoe's final match for a while because they were going to plan on playing college football in the fall. Of course, they come back sooner than expected because that doesn't turn out quite the way, the way they want. But um, Al, uh, no, I'll go to Matt first for this one. Matt, this is the th- we've seen three of these now. Where would you rank this compared to the other two of this basically a trilogy? It, it's a tough call. In some ways, I'd put it at the top, but I don't know if like I viscerally felt that it was the best match. Like, basically, it's um, it was more of a complete match than the other two. Like they had you know Ang stuff with Red's leg. They worked him over. The, the The first two matches were a lot more like about the big spots. This match had way fewer of those. It wasn't as fast paced. 
you know, but and it was mo- there was more of a storyline to it. But the crowd wasn't quite as hot for it. I mean, they were hot. I mean, it was a good crowd. Still, it's a good crowd. They were trying hard to be into the match, but they were tired. Uh, they were, yeah. I was gonna say they were like however many hours into the event, and and they, they had every right to be tired and non-reacting to this match. But you could tell they were trying to. They just couldn't muster it up that much. I, I feel- mean, at this point, in the show was probably eleven thirty or eleven forty-five p.m. I think. Yeah, I feel exactly the way the way you feel. It's like basically they were trying hard. Like they reacted well. They clearly wanted to like they they, they did like this match and they cared about it. They were just tired because they'd just seen that last match, which took a lot of energy out, plus everything else that had happened on the show. So I still I'm not saying that the crowd was dead or that they killed the match. I think it, I think it was like a really good match. Um, I you know I thought Red's offense even with um with his injury like the kicks that he did on Mark I'd say like they looked better than usual to me, um and the you know the announcers you know really um, played that off and it was funny at the beginning of the match how Gabe just like started on commentary by freaking out about Tommy Dreamer again he loves Tommy Dreamer <laughs> so that was like so that was like the first like few like the first minute or two of commentary of the match was all about that then he's like all right I gotta focus on this match now. Um, and they did, and they they told the story of leg of Red's leg of legs Red, um, and you know like they did cool stuff with like they're trading half crabs, and then Jay turns the half crab around to taunt AJ and spit at him, while um, while he was in the half crab. Uh, also, of course, uh, gave made sure to uh, gratuitously call Alexis Larie hot for no reason, and and he's, like multiple <laughs> no, times he used he used very two thousand three verbiage. He called her uh, ultra hot, <laughs> and then a, a moment later, he called her smoking. <laughs> smoking. He he kept he kept at it until Doug acknowledged that yeah she's hot. All right, let's go. Um, <laughs> um, but but I you know I liked it. I liked that you know. And then the big ending was that they were I guess a J hit the J driller, but doesn't count as a kick out because it was broken up because uh, AJ threw Mark into Jay to break it up. But then uh, Jay was going to go for another Jay driller and then Red hit a shining wizard. Um, and like the idea was like he sacrificed his knee and that's when AJ hit the Styles Clash for the win. Um, I thought it was very good. I, I, I'd say like technically speaking, I thought it was the best match of the three. Probably in terms of like my pure excitement, entertainment value from it, I'd put it maybe at number two after the first match and ahead of the second match. But it was like, so I, I guess it just depends on my mood at that moment. But I thought they did a really good job. I uh, I pretty much completely agree with you, Matt, on this. I feel like it's the same. It's as good as the other matches in a different way. If you're looking for just the big spots, like you said, I think the other the first two matches are better. I think if you're looking for more of a story, this one actually has one. So like that's an upgrade. I feel like the Briscoe still like they're so good for for their age, but the one thing they're still not great about like when they have beat down somebody i feel like they improved a lot in this segment compared to the first two matches because all three matches had red getting beat down because of course it's fun to beat red down he's easy to get sympathy beating down and so this time they actually really worked him over they worked over a real injury he had the knee like you pointed like jay briscoe actually really heals it up a bit mark not so much but you know jay with the spitting at aj styles and like taunting him they even at one point kind of do a move to a double team on red behind the ref's back like all improvements over the first two matches in terms of structure 
But yeah, I did. Uh, on the flip side, I did kind of miss that they didn't quite go as crazy as the first two matches. And I, I, but the big thing for me is that ending that you mentioned. I thought that's the coolest thing they've done in all three matches where, you know, they, they worked on Red's knee so much. And then um, Red does like the springboard off like the crouching AJ Styles who's tr- fighting in to not get suplexed by Jay. And he, he just basically use, he does a, a, a shining wizard on a standing person. Cause he's jumping off of someone's like half crouched back and it looks great. And I think Gabe did a great job immediately selling it as like red sacrificed his knee, you know, like that was his one last thing he could do. And doing that allows AJ to immediately hit the styles clash and win. Like it, it really, I thought that was a great way to sell it of like, Hey, it's not like he just found the strength to do it. It's like he sacrificed. This was this was all or nothing. You know, throw that injured knee out there. Um, yeah, it, good match. I, I think this series, it's one of the few things we've watched so far that got a lot of praise at the time that probably, I think, loses something over time. I think a lot of, like, the big crazy spot stuff they did, especially in the first two matches, that kind of stuff has been far surpassed in indie wrestling. I feel most of the stuff we've watched in Ring of Honor that we've liked that was liked then really holds up. Yeah, like 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 the three way from the first anniversary, where like like those innovative spots still feel innovative. Yeah, like this these matches have this trilogy of matches hasn't been bad, but I know at the time they were they were places like wow these are great, they're not great anymore. Like they're they're good, but. Um, the, the, no shame in, in that. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm not a person that thinks that matches have to like work forever and ever and ever. I, I don't believe in that. So Alan, what did you think as someone that maybe hasn't been watching all three lately? Well, I actually watched the first one last year and I oh, was yeah, with your Briscoe's rewatch. Yeah. Yeah. I was blown away by it. I absolutely adored it. I said it would have been one of, if not the best tag team match in 2017 for me. I wow. love that first match they had. I I was shocked how how much it held up for me. I really, really did love it. And this, I can't say I enjoyed as much. Um, but they did a lot of very smart things here. The first being how quickly they started the match. The first few minutes are go, go, go. It's all action. It, I actually thought they were just going and doing like... A super quick sprint here because of how long the show had gone um and then of course they ended up taking it a different direction raise a red's knee injury and then playing that up and working him over for a while and the match ended up did going about 15 20 minutes or whatever it was but um yeah they they started out hot which was smart because it didn't let the crowd just kind of die out after the raven match and I think they were cool with the crowd coming down a bit while they worked over the knee of Red, but they were, I'm sure, hoping for the crowd to come back up with them in the closing stages. And unfortunately for them, I think they just had a few execution problems from pretty much right leading into the hot tag. The hot tag is just a little mistimed, and then there's just a couple of things that kind of get a little screwed up. Um... Uh, in in the closing stages, so they don't get the hot reaction to the to the end of the match like they did in that first one. So um, 
but the the finish itself was really good with red sacrificing the knee. I thought that was really nicely done. Um, yeah, very good match. And if I hadn't seen the first one back last year, I would have been. I would say going higher in my praise for this and talking about how it held up very well over the years. But compared to the first one, for me, it doesn't hold up as well. And so we're going to move on now. I'm going to probably, we only have one match left, but a few segments. I'm going to kind of rush through the segments because we've been on quite a while. So <laughs> um, J- Jim Cornette was backstage, at, you know, at OVW cutting another promo, promoting his appearance at Ring of Honor on the next show. Most notable thing here is he goes, you ha- if you want that, uh, Cornette says he smells money, and if you want, if you want to, uh, if you go to the next Ring of Honor show, the one that he'll be at, you'll get have to show up to smell a what JC is smelling. Yes, Jim Cornette actually did a really bad imitation of The Rock to promote his appearance on a Ring of Honor show. It was corny, and that leads us. It was to corny in multiple ways. <laughs> That's another unintentional pun. Great job. Main event: the Ring of Honor World Title match. Samoa Joe defeats Paul London in 14 minutes, 13 seconds, when he made London pass out in the rear naked choke, a.k.a. the Coquina Clutch. This is it for Paul London, my beautiful, beautiful boy. He, <laughs> he's gone forever after this. Um, it's his final match in all of the indies. He comes out, he gives a ton of hugs and high fives to the front row to the point where they start playing Joe's music after a while and he's still giving like hugs and talking with people and, and shaking their hands. It's pretty touching. It feels like, even though this is probably not true, like he knows everybody there. Like he's just like just so familiar with everyone, hugging, shaking hands. Tons of streamers for Paul London. I think one of the first times Ring of Honor ever did the streamer throw. Definitely the first time there were streamers for a non-Japanese wrestler, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, there's probably at All-Star Extravaganza probably had that with, with uh, Masato Tanaka and Otani. But yeah, I think this might be the first time for a hometown, like an American guy. Um, Gabe did a good job of explaining why London got the match, even though he and AJ Styles had a draw in their first number one contenders match. Gabe says because London was ranked higher in the top five rankings before the draw with AJ, he gets the number, he gets the title match. So that was a good way of trying that. That that was basically the tiebreaker. I thought that was a good way to kind of get out of uh, a bind that they were put in with the last minute word that they couldn't have AJ lose that match to Paul London. And as for a match, I would say this is good. Another match. Good a little disappointing. The story behind this match is Samoa Joe has said in a shoot interview that Paul London was really worried about getting hurt in this match. And Joe says, I was worried for him too. And so they kind of did not, Joe admits that they, we did not do everything I think we could have done in a match, but we didn't want to risk Paul getting hurt because you know how WWE works. If you get hurt and it's, you're not yet signed with them, they're not, they're going to tell you to take care of that yourself, and they're not going to sign you then. So apparently this was a little toned down. I don't even know if the toned downness is a sign that bugged me. It just felt like there was just something a little bit off when you would think these two would have great chemistry because London is this amazing underdog. Joe is this great ass kicker, you'd think. And the match is good. Like it, It's a good match. I enjoyed it. it might be my second favorite match on the show. It's, it's just... Uh, you know, when you think Samoa Joe and Paul London, those are two of my favorite guys at this point. But there was definitely some cool spots, like uh, 
Samoa Joe goes for a big like drop running drop kick to Paul London and London dodges and Joe slides all the way onto the ropes and crotches himself on them. He body slams Paul London into the uh, into the ring post and they even try and it didn't quite feel like the like epic in the way a final match for a guy should but they did do some big things like they let Joe kick out of the 450 splash. They had Paul London get out of the choke a couple, avoid the choke a couple times before he eventually passed out. But there's something about this. It's good. It's just missing something. And again, maybe it's as simple as what Joe said, which was he and London were both really scared about London getting hurt. Um, Alan, what, what did you think about the old match? I was surprised watching it back I A watching this whole show from start to finish and it, it took me a few sittings but knowing how long of a show it was and these guys coming on after all of this it was a tough spot to be in um, but also my expectations were low because it's a big match in Ring of Honor that doesn't get talked about amongst the great matches in Ring of Honor and that kind of tied into my memory of it being not so great but outside of just the crowd being tired and them not being able to just go absolutely crazy although they were good everything in the match is done really well and London shows good heart I love the execution I love London just going full on desperation at the end and attempting a low blow and Joe is just great at shutting him down. It's one of my favorite things in wrestling is when a plucky baby face is just trying everything they can, but they just keep getting shut down. And that's what Joe is doing to him here. So um, Alan yeah, loves I, seeing dreams crushed. <laughs> he loves tears. He loves crushed dreams. That's what we've learned today. Yes, I'm rooting on Ricochet tonight at TakeOver, for sure. Crush that Velveteen dream. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, um yeah so i i enjoyed the match a lot it was uh it was very very good cool finish um with london just it just really felt like i i had forgotten how the match finished i had a feeling it was rear naked choke but i wasn't sure if it was in the rear naked choke that joe had locked in at that point in time and when they were doing the hogan arm drop thing i was like oh don't or I was like oh, I I hope it drops the third time because it's just so perfect and it would be hokey if they did the Hogan finger wave here I I just it was just poetic seeing London just the arm go down the third time the crowd were chanting please don't tap so like they've always chanted please don't die and then at this point they were accepting that he was gonna die <laughs> but they didn't want him quit they didn't want them to die by choice and that's what tapping out would have but when the arm just dropped he just died so they were trying to please don't tap he didn't tap he fought to the end but he had to eventually die Matt, uh, what did you think about saying goodbye to Paul and How did he go out? See, I feel like pretty similar to Alan. I remember when I first watched this match, I found it disappointing. Um, but you know, so that was for the rep it had, right? Yeah, and and for... just people wrote about it as like, oh yeah, it was good, but it wasn't great, and that was kind of its rep. 
Right. Like, that's how I feel about it, actually. But mm, yeah. it's funny that you guys have, have changed on a rewatch. Well, yeah. Well, for years, I just thought of it as like, I, I, don't, I, I haven't watched that match again because it just it was nothing much. So watching it again with lower expectations made me appreciate it a lot more, just like yep. Alan. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it was. It still wasn't like an amazing match or anything, but it was super well done. You know, the crowd was tired, but they were more into it than I remembered. I'll say that. For a crowd that had seen like a four-hour show at midnight, they were still – they were good by that standard. Yeah, for like, sure. Like they were not dead at all. And they – and they, you know, they, they got into the ole ole kick. There were some really memorable spots. I liked how Joe was doing like the face wash and the running thing with London in the Tree of Woe, which allowed London to sit up, which led to Joe doing the spot that you mentioned where he like – he goes through the ropes and London throws him to the outside. And the last few minutes of – Near falls were good too. The crowd like didn't go crazy for them because I don't think they ever believed London could win. Um, but you know, just like the dragon suplex for two, the uh, choke into the pinning combo for two, obviously the shooting star press um, for two. Um, you know, they, they they pop big, but maybe not as big as they would have if this was like a two and a half hour show or it wasn't London's last match. Um, but in the crowd, you know, they start chanting "Let's go London," and then you know the knees and the choke. And, you know, London fights out with a low blow, and Joe just grabs it right back, and he gets it. And I like how um, Joe grabbed the choke from the apron and just, like, yanked him into the ring. Like, it was – there was a lot of cool stuff there. I would I would say the match was solidly very good. Um, yes, if they had gone, like, the 25 minutes and did, like, the full London special with all the crazy please-don't-die moments, you know, shooting star to the outside, whatever else he would have done – yeah, I'm sure they could have had an all-timer, but this was really good, and I think a really fun capper to the night. And just like with the Raven match, you know, the, the post-match adds a lot to it. Um, it's the first one of those. Oh, I'm sure you'll talk about it in a second, but the first one of those ever, like with like the the teary farewells. I guess the Eddie Guerrero one, but this was like a homegrown ROH guy, yeah. so it's different. Only other couple highlights I want to mention: Joe pulls out a goddamn missile drop kick. Yes, unbelievable. Um, just the other thing oh, oh the other thing I, there's a great callback to the Xavier feud where London like fakes hitting his head on the turnbuckle like he slaps it to make the noise because Joe isn't looking at him and then he sells that he's been hurt and then he plays possum and hits his like leg hooking DDT on Joe which is a callback to the Xavier feud which I thought was a nice touch the one thing I, we we talked we mentioned this a little bit earlier but I think the thing that you and I both noticed, Matt, that we didn't mention is Gabe says on the commentary in this match that if Paul London doesn't win the Ring of Honor title, his career here means nothing. And I think that's a really weird way to frame it when you know Paul London's losing. Yeah, it's bizarre. And it's I mean, I, I don't know if he pre-planned that because like it feels like just something that slipped out and it's like – obviously not the message they want to send and it's obviously not true and nobody thinks that so it's not like it hurt paul london that much but yeah it's a really dumb thing to say when you're the promoter (laughs) yeah like there's just something about the paul london promo and gabe's commentary that was all built around this idea that paul london's let you down before but he won't tonight you know that was paul london's promo basically and gabe going you know if he doesn't win this nothing else he did here matters and it's like both those things are obviously not true and they're playing against paul london like it's just I guess you could say it kind of helps Joe because Pollen puts everything on the line and still can't beat him. But it's kind of a bummer when everyone wants to see Paul Lennon have a goodbye and rather than just be like, well, he had a great run, there's this weird notion of like, you know, nothing he did matters if he can't win here. And oh, he just lost. But let's forget about that and celebrate. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, they celebrate, and this is like Matt said, the very first big like graduation goodbye. The first time like a homegrown Ring of Honor guy leaves and gets to say goodbye. You know, there there had been Spanky, but Spanky just disappeared when he went. He didn't have a goodbye show like this where everyone knows he's leaving. All the wrestlers after the match get in the ring. They get on one knee. Like, they fill the ring, huge part of the Ring of Honor roster. Even Scott Chong is there. I mean, <laughs> they're all there. They're all there for Paul. Gabe says, thank you, Paul, on commentary. The crowd chants it. Doug Williams and BJ Whitmer put Paul Lennon on their shoulders for a minute. Um, and then Paul Lennon cuts his promo. And it's a very, I won't get into all the details because, again, it's late. But it's a very charming promo where you it's not the charisma, crazy space cowboy Paul Lennon we know nowadays. He's still a little bit awkward and he's very grateful for everything. And he's just trying to think of things to say. You can tell he's just saying whatever comes to his mind calls them everyone in the ring, his family. He thanks the promoters. He thanks, he, he gets Rudy boy to stand up so he can hug him. Rudy boy that jokes that London got him sweaty with the hug. Um, crowd chants, please don't die. London makes some kind of joke about the afterlife and then apologizes to a mock offended AJ Styles. Cause apparently <laughs> AJ Styles is the only one that's allowed to use religion for anything. Like I always love, I mean, instantly when you talk about religion or anything, it's like everyone looks at AJ Styles like he's the one person that believes in God in all of wrestling. It's like, not really. Um, London thanks everyone who made him banners or streamers since the first time he ever got them. He didn't get them even when he was in Japan. Uh, he says he'll hold the memories he's made where, wherever he goes. Wh- whatever it said on his Ring of Honor t-shirt, it always said Ring of Honor on his heart. He says, I, I wonder. I wonder if that's still true. I wonder if it still says "Ring of Honor" in his heart. It's faded a lot. Um, yeah. London says, "Never say never about returning one day." There's a big thank you chant. He says he wishes he could have given the whole crowd cookies and milk, like Andy Kaufman style, but he didn't have the time. I wrote my notes. This was a rambling but nice speech. He gets more hugs, and we see the the camera stays, and we see all the like very extended everyone that wants to hug him. We see. And I, I said my highlight was after the uh, – when he's getting all these hugs, low-key comes up to him and he looks very serious and dour and low-key style. And London like reaches and grabs his elbow instead of his hand to shake and low-key just cracks up and starts smiling and looks so unlow-key. And it's such a nice moment of like, oh, low-key's a human being. Like, Well, you know you know, at that moment low-key is riddled with guilt over what he did to uh, Deranged. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's part of the pathos there. Um, so I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that, but I, I, it, it's it's a nice send off. There's not it's not like the greatest speech ever, but there's just real genuine affection and gratefulness, and it's it's nice. My my highlight, the only thing I'd add is, was seeing anti slugger there, and I, I don't don't know where he came from or what who he is or like what his role is, but he was part of the crew even though he's no longer part of the uh, uh, on screen uh, product. Yeah, that was crazy. Um. Other than that, I mean, I just – Paul London uh, – the one thing I want to say about Paul London, the, most of the things that people remember about Ring of Honor I've learned during this podcast are the things that are still good, are the things that deserve to be remembered. But Paul London is fading a bit in some people's minds. And because he is not like a lot of the Ring of Honor stars of this era, he never went on to become a big star in the modern time. He's kind of – you know, he had his WWE run and then he just 
he's still done stuff in wrestling, but just that's not where his passion lies. And I feel like people are forgetting Paul London. And I can tell you from rewatching this, what Paul London has done in this first year and a half of Ring of Honor is as good as anything anyone did in the first year and a half of Ring of Honor. And everything that he did that was good holds up in my eyes. It's as, it's as good of a 10-month period as, any, as my opinion, anyone's ever had in Ring of Honor to this day. So, And, and do not forget Paul London. Yeah. Like, don't forget this run. He deserves to be remembered. No matter what else, this this is great, and this is in danger of people forgetting it. He could he could have been one of the great greats of all time. Like that's like yeah. he, this was early in his this was early, and he was young. If if things had gone a little differently, we could be talking about him as like a Hall of Famer to this day. It, it, yeah, it. I, I mean, we've talked about it before. It just it it sucks. But just quick summaries of the next. Few, we end the show with a few promos. Raven cuts one from a behind a piece of chain link fence. He says Punk has his number, and even though Punk Punk beat him with um, interference, that's just an excuse that you know you either win, you lose, or you draw. So I like the Raven's not being hypocritical. He's like, yeah, Punk cheated, but whatever. He's beaten me, and I can't beat him. So he wants Punk in a cage. So he's setting up a cage match, which we will see in a couple shows. The only my main notes from this is Raven did a lot of sniffling during this promo, and he also said he got sweet revenge pouring beard down Punk's throat, and says that's how addiction starts. But then he says um, he doesn't. He says that he's um, let me see what it's here. He basically he, Raven basically says he's going to make Punk an al- he's made Punk an alcoholic by pouring this beer on him. But he says that's not enough revenge. I want you in a cage match. And I thought, <laughs> in what world is wrestling someone in a cage worse than making them an alcoholic? <laughs> like I, I I I would think the other one is the ultimate revenge. But okay, Raven. The sniffling um, was just, the sniffling was just Raven being presidential. <laughs> uh, Carnage crew promo quick. Uh, it's everyone but Masada. They talk about their wives. You've seen this a million times before. DeVito calls Mikey Whipwreck a crippled old man. Just Incredible says Special K are a joke. And the Carnage crew have become just incredible. It's They're just setting up the Carnage crew Special K feud. Of the three guys, uh, the Carnage, like, Credible was actually the worst part of the promo. Like, those other Absolutely. two, those, those other two are good. Like, they're good promos. They're good characters and good promos. Absolutely, I agree. Um, Chris Daniels is still in Japan. He just got off the phone with Alice in Danger for the final time. Said the title matches were monumental. Nothing changed hands, so he knows who he's going after. He says he's going to go get the tag titles again. He's going to get the world title again. Um, so well, I, I was so, I was so sick of seeing Daniels at this point. I'll be honest. Like they yeah, give they give him too many promos on these shows, even when the shows that he's there. It's like multiple Daniels promos. One is enough. This was one or two too many tonight. and uh, But anyway, same point. Daniels is coming back. He's going to get the titles. And then we end backstage at the Rexplex. Rob Feinstein walks up to Punk and Cabana. Punk is moping with his head down. He asks Punk if they can do a promo because they have five minutes left on the videotape. Uh, Colt tells Rob this isn't a good time. Rob responds that Raven just cut a promo and a promo where he challenged Punk to a cage match. And Punk immediately stands up and shoves Rob Feinstein to the floor. Rob takes a bump. Uh, pissed off Punk like starts kind of stalking Rob down as Rob crawls away on his butt from Punk in fear. Punk is pissed off, really pissed off. He asks if he saw what Raven did to him tonight. 
Punk says he doesn't care how much Raven costs to book or what the date is or on what planet it's on, but no one does what Raven did to him tonight and that he tells Rob make the cage match and that Raven crossed the line and Punk will not be held responsible for what he does to Raven. And that is how we end a four and a half hour show and probably a four hour through the years. Thank you so much, guys. Um, what did you think of the show overall quickly? Uh, you want me to go first? Sure. All right. Um, so obviously this wasn't the best wrestling show they've ever done uh, to this day. And even at the time, I would say it wasn't the best wrestling show. But I do think it's one of the best shows they've ever done. Like, it was great. It felt epic. It felt bigger than the other shows. They had angles. They had surprises. Uh, they had a lot of good wrestling. That four-way was really exciting. There were no, like, really great matches. But that four-way was really cool. I enjoyed the Punk-Raven match a lot. Like I said, I thought the angle was a home run. The last two matches were good, entertaining wrestling matches that kept the crowd when they easily could have lost them. And the farewell final finale was emotional. I thought this match, this this was a show that really, like, it almost like in WWE style. Like, it was just great sports entertainment. Um, just the production felt better than normal. The atmosphere was better than normal. Uh, I thought it was just a fantastic show. I think it's a must-see in ROH history. Alan, do you have any thoughts? I loved it. It was great going back and, and re-watching this. It, it, honestly, like, I picked out this show um, or, as one that I thought would be fun to go back and, and do, and it exceeded my expectations. And I have even more of a connection with it now, having gone back and done this than I had otherwise. And, yeah, just really fun to do. A really fun show top to bottom it's got a little bit of everything it was i think probably the first show to get that reputation of super long roh show i'm, I'm not sure if you guys have you come across any other in doing this project I, I i don't recall you having another one that you've said that about unless it was one of the ones i haven't listened to the show of yet the last two or three um so I think this was the first one to be that marathon show. And it wasn't like a point where it was expected yet. So the crowd were probably really tired, but they at the same time stuck with it and tried to keep going and, and react to things. And when all was said and done at the end of the show and, and Paul London's having his farewell, they're right there for him with that. And they give him, a great send off. It it was a really cool scene to to end and um there was many cool scenes throughout. Yeah, I think they appreciated like the length in the sense of they appreciated all the entertainment they were given. I mean ROH clearly put a lot of thought into this. They did not um you know, they did not skimp on the big moments for the big show. So I think I think the crowd was appreciative of that. Yeah, and I don't have much to add other than yeah, this was Maybe not, I mean, the four-way was great. It wasn't the best show for wrestling, although there was a lot of good stuff on it, but it just felt like a major event. It, it just, it felt like an exciting electric atmosphere in a bigger, bigger crowd, big, new city, new building, like just, it, it was one of the very first Ring of Honor kind of super cards that felt special. I think the only one, Alan, you were asking that might have been longer. It wasn't as long as this, but it was probably the first year anniversary show. Oh, yeah, kinda, that's right. Kind of had that similar feel and was a longer show, but I don't think it was as long as this. Or... And this shows this show stuck the landing in a way that show definitely didn't. Yeah, with the with the crazy never-ending scramble match. <laughs> but right. 
now we end with the crazy never ending podcast. And I want to thank everybody for listening. And I want to thank Alan so much for staying up late with us. I mean, you guys don't realize maybe how late the time is in Ireland. I want to thank Alan. Can't thank you enough. I want to say to his wife, thank you for loaning Alan to us. <laughs> and Walter's favorite Pokemon better be Poplio. We are not in our forties. We are in our thirties yes. and I'm Canadian. So, <laughs> and this is not behind a paywall, goddammit. No, and, 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 and I wish I was Canadian, so there's that. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back with Wrath of the Racket, Ring of Honor's debut in Ohio with Jim Cornette. We'll, if you want to contact us, listen to another episode at the end where I give contact. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for listening. Good night.